Volume 3, Chapter 44 Boycotting the Importers By late 1769, merchants of every province but New Hampshire had organized to support non-importation agreements of varying comprehensiveness and scope. How were they enforced? The merchant associations generally appointed committees to watch over vessels and shipments and to promote the public boycotts of offenders. In New York, the boycott was remarkably effective. Total imports from Great Britain to the port fell from over 490,000 pounds in 1768 to about 75,000 pounds the following year. Once in a while, the over-eager New York Sons of Liberty strayed beyond the colonist scrupulous limits of using strictly voluntary methods of pressure upon non-cooperating merchants. And thus, in the fall of 1769, a blend of boycott and mass intimidation induced the silversmith Simeon Cooley to flee New York. A jeweler, Thomas Richardson, confronted by a scaffold and a mob at the Liberty Pole, was forced to pledge his cooperation. The following June, a transient, non-cooperating merchant named Hills had his goods seized and burned by a mob. Hills promptly fled New York, but these dishonorable instances were few and far between, and the Merchants' Committee of Inspection denounced the mob action against Hills as the work of lawless ruffians. Philadelphia's record of compliance was remarkable when one recalls that city's original reluctance to join the boycott. The merchants' main efforts were to weaken the agreements to the looser terms enjoyed by the Albany and Maryland merchants. Philadelphia imports fell from 440,000 pounds to some 200 and 5,000 pounds the following year. No coercion or intimidation of the merchants appeared in Philadelphia. Connecticut, New Jersey, and Delaware also cheerfully complied with the agreement and gave little trouble. Apart from the cauldron of Boston, which will be treated below, only reluctant Newport in the northern colonies gave the non-import movement much trouble. Indeed, there is evidence that even prominent members of the Newport Sons of Liberty, as well as the Merchants' Committee itself, connived at virtually open violations of the non-importation covenant. Compliance with the boycott in the southern provinces was another story. The indifference or hostility of the merchants caused imports from Britain actually to increase during 1769, particularly in Virginia. The opposition of the British factors and their agents in Virginia forced the resistors to modify the boycott agreement, and attempts at enforcement by the merchants' committees of inspection or county associations were few and feeble. Enforcement efforts were far more successful in Maryland, where many more of the merchants were native-born and hence more enthusiastic about resistance. Two, and not unimportant, the Philadelphia merchants kept a watchful and suspicious eye upon their Baltimore confrères. The boycott movement was not more successful in North Carolina and Georgia than in Virginia. 
The merchants ignored the provincial associations instituted by the North Carolina Assembly in late 1769. Finally, in early June 1770, the Sons of Liberty called a general meeting at Wilmington, comprising many planters and others from six of the larger counties. The meeting agreed to boycott and publicly condemn all non-compliers with the agreement, and merchants' committees of inspection were selected in each county, concentrating on the towns of Brunswick and Wilmington. By the fall of 1770, enforcement had become effective as a result of these efforts. In contrast to the strenuous, if belated, efforts at enforcement in North Carolina, Georgia made no attempt whatever to pressure compliance with the boycott. Fortunately, Georgia's trade was so negligible that its desertion had little effect. Nevertheless, a general meeting of inhabitants of Charleston at the end of June 1770 unanimously urged the total boycott of all trade with Georgia, which ought to be amputated from the rest as a rotten part that might spread a dangerous infection. The most interesting Southern reaction, and one potentially explosive, to the problem of compliance occurred in South Carolina. There, Christopher Gadson and his vigilant band of radical liberals stood alert to exert maximum pressure on reluctant merchants. These men, with their great ardor and zeal for liberty, were comparable only to the embattled libertarians of Boston. Like their comrades in Boston, the popular liberal forces of South Carolina confronted organized and articulate opposition, which was led by the wealthy young planter William Henry Drayton. Battling in the pages of the South Carolina Gazette during August 1769, Drayton denounced Gadsden as an advocate of enslavement masquerading as a libertarian. For private associations to brand non-compliers with the boycott as traitors was a usurpation of the function of the legislature. Here, Drayton confused the vital distinction between voluntary and coercive actions and hence between private and governmental actions. It was typically conservative for Drayton to believe that a state branding and punishing a man for treason was somehow legitimate and not really coercive, whereas private denunciation and peaceful boycott were illegitimately coercive. Also typically conservative, Drayton advocated jailing Gadsden for the latter's views. The famous Gadsden-Drayton debate finally led the people of Charleston to publish and distribute handbills in early September, containing the names of the recalcitrants. The original motto of the Charleston General Meeting establishing the boycott had been sign or die, but this proved to be braggadocio, as no attempt was ever made to go beyond boycott and public ostracism to such violence. The leading non-signers, aside from the inevitable royal officials, were Drayton, William Ragg, and John Gordon. Again, Drayton and Gadsden engaged in debate on the fundamental nature of liberty. 
Drayton asserted that the Gadsden liberals were laying illegal restraints upon the free wills of free men, that is, of the non-signers. Gadsden retorted that the association violated not a single law, and that free men had the right to associate, and hence not to associate, with whomsoever they pleased. Drayton replied by falling back on such cant as the old Tory doctrine of conspiracy, which supposedly made such boycotts punishable by law. Rag was more explicit in pointing out that such boycotts should be as illegal as combinations of labor to raise wages. In his rebuttal, Gadsden transcended the preceding debate to proclaim the right of a people where their rights have been invaded by government to reassert their inalienable natural rights, those inherent rights of society, which no climate, no time, no constitution, no contract can ever destroy or diminish. Drayton did try to suppress the boycott at law. He could not go to the courts for most of the judges to say nothing of the juries were signers of the association, and the South Carolina House summarily rejected his plea, which testified to the effectiveness of the boycott. Finally, the boycotters won. Drayton left in defeat for England in early January 1770, sailing appropriately on a ship carrying unsold boycotted goods back to Britain. Editor Peter Timothy of the Gazette thereupon exultantly listed among the unacceptable goods sailing back to Britain one William Henry Drayton, Esquire. The Charleston General Committee, enlivened as it was by mechanics and planters, vigorously enforced the boycott, aided by the alert Merchants Committee of Inspection. Slaves imported by British traders were promptly sent back. Indeed, so effective was the boycott that total English imports in both Carolinas fell from over 305,000 pounds in 1769 to slightly over 145,000 pounds in 1770. Particularly significant was the non-importation movement in Boston, for here the struggle for the boycott coincided with Boston's necessarily more acute conflict with the Customs Board and with the British Army. The first town to organize the boycott, Boston had to face the hostility of the British Customs officials and troops. They also had to face the effective organized opposition of John Mine, the Scottish publisher of the new newspaper, the Boston Chronicle. The Chronicle was not only the most typographically advanced paper in the country, it was also the only one to advance from weekly to semi-weekly publication. The Chronicle had recently begun as a newspaper above partisan stands in the political fray, but the Customs Board shrewdly saw an excellent opportunity for a propaganda coup and secretly set about subsidizing Mines' paper. Mine profited handsomely from the subsidy of being the stationer to the customs board, and after a year his stationery, or rather his vitriolic championing of the Tory cause, was so appreciated that the board made him its sole supplier. 
Mine also had clandestine help in writing his material from William Birch of the Customs Board and from the richly hated Customs Officer, Samuel Waterhouse, whom John Adams denounced as the most notorious scribbler and libeler in the service of the conspirators against the liberties of America. Yet mine jealously maintained in public that he was completely unbiased and not connected with the government. The major confrontation between mine and the liberals began in the spring of 1769. On May 8, the Boston Town Meeting praised the bulk of the merchants for abiding by the non-importation agreement. In the next few weeks, the Committee of Merchants of Boston, headed by John Hancock, helped to distribute thousands of handbills, urging a boycott of the few merchants who had not complied. The list included three relatives, two sons and a nephew, of the leading Tory Thomas Hutchinson, lieutenant governor of the province. Another nephew of Hutchinson, later added to the list, quickly recanted his position. To tighten enforcement, the Boston merchants in late July appointed a committee to inspect any vessels from Great Britain with goods condemned by the agreement and to publish the names of violators. Another committee circulated a pledge among Boston inhabitants to boycott any merchant so publicized in the handbills as violators. Governor Hutchinson was outraged by the effectiveness of these measures He was particularly outraged by such regular and vital functions being conducted by purely private, non-governmental bodies. In short, by non-state, revolutionary institutions springing up directly from among the people. So effective were the committees that in early August, most of the merchants named in the original handbills hastened to recant and to promise to abide by the agreement. Pressing their advantage, the Boston Committee of Merchants in mid-August condemned the remaining recalcitrants as enemies to the Constitution of their country and urged their boycott. The list now included John Mine, who stepped up his attacks to a level of continuousness. One unfair and misleading charge said that the signing merchants themselves, including the eminent Hancock, were secret violators of the non-importation agreement. Anguished and lengthy denials by the victims of Mines' smear attacks did not at all deter him from compiling his charges into a large book, which was then widely distributed by eager customs officials throughout the colonies. Mines' shrewd aim was to split the libertarian movement and to sow distrust of the Boston leaders in the other provinces. John Mines' widely disseminated libel had a chilling effect in the colonies and gravely weakened the zeal of the non-importation movement even among the radical cadres in New York, Newport, and Philadelphia. Mines' campaign also emboldened the non-signing merchants and heartened Hutchinson's consistent attempts to induce Parliament to outlaw boycott agreements. The Liberals reacted by stepping up their pressure campaign. The Boston Town Meeting in early October condemned the seven recalcitrant merchants 
and resolved to enter their names on the town records so that posterity may know who those persons were that preferred their little private advantages to the common interest of all the colonies. The merchants, backed perhaps by hints of destruction of the recalcitrant's property, then forced the sons and nephews of Hutchinson into line. Now there remained only three merchants, including mine, whose names were advertised as those who audaciously continued to counteract the united sentiments of the body of merchants throughout North America. Of these, of course, the most hated was John Mine. The Free American Fire Company expelled Mine from membership, and the seniors of Harvard College resolved never again to have dealings with him. Finally, harsher measures were taken, and his property was defaced and his person threatened. Mine, it should be noted, was the inevitable focus of a growing climate of violence in Boston. In the first place, Mine had never been forgiven for the brutal and sudden clubbing of John Gill, a co-editor of the Boston Gazette a year and a half earlier, an attack that Sam Adams and James Otis denounced as a Spaniard-like attempt on a free press. A far more precipitating event was a brutal crime that stunned the whole town of Boston. The Liberals' popular leader, James Otis, had denounced the Customs Board commissioners in the Gazette of September 4, 1769, for maligning the Liberals as rebels and traitors. The next night, in brutal retaliation, John Robinson, one of the commissioners who had been so cordially hated a few years earlier in Rhode Island, set upon Otis with a gang of toughs and beat him unmercifully. From this assault, Otis never recovered, having been rendered permanently insane. Boston's beloved leader had fallen martyr to Tory violence. To what the aggrieved Sam Adams and the Gazette charged was an intended and nearly executed assassination. The people of Boston were ready to retaliate. And so, on October 28, a street crowd gathered against Mine and his co-editor John Fleming. The frightened Mine shot into the crowd, wounding an innocent bystander. Some angry citizens swore out a warrant against Mine for having put innocent people in bodily fear. Mine fled for his life to his spiritual home on a British vessel and thence to England, where the grateful King George awarded Mine a handsome pension for his diligent services. The hated Tory Mine had finally been routed, but his venomous work went on, his faithful ally, Fleming, continued to publish the Chronicle and to publish and distribute updated editions of his and mine's compendium of charges against the non-importing merchants of Boston. Finally, however, mine's heavy debts and the dwindling of subscriptions and advertisements caught up with the enterprise. John Hancock was able triumphantly to take possession of the paper in behalf of Mine's creditors. By late June 1770, the voice of the most dangerous Tory organ in America, the Boston Chronicle, 
had finally been stilled. Volume 3, Chapter 45 The Boston Massacre The Boston non-import movement, however, still faced grave problems. The original Boston agreement was scheduled to expire at the beginning of 1770, but in mid-October, the merchants had joined their brethren in other colonies by continuing the agreement until repeal of the Townsend Acts. Many of the reluctant merchants grew restive at this turn of events, and at the turn of the year, eight began to bolt the agreement. A mass meeting of non-importing merchants began in mid-January to sit in continuing session, the better to put pressure on truants. The eight offenders were unanimously condemned by the more than a thousand persons present, as having forfeited all confidence of their fellow men. The whole crowd then quietly visited each delinquent in turn, but four still refused to yield. By January 23, the merchants voted to withhold from the stubborn four not only all commercial dealings, but every act and office of common civility. George Hutchinson seized the occasion of the meeting to precipitate a test of strength with the merchants. He sent a message to the meeting denouncing it as illegal and its actions as terroristic. He ordered them to disperse and ban all such unlawful assemblies for the future. Later, Hutchinson was able to induce the council to approve his actions by a slim majority. The merchants, however, continued undaunted as before, and the justices of the peace refused to act against them. It is important here to distinguish between two types of violence. Violence committed by the people against their oppressors or the allies of their oppressors, for example, the Stamp Act riots against Hutchinson, the intimidation of John Mine, and the violence used by the oppressors against the people or their leaders. For instance, the assault on Otis, the massacre of St. George's Fields. The difference is not simply a question of which side one may favor. The former is the eruption of the people in indignation or rebellion against that minority that has arms of the state apparatus concentrated in its hands. This use of violence is a casting off of the unwanted rule by violence of a ruling clique. On the other hand, violence against the people by the invariably better armed ruling clique is a panicky attempt to stem the rising tide of indignation by the people and to use the state's means of violence to yoke its unwanted rule even more burdensomely to the neck of society. Violence by a rebellious populace is an attempt to overthrow the camouflaged everyday violence of rule by the state over the people. Open violence by the state is an attempt to use extra measures to sit on the shaky lid. The former violence is therefore in essence defensive whereas the latter is offensive or aggressive beyond the everyday norm. Violence against individuals is also very different in the two cases. 
Violence against state officials is an attempt by rebellious people to cast off their rule. Violence against individual leaders of the people, Otis for instance, reveals the unending tendency of oppressors to think of a revolutionary movement as being not a genuine mass movement based on real grievances, but a frenzied mob whipped up by a few radical and obstreperous demagogues. Violence against customs officials was an inherent part of the revolt against tyranny. The assault on Otis not only was purely vindictive, but also reflected the tyrannical Tory error of shifting blame from mass grievances to supposedly diabolical leaders who were seducing a people otherwise happy and content with their rulers and their lot. This error, of course, is a highly convenient one for the rulers to make, for it allows them to state that the hearts of a seemingly rebellious people really belong to their masters. Violence had been building up in Boston since the arrival of the British troops in late 1768. Boston had to contend with troops and customs commissioners as well as with reluctant merchants. The liberals had not succeeded in mounting resistance to the landing of the troops, but once there, they waged an unremitting campaign for the liberation of Boston. Sam Adams and James Otis led a campaign of persistent and indefatigable agitation and struggle. Particularly significant was the widening of the campaign beyond the weekly readership of the Boston Gazette. The campaign was superbly planned. An inner group of radical leaders wrote a daily account of the pettiness and brutality committed by the troops upon the people of Boston, and each week a record was sent to New York City to John Holt, libertarian editor of the New York Journal. Holt published these items as the Journal of Occurrences or Journal of the Times. He then distributed the journal widely throughout the colonies. It was reprinted in numerous newspapers from Massachusetts to Georgia. Authors of the journal included Sam Adams, William Cooper, Boston town clerk and brother of the libertarian clergyman, the Reverend Samuel Cooper, and the radical counselor, James Bowden, a wealthy merchant of Boston. During the summer of 1769, two of the four British regiments were removed and Thomas Hutchinson replaced Bernard as governor. But the lessened power of the troops did not endear them more. Furthermore, the rumor spread that England planned to alter the precious Massachusetts Constitution. The Boston town meeting again insisted on the repeal of the Townsend and other duties, as well as the recall of the customs commissioners and troops. The popular radical leaders continued their pressure. Numerous festivals, such as on the anniversary of the Great Stamp Act riots, were promoted by Adams, Otis, and the Sons of Liberty to rally the people for liberty against its enemies. At such gala events, toasts were drunk to commemorate the hallowed numbers 45 and 92, and calls were issued for strong halters, firm blocks, and sharp axes to all such as deserve them. Agitation against the troops was supplemented by sterner measures. The people of Boston made it clear to the troops 
that they were unwelcome there. Occasionally, isolated soldiers were beaten up on the streets by groups of Bostonians. Soldiers aggressing against citizens were promptly hauled into court. As a result of the persistence and fortitude of the Bostonians, the British troops began to grow ineffectual in enforcing the trade acts. For fear of popular upheaval, the civil authorities grew wary in calling on troops for their support. Thus, in late October 1769, Governor Hutchinson wanted to use troops against a mob that had seized a hated customs informer, but was warned off by the advice of the council, sheriff, and justices of the peace. Also in late October, a crowd attacked a British troop with sticks and stones and forced it to disperse. The agitated Colonel William Dalyrimple, commander of the troops, blustered that this incident was but a prelude and that never was the popular insolence at such a pitch. Non-importation, British troops, liberal agitation, mounting climate of violence, increasing edginess and ineffectuality of the soldiers all culminated and came fatefully to a head in early 1770. The culminating crisis unsurprisingly arose from the pressuring of the four mercantile holdouts against non-importation. John Taylor, Theophilus Lilly, William Jackson, and Nathaniel Rogers, nephew of Governor Hutchinson. On February 22nd, some schoolboys led a crowd in placing an effigy of the four importers at the door of Theophilus Lilly. Seeing this, the infamous informer, Ebenezer Richardson, denounced the boys and tried to destroy the effigy. The appearance of the reviled customs informer was just what was needed to inflame the crowd, which pursued him to his house, crying, Informer! Informer! There the boys threw rocks at his house, whereupon the panicky Tory Richardson fired repeatedly into the crowd, killing 11-year-old Christopher Snyder and wounding the 11-year-old son of Captain John Gore. The effect of this massacre of the children on Boston public opinion can readily be imagined. Richardson himself barely escaped being hanged on the spot. The four miscreant importers either left town or mounted an armed guard. The funeral procession for little Christopher Snyder, organized by the Sons of Liberty, was two miles long, perhaps the largest ever gathered in America. The huge funeral, significantly enough, was patterned after the Wilkite funeral in England for the innocent victim of the massacre of St. George's Fields. To the Boston liberals, the murder of young Snyder recalled the tragic assault upon Otis, the object of the fury of the cursed cabal. But Snyder was the first whose life has been a victim to the cruelty and rage of oppressors. The Boston Gazette thundered that the blood of young Allen, the victim at St. George's Fields, may be covered in Britain, but a thorough inquisition would be made in America for that of young Snyder which crieth for vengeance like the blood of the righteous Abel. 
The killing of young Snyder would not be the final incident. In less than two weeks, on March 2nd and 3rd, clashes occurred between Bostonians and the troops. British complaints were to draw retorts by the Massachusetts Council that the evident solution was to withdraw the troops. For their part, the populace believed the customs commissioners the bosses of Richardson to be implicated in the child murder and were indignant at the soldiers being used to guard the hated commissioners at the custom house. The final crisis arrived on the night of March 5. The troops began the day by printing an insulting handbill. A small riot was then precipitated by a fist fight between a soldier and a rope walk worker. There had been bad blood between rope-walk laborers and the troops before. As night fell, a soldier struck. With his musket, a young apprentice, who had been denouncing British officers and rousing ugly memories of the child killing of two weeks before. A crowd now gathered before the barracks of the 14th Regiment and pelted the sentries with snowballs. Meanwhile, the meeting bell was rung and a crowd gathered at the Custom House on King Street, where the main body of troops was stationed. Someone recognized the soldier who had assaulted the young apprentice, a sentry at the Custom House, and the crowd attacked him with sticks of broken ice and snowballs. At this critical juncture, the customs officials at the custom house called for the main guard headed by a Captain Thomas Preston to come to the rescue of the honor of the sentry, the army, and the commissioners who had brought the troops to Boston in the first place. Captain Preston and his guard of seven men stalked through the crowd, pricking the people with fixed bayonets. The crowd pressed in courageously on the bayonets, and when the gun of one soldier was knocked to the ground, the soldiers emptied their muskets into the crowd. Joining in the shooting were customs officials, who fired upon the crowd from the privileged sanctuary of the upper floor of the custom house. Five men fell dead or dying from that murderous volley and six other Bostonians were wounded. The incident swiftly became known far and wide as the Boston Massacre. The first to fall dead was Crispus Attox, a tall Negro sailor who had been one of the most zealous front fighters in the Sons of Liberty. The others killed were a sailor, a rope maker, and two young apprentices. At the sound of firing, the townsmen fell back, but soon advanced again to take away their dead and wounded. The panicky soldiers got ready to fire again, but Captain Preston struck their guns out of position. Soon the Boston crowd began to form in earnest, and the streets rang with the cry of, To arms! To arms! Turn out with your guns! Nearly five hundred people assembled, swearing to kill every British soldier who had fired upon the people. Preston and his men thereupon retreated rapidly to the safety of the guardhouse. This was it. The people of Boston and of Massachusetts had had enough. The Boston Massacre was the final straw that sent this most sensitive spot in the American colonies 
once again to the brink of revolution. The next day, an extraordinarily large town meeting was held in Boston. Challenged by the rousing speech of Sam Adams, the meeting unanimously demanded the immediate withdrawal of British troops from Boston. Adams and Hancock were selected to head a town committee to present the demands before Hutchinson and the council. The governor's offer to withdraw one of the two regiments was scornfully spurned. Unless there was total evacuation, warned Adams, the troops would be destroyed. Fifteen thousand armed citizens, thundered Adams, were ready and eager to pour into Boston to eliminate the hated soldiery. When Adams made these threats, he noticed that Hutchinson trembled and grew pale, and he enjoyed the sight. The council unanimously advised surrender and warned Hutchinson that all New England would soon rise in arms against the troops and that the night which was coming on would be the most terrible that was ever seen in America. Before night fell, Hutchinson yielded and promised speedy and complete evacuation of the troops. Soon the soldiery left to the hooting of the crowd for the safety of Castle William. Sam Adams' threats were not idle ones. Forty thousand New Englanders were ready to march for the liberation of Boston. Ten thousand were set to march from Portsmouth, New Hampshire alone, led by the Portsmouth Sons of Liberty, who proclaimed that the bloody work in Boston calls loud for vengeance. The Liberty Boys of Salem, Massachusetts, promised thousands of yeomen from Essex County to destroy a licentious and bloodthirsty soldiery. Indeed, armed men had already begun to march on Boston until stopped by Bostonians with the word that the crisis was over. Expulsion of the troops accomplished the first objective of the popular forces. The next goal was to bring those responsible for the massacre to the bar of justice. As early as March 6, Captain Preston and his men were arrested by the civil authorities of Boston and indicted for murder. The Crown authorities dragged their feet, however. The royally appointed Superior Court judges delayed the trial for as long as they could, actually until October. The prosecution was deliberately weak and permitted a jury of which no member came from the town of Boston. Preston and most of the soldiers were acquitted. Two of the soldiers were convicted of manslaughter, but their punishment was absurdly limited to being branded on the hand. The historian Oliver Dickerson has brought out that one of the reasons for acquittal of the soldiers was the angle of the bullets killing Attucks and others, indicating a firing from the upper story of the custom house, that is, by customs officials. The people were understandably resentful of the acquittal and the light sentences. Was a slight brand on the hand to be the full payment made for five murders? The judges were bitterly reviled, and one eager young radical, the son of a chancellor, posted a notice urging assassination of the judges. Sam Adams, as Vindex in the Gazette, attacked the verdict 
and spread the liberal account of the massacre far and wide. Adams made March 5 an annual observance to keep fresh in the minds of the people the bloody work of the butchers of King Street. The obstruction by the judges were used by Adams to show that it was futile for the people to look to the royally appointed courts for redress of their grievances. Even the juries were unreliable. Only an armed people's militia could be relied upon to deal successfully with the enemy, the British redcoats. With rumors flying of new British landings to punish Boston's uprising, the Sons of Liberty trained militia and resolved to fight and resist any future landing. Innocence is no longer safe, declared Adams in the Boston Gazette. We are now obliged to appeal to God and to our arms for defense. Despite the dereliction of the judges in the massacre case, popular pressure did force them to proceed with the trial of the child killer Ebenezer Richardson. Richardson was tried and convicted of murder, but pardoned by the Crown and allowed by the authorities to flee the country. Though they did not manage to bring the soldiers to justice, the popular forces were able to drive the hated customs commissioners as well as the troops out of Boston. John Robinson, the assaulter of Otis, fled to England and secured the pardon of Richardson, as well as a handsome reward by the Crown for the patriotic work of the judges in seeing that the soldiers and customs officials escaped punishment. The Boston liberals still faced the task of enforcing non-importation and increased pressure was now put on the few recalcitrant merchants. The mob finally forced Nathaniel Rogers to flee Boston. The Sons of Liberty sent a message to their brethren in New York to be ready for him, and the New York Sons prepared a tarring and feathering party for Rogers. Driven from New York, too, and having learned a rough lesson, Rogers returned to Boston in May to sue fruitlessly for restoration to good standing. The Boston Town Meeting also redoubled its efforts to help the merchants agitate for compliance with the agreement. The result of the merchants' non-importation campaign was to lower imports from Britain into Boston from 430,000 pounds in 1768 to less than 225,000 pounds the following year. Overall, in the American colonies, Imports from Great Britain fell substantially from 2.15 million pounds in 1768 to 1.33 million pounds in 1769. The revolutionary temper of the people of Boston in the months after the Boston Massacre may be gauged by the instructions given on May 15 by the Boston town meeting to its representatives in the general court. The town attacked Britain's deep-laid and desperate plan of imperial despotism for the extinction of all civil liberty in America. The town meeting also challenged any pretended right or power of any exterior authority to limit any American constitutional or natural rights or liberties. To an earlier Boston challenge to the right of Parliament to regulate any colony by statute, it now added the far-reaching rejection of the power of the Crown 
to instruct the colonial governors. To these, Hutchinson reacted in horror, believing they were designs to bring about a revolution and to attain to independency. Volume 3, Chapter 46 Conflict in New York Boston was not the only place where armed conflict exploded between the citizens and British troops. We remember that the New York Assembly had been forced by British threats to comply with the British Mutiny Act and therefore voted to supply British troops in New York in June 1767. At the end of 1768, the Assembly, under pressure from the Sons of Liberty and coming under control of the radical liberals, resumed its resistance and bravely refused to vote for the supplies during 1769. Finally, the Assembly yielded in mid-December 1769 by a thin majority. The agitation of the people, aggravated by the economic depression of the day, was led by the Sons of Liberty. Spearheading the attack was the merchant Alexander McDougall, one of the radical leaders of the Sons of Liberty of New York. MacDougall, in the pamphlet To the Betrayed Inhabitants of New York, attacked the Assembly's capitulation and urged imitation of the deeds of the brave Bostonians. At a popular meeting of 1,400 people, led by John Lamb of the Sons of Liberty, a committee of sons was appointed to pressure the Assembly. The assembly lashed back at the MacDougall broadside as a false, seditious, and infamous libel and called for the author's arrest. Lamb and Benjamin Prince, a friend of MacDougall's, were accused of authoring libel, but the assembly could find no evidence against them. In mid-January 1770, resentment against the British soldiery came to a head. Since 1766, the British troops in New York had repeatedly cut down the Liberty Pole, which had been built by the Sons of Liberty to commemorate repeal of the Stamp Act. One of the grievances against the British soldiers was that they offered themselves as cheap civilian labor, thus undercutting the regular laborers. This was a major reason for the clashes between rope-walk laborers and soldiers who sometimes worked as civilians there at low rates in the days before the Boston Massacre. In New York, the Sons of Liberty, on January 16, issued an attack on those who employed British soldiers and called a meeting at the Liberty Pole. The soldiers promptly cut down the pole and contemptuously deposited the pieces at the doors of the Sons of Liberty. The enraged sons held a mass beating of 3,000 people who protested the destruction of the Liberty Pole and the employment of British troops in laboring work. In retaliation, the British troops issued a handbill denouncing the Sons of Liberty as dangerous enemies of the country. As some soldiers tried to post the leaflet on January 19, they were seized by Isaac Sears, and a group of Liberty boys and taken to the mayor's office. An attempt by the British to effect a rescue led to a clash between the troops wielding bayonets and the crowd armed only with chains and sticks. Several citizens were wounded at this, the Battle of Golden Hill. A clash with occupying troops thus antedated Boston's by nearly two months, 
but the consequences were considerably different. New York was ruled not by popular leadership of radical liberals, but by factions of a conservative, land-based oligarchy. In New York, the Sons of Liberty were not the vanguard of a dominant movement, but a radical group trying to work its way into position to crack open an oligarchic power structure. The armed clash, instead of cementing libertarian control here, intensified a conservative backlash and made the conservatives determined to crush the Sons of Liberty. Broadsides appeared, supporting the granting of money to the British troops and ridiculing the Liberty Boys, MacDougall being attacked as an Irish upstart. His authorship of the seditious pamphlet, criticizing the assembly having been betrayed by an informer. Alexander MacDougall was arrested by the assembly during February and turned over to the common law courts to be indicted for seditious libel. Consciously emulating the courage and career of John Wilkes, MacDougall remained in jail rather than post bail and was visited by adoring crowds and hailed as the Wilkes of America. The radicals even used the talismanic Wilkite number 45. To the New York conservatives, MacDougall was indeed a Wilkes who sought to trample down all legal authority and shake the government to the foundation. He was defended by John Moore and Scott, as well as by the Liberty Boys. But with the prosecution's major witness, the informer, dying, the government decided not to press the case further. MacDougall was released from prison to great popular rejoicing. His freedom was short-lived. At the end of the year, MacDougall, on the same charge, was hauled before the vindictive assembly, acting by its own authority. First, the assembly tried to force MacDougall to testify against himself. When he refused, it threatened him with torture to force him to testify. Still refusing, MacDougall was asked to write out his reasons for doing so. Typically, the assembly decided that this statement contained fresh libels in contempt of the assembly and demanded that he beg its pardon. When MacDougall still refused, the assembly sentenced him to indefinite imprisonment for high contempt and ordered the sheriff, as in the Smith-Moore case in Pennsylvania in the 1750s, to disregard any writ of habeas corpus. Only five members of the assembly voted against this brutal suppression of freedom of criticism by a government body that acted as its own complainant, judge and jury. MacDougall was finally released at the end of the assembly session in April 1771, with the government dropping all charges against him. Volume 3, Chapter 47 Wilkes and America It was no accident that Alexander MacDougall tried to emulate Wilkes. Wilkes had indeed been the hero and the inspiration of the libertarian movement on both sides of the Atlantic. This was particularly true in the period since his incarceration in June 1768, an imprisonment which continued until the spring of 1770. During his term in jail, Wilkes's supporters ran him successfully four times for Parliament in Middlesex, but four times he was denied his seat by Parliament itself. After the third rebuff, 
A mob surrounded the royal palace shouting, Wilkes and no king, and was dispersed by troops. The connections between Wilkes and the American liberal movement enhanced each other's knowledge of events in the other land. We have seen that the Boston Sons of Liberty struck up an extensive correspondence with Wilkes in prison. On October 5, 1768, the Boston Sons wrote admiringly to Wilkes that he was a martyr to universal liberty. Among the prominent Bostonians who wrote to Wilkes were Dr. Benjamin Church, Jr., John Adams, Sam Adams, Dr. Thomas Young, Joseph Warren, William Palfrey, and Josiah Quincy, Jr. One Bostonian reported that he had dined with Wilkes in jail and that they both had toasted to the king, to liberty, the farmer, John Dickinson, and James Otis Esquire of Boston. The closest connection between Wilkes and the American liberals was Arthur Lee, a Virginian living in London. Keeping in close touch with the Wilkite movement, through Lee were such leading Americans as John Dickinson and Arthur's brother, Richard Henry Lee. Arthur Lee was responsible for a clause in the Wilkite Middlesex petition denouncing the oppression of the colonies by Great Britain. Others who served as a liaison between Wilkes and the American libertarians were George Haley, Wilkes's brother-in-law, who was the English commercial agent for John Hancock and William Palfrey, and Lord Sheriffs William Lee and Stephen Sayre. American-born merchants who were mercantile partners of a prominent Bostonian. Wilkes then added oppression of the colonies to the catalog of oppressions for which he habitually denounced the British government. In February 1769, the Boston Sons wrote to Wilkes that the fate of Wilkes and America must stand or fall together. Wilkes replied at the end of March that Britain had imposed an Asiatic despotism on Boston by sending in troops, and he pointed to a parallel between the actions of the soldiery in Boston and those in London. Unlike the more timorous Whigs, the Wilkite radicals attacked the Declaratory Act and favored far more liberty for the colonies. As the Wilkite leader, the Reverend John Horn, eloquently declared, When the people of America are enslaved, we cannot be free, and they can never be enslaved whilst we continue free. We are stones of one arch and must stand or fall together. On February 20, 1769, the supporters of Wilkes formed the Society of the Supporters of the Bill of Rights to raise funds to finance the Wilkite cause. Many prominent American liberals, including Samuel and John Adams, were members of this society. Organizing a mass petition campaign to protest Wilkes's repeated expulsion from his rightfully won seat, the Wilkites went on to denounce the entire Parliament as unrepresentative and therefore corrupt, and this charge helped to radicalize opinion in America. The petition campaign, organized by the Society of the Supporters of the Bill of Rights, swept not only London, Westminster, and Middlesex, but also Essex, Surrey, Kent, and the West Country, including Devon, Cornwall, and the town of Bristol. 
the American Henry Kruger, head of the Independent Society of Bristol, organized a petition in mid-July, signed by half of the 5,000 eligible voters of Bristol, protesting both the cruelties to Wilkes and the unpolitic and unconstitutional taxations and regulations on Your Majesty's colonies. Protest against oppression of the American colonies was also made by the Middlesex and London petitions. Most of the petitions were brief and did not mention America, but nonetheless drew the hearty support of the colonists. In close association with the Wilkite Society, the Whigs, including Rockingham, Seville, Dowdswell, and Edmund Burke, successfully organized petitions in the northern and western counties of England. All in all, 60,000 people, over one quarter of the voters of England, signed the Wilkite petitions, a true mass movement. Despite frantic attempts, the government was only able to organize counter-petitions in support of a hard line toward Wilkes and the Americans from the two controlled universities, four counties and two cities. The enthusiasm of Americans for Wilkes and his cause was indeed enormous. This rhapsodic credo of one American pamphlet, widely circulated in Boston in 1769, was typical. I believe in Wilkes, the firm patriot, maker of number 45, who was born for our good, suffered under arbitrary power, was banished and imprisoned. He ascended into purgatory and returned some time after. I believe in the spirit of his abilities that they will prove to the good of our country in the resurrection of liberty and the life of universal freedom forever. Amen. The Americans were wont to compare Wilkes to their 17th century libertarian heroes Milton and Sidney, and their 17th century republican view was enlivened by the resurgence in Britain of such embodiments of tyranny as standing armies, arbitrary judicial procedures, such as general warrants, and burdensome taxation. This harking back to the highly relevant 17th century struggles was fueled by the publication of the multi-volume History of England by the noted libertarian Catherine Macaulay. The work of Mrs. Macaulay, a correspondent of James Otis and an admirer of Dickinson, was well known and eagerly read in America, as was Wilkes's own published introduction to his projected history of England at the turn of the 18th century. Mrs. Macaulay was the sister of the prominent London Wilkite alderman John Sawbridge. As 1769 wore on, the identification of American radicals with Wilkes intensified as the network of interwoven grievances expanded in Britain and in America. The Boston merchant William Palfrey wrote Wilkes in the fall of 1769 of the unremitted ardor of the Sons of Liberty for his cause and their sympathy in the distress brought by arbitrary ministers upon Great Britain and her dependencies. The petition movement of late 1769 drew great support in America. The South Carolina House showed its solidarity with the Wilkite cause in December 
by sending to the Society of the Supporters of the Bill of Rights 1,500 pounds sterling in behalf of the just and constitutional rights and liberties of the people of Great Britain and America. A group of Maryland liberals sent Wilkes a symbolic 45 hogsheads of tobacco, and a similar action took place in Virginia. These fellow feeling deepened among the Wilkites, too. The London public advertiser argued cogently that the cause of liberty in England and America is one common cause, because the attacks on both have been made by the same set of men with the same views and with the same illegal violence. Furthermore, the Wilkites began to make use of American arguments against Parliament, and many Middlesex freeholders refused to pay their taxes on the ground that since their elected representative, John Wilkes, was excluded from Parliament, they had not consented to the taxes. The Wilkites also endorsed and spurred the American non-importation movement, aided by the continuing encouragement given to American non-importation, in the Virginia press by author Lee. The Americans were particularly interested in the petitions of Middlesex and London, which championed the colonial cause, and which also came from the heart of English radicalism and from the city with which the American liberals most closely identified. King George's brusque dismissal of the London petitions in March 1770 had a sharp, and chilling impact on opinion in America. Until then, the king had always been deemed sacrosanct, and only his ministers or politicians in Parliament were held blameworthy for the regime of oppression. Now, for the first time, the king himself began to be a butt of libertarian attack in America. The great radical organs, the Boston Gazette, and Peter Timothy's South Carolina Gazette, were particular harbingers of this new point of view. The South Carolina radicals were certainly the leaders of this new and vital turn. Wilkesism had particularly flourished in South Carolina. As we have seen, only the South Carolina Assembly voted funds for the Wilkite cause. Christopher Gadsden had formed an active Wilkes Club, consisting largely of Charleston artisans, and had led the successful Wilkes Fund Drive. The Wilkes Fund movement was led by some of the most prominent men in the province, large planters Thomas Lynch and Thomas Ferguson's, wealthy lawyers Peter Manigo, James Parson, and John Rutledge, and the merchant Benjamin Dart. Of the prominent South Carolinians, only William Henry Drayton, and the timorous Henry Lawrence opposed the Wilkes appropriation. South Carolina's council and governor as well as the crown were indignant at the assembly's courageous action and denied the right of the assembly to appropriate money without their consent. The assembly retorted, proclaiming its full power as the representative body to appropriate money in the province. The Assembly also pointedly requested that the Council be a body of independent men, rather than one packed with British placemen. On April 18, 1770, 
John Wilkes was finally released from prison to take up his duties as alderman of the City of London. The release was celebrated throughout the colonies, from Boston to Charleston. But American rejoicing in Wilkite's successes was not to last long. The road of struggle against the imperial, feudal, and oligarchic structure of Great Britain was difficult enough in the best of circumstances, and essential to that struggle was unity within the radical camp. But in the autumn and winter of 1770, a tragic and irreparable split occurred deep within the leadership and cadres of the radical movement. The Wilkite organization, the Society of the Supporters of the Bill of Rights, split wide open with John Wilkes on one side and Parson John Horn and John Sawbridge on the other. Historians have attributed the split to personal frictions and petty quarrels over the disposition of Wilkite funds. But one important and neglected factor in the split was indeed of vital ideological significance. Spain had suffered British intrusion into the Falkland Islands off the tip of the southwest coast of South America since Pitt's aggressive occupation four years earlier. Now, in June 1770, Spain moved to reoccupy the Falklands. Britain made ready for war with Spain, egged on by the warmongering cries of Chatham and Shelburne, both out of power. Chatham had always yearned for total victory over France and Spain, and now he saw another chance. Chatham denounced any negotiations with the Spaniards as appeasement of an inferior and untrustworthy race. He called for immediate war against France to achieve the total triumph that his, Chatham's, enemies had denied to England seven years earlier. Since England, to Chatham, had the God-given right to rule all the islands of the world, the Spanish occupation of the remote Falklands became a dagger poised at the heart of English hegemony. No concession to Spain, however minute, was tolerable. Such would destroy the edifice of the British Empire by disgraceful expedients to avoid an ultimately unavoidable final conflict. To maintain Chatham's grandiose claims, England was supposedly duty-bound to build and support a navy larger than any other two world fleets combined. Chatham's and Shelbourne's war hysteria had particularly unfortunate effects on the radical movement. All of his political life, Chatham's erratic, charismatic, and ultra-imperialist role confused and weakened the liberal and radical forces in England. When in opposition, and only then, Chatham characteristically made libertarian noises. And the liberals felt that they could not ignore an opposition alliance against the government with a man as popular and influential as Pitt. Since the autumn of 1768, when Pitt left the cabinet, Chatham had strengthened his ties with the London radicals, and now he was in a position to split their movement. Specifically, in the autumn of 1770, the government, under the pressure of the war party, frantically began to build up its navy, and hence to press gang sailors for its ships. 
John Wilkes, as an alderman of London, refused to sanction the use of press warrants in London and obstructed Navy impressment as an illegal action making slaves of free men. Thus, in a clash between liberty and the supposed requirements of empire and state, John Wilkes chose liberty. Not only did many other London magistrates follow Wilkes in refusing to honor press warrants, but he led the London Common Council in calling for the prosecution of any magistrates or constables who issued or executed such warrants for impressment. The new Lord Mayor of London, Brass Crosby, a Wilkite selected with the help of John Wilkes, refused to accept press warrants and thus prevented press ganging within the city of London. To Chatham, all of this was treason. Wilkes and the radicals, he declared, were laboring to cut off the right hand of the community and to shake the public safety and should be tried before the House of Commons. It is surely no coincidence that in the split that then developed within the radical movement, the radical leaders associated with Chatham and Shelburne joined the anti-Wilkes camp, while Rockingham and the Whigs, who opposed the war agitation, sided with Wilkes. The government finally reached a settlement with Spain in early 1771, restoring the English port in the Falklands. But soon afterward, England quietly withdrew from the port, therewith indicating a secret yielding to the Spanish claim. Wilkes, however, continued his anti-militarist stand and warned, upon becoming Sheriff of London in late 1771, that he would no longer allow the army to interfere in civil functions in London. The sharp decline in the Wilkite movement in the years after 1770, as well as the strength of Tory rule in Great Britain, served greatly to disillusion American liberals about the possibility of radical success in the home country. From now on, they realized that Americans would have to rely principally on themselves. If the libertarian ideals of most Americans and of the submerged masses in England were ever to be realized, that realization would have to be primarily in America. By late 1771, Sam Adams was writing author Lee that brute force seemed to have made the English people afraid to compel redress of their grievances, and that, therefore, with no great expectation of some happy event from your side of the water, America herself, under God, must finally work out her own salvation. Volume 3, Chapter 48, Partial Repeal of the Townsend Duties We have seen that the British colonial policy took a sharp turn to the right when the cabinet was reshuffled in the autumn of 1767 upon the death of Charles Townsend. The arch-imperialist Bedford faction strengthened its post in the cabinet, and the Tories North and Hillsborough assumed critical positions in the ministry. Domination by the Tory right was confirmed and intensified with the departure of the erratic centrist Chatham, William Pitt, and Shelburne from the government in October 1768. The Bedfordites and other Tory factions now greatly consolidated their control under the nominal leadership of the weak Duke of Grafton.
the Whigs staunchly attempted to delve into the causes of the American disorders, but Lord North succeeded in focusing Parliament's attention on the resistance in Britain and on the supposed need to assert imperial power over the colonies. Hillsborough, North, and Bedford pushed through resolutions denouncing Boston, pledging Parliament's support to all measures needed to impose supremacy on the Americans and urging the transportation of James Otis and other American leaders to England to be tried for treason. Lord Hillsborough, furthermore, had bolder plans for crushing the Americans. They especially included imposing a royally appointed council on Massachusetts and cancellation of the Massachusetts Charter if its assembly should ever again question Parliament's absolute authority over the colonies. In addition, the Mutiny Act was to be strengthened to allow quartering of troops in private houses. The Tories were now in control. The only gain to the liberal opposition was the accession of the Chathamites, who always tended to be liberal when Chatham was out of power. In contrast, Grenville's opposition was characteristically to attack the government for weakness and appeasement when dealing with the Americans. In the cabinet, only the liberals Camden and Conway opposed the harsh plans of Lord Hillsborough. So extreme were Hillsborough's proposals, however, that even King George balked at imposing them. Political economic developments in Great Britain during early 1769 soon swung the ministry to decide on the repeal of the Townsend duties. There was, in the first place, the threatening Wilkite agitation and the mammoth Wilkite petition movement, joined in by the radicals, Whigs, and Chathamites, which challenged the government and which was at least partly linked with the American cause. Secondly, the war crisis with Spain and France over the Falkland Islands, coupled with troubles in unhappy Ireland, made the government anxious to find some peaceful solution to the problems in America. Beset by conflict at home and abroad, Britain was now anxious to secure her colonial flank. Third, British merchants and manufacturers were beginning to complain bitterly as a result of the success of the spreading non-importation boycott in America. Total American imports from Britain had fallen from over 2.15 million pounds in 1768 to under 1.35 million pounds the following year. All of this was a potent combination. The result was a decision by the Grafton Ministry in May 1769 to repeal all the Townsend taxes except the duty on tea. Repeal would be moved in the forthcoming 1770 session of Parliament. The crucial and fateful vote in the Cabinet was how far to go. The Liberals, led by Grafton, Camden, and Conway, advocated total repeal of the Townsend duties. The Tories, led by North, Hillsborough, and the Bedfordites, insisted on keeping the tax on tea, and they prevailed in the Cabinet by a one-vote majority. North's arguments were shrewd enough. 
The other goods taxed were products of British manufacture, so that the duties lowered the sales of British manufacturers and merchants, and also dangerously stimulated the emergence of competing manufacturers in the colonies. But tea was not of English manufacture, and certainly could not be grown in America. Furthermore, tea furnished by far the major part of the revenue from the towns and duties. North's arguments were also cunningly strategic. Retention of the tea tax would continue to assert Parliament's sovereign right to impose such taxation, and the removal of all the duties except that on tea would split the American resistance movement, weaken its resolve, and wreck the boycott without yielding the principal or the major Townsend tax. The policy would thus deprive the radical American leadership of its mass base. The tactlessness of the proposed repeal was accentuated by Hillsborough's letter to the colonial assemblies announcing the cabinet decision. Stress was laid on a provocative assertion of the power of Parliament rather than on a desire for conciliation with the colonies. When Parliament opened again in early January 1770, the debate over repeal became part and parcel of a determined liberal opposition mounted against the ministry. The opposition was also based on taking up the cause against Wilkes's expulsion from Parliament. The Whigs and the Chathamites launched the attack, and the ensuing polarization of opinion led to the resignation of the liberal-oriented cabinet members, beginning with Camden and ending with the Duke of Grafton, the Prime Minister himself. The determined opposition push failed and precipitated the backlash of a counter-revolution, with all the Tory forces in England banding together in a new unity born of fear for their entrenched positions against the American cause abroad, as well as against liberalism and radicalism at home. Lord North added the prime ministerial post to his own offices at the end of January, and this cemented Tory rule by coalescing the Tory factions. Unity was completed some months later by the death of Grenville, which permitted the old personal feud to end, and the Grenvilleite followers to join the cabinet. This outcome also served to discourage American faith in the English political outlook. On March 5, coincidentally the day of the Boston Massacre, Lord North moved the repeal of all the Townsend taxes except the tea tax. He scorned the idea of repealing the tea duty as appeasement of the colonies. America must fall at the feet of Britain before any further conciliation would be made. Parliament agreed to the repeal the same day, and final action was taken in mid-April. The Liberals, however, had not given up in their defense of Americans against Great Britain. The Whigs, led by Barlow, Tracothic, and especially Edmund Burke, moved to censure British colonial policy when news of the Boston Massacre arrived in Britain. Burke charged that American rebelliousness was brought about precisely because of British severity and intransigence. Burke's and Chatham's censure resolutions, however, failed by a wide margin, 
and provoked threats of impeachment or treason trials against Seville, Rockingham, Richmond, and other Whig leaders. During June and July 1770, the North Ministry consolidated its hard line against the colonies. The center of the British Navy in America was deliberately shifted from Halifax to Boston Harbor. The fort at Castle William was permanently garrisoned with British instead of American troops, although no troops were moved back into Boston itself. The Mutiny Act, however, was allowed to lapse without being renewed. Volume 3, Chapter 49 New York Breaks Non-Importation The Americans were now confronted with a fateful choice. Should they be courageous, cleave to principle, and honor solemn pledges by continuing their boycott of British imports until all the Townsend duties were removed, and perhaps the other Townsend acts as well? Or should they cave in to the fact of repeal of the minor duties? News of repeal came to the colonies in early May, although, of course, there were previous indications that the move was in the offing. First to react was the powerful multi-class, radically controlled General Committee of South Carolina. On April 25, the General Committee sent a circular letter to the other provinces urging every colony to strengthen its resolve and to maintain the general boycott until repeal of all the Townsend Acts, including the Customs Board and the Vice-Admiralty Courts. This general plea was repeated two months later. Most of the colonies, however, lacked the iron determination of South Carolina and became mired in indecision. First to break the united front of the colonies against imports were the merchants of Albany, who on May 10 decided to confine their boycott henceforth to tea alone. In a few weeks, learning that they were alone, the same merchants rescinded the change and resumed non-importation. The first breach had been healed. The next attempted breach came in Rhode Island a few days later, when the merchants of Newport and Providence ended their agreement and discharged their committees of inspection. Nearly the last to join the movement, and even then pressured by intercolonial boycotts, Rhode Island's merchants were eager to resume trade and to ignore the larger principles at stake. Newport proved especially eager to resume full trade. Rhode Island's action incensed the merchants and citizens of the other colonies, and these determined that if Rhode Island valued trade above all, its trade would suffer more from rescinding the boycott than from maintaining it. Within a week, mass meetings at Philadelphia and New York and a meeting of Boston merchants pledged an absolute boycott against the merchants of Rhode Island. Providence quickly rescinded its action and joined the boycott against the importers of Newport. Providence merchants were kept in line by its town meeting, which repeatedly voted overwhelmingly to continue the general boycott. By the end of June, ports in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey, and the Carolinas, as well as Chester, Wilmington, Newcastle, and Baltimore, had enthusiastically joined the boycott against Newport. 
Sloops from Newport were turned back from ports from one end of the coast to the other. Finally, under this pressure, Newport merchants on August 20 resumed non-importation and appointed a committee of inspection. The boycotts by other colonies were rescinded, but many were still reluctant to trade with Rhode Island and especially with Newport. Newport was the center of mercantile defections in the colonies, and the blame devolved principally upon the leading Jewish merchants of that city. Jewish violators in Newport were apparently more significant than were Tories. Of particular importance was Aaron Lopez, one of the wealthiest merchants in the colonies. As a non-cooperator in the boycott, Lopez received lavish flavors from the royal customs officials. His captains, for example, were exempted from swearing their cargoes, and when Lopez violated customs regulations, the officials looked the other way. The first permanent break in non-importation came in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, another latecomer to the boycott that needed colonial pressure. When it became known that Portsmouth merchants were merrily importing British goods, Boston merchants instituted a boycott in mid-June and were followed by Connecticut towns and even unanimously by the inhabitants of neighboring little Rye, New Hampshire. But pressure proved vain. A Boston radical visiting Portsmouth was driven out of town for fear of tar and feathers. The Portsmouth town meeting voted overwhelmingly against a boycott. Not Portsmouth, however, but the great port towns, especially Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, would be the decisive force for or against continuing the boycott movement. In Boston, the reaction was never in much doubt. The formidable Sam Adams saw clearly that the partial repeal was essentially a device to split and destroy the colonial resistance movement, and he urged continuing non-importation until all British taxes were removed and the Customs Board and Admiralty Courts eliminated, and even until the Sugar Act, the Declaratory Act, and the other oppressive measures since the Seven Years' War were removed. The tea tax was rejected not only on principle, but also as by far the major revenue earner of all the Townsend duties. The May elections in Boston returned nearly all of the radical leaders, and the Boston town meeting manfully denounced English attempts to destroy colonial liberty. It scoffed at any asserted prerogative of the king to violate natural or constitutional rights, or to impose his will upon the fundamental laws of the land. Some Boston merchants tried to abandon the boycott and restrict non-importation to tea only, but the town overwhelmingly refused to grant its approval. Governor Hutchinson, under instructions from Lord Hillsborough, tried to split the resistance movement during May by shifting the Massachusetts legislature from radical Boston to Cambridge, but in this attempt he failed, as town after town voted to support the boycott and the patriotic merchants of Boston. Hutchinson lamented that the resistance of the boycott was supported by the whole body of the people, as well as by the elected government officials. Thus, in Marblehead, 
Robert Jameson, a teacher, lost all his pupils for refusing to abide by the boycott, and his house was threatened late at night by mobs calling out with a loud voice to kill that dog, Jameson, a governor's man and a bastard of liberty. Hutchinson asked for a strengthened riot act to punish a mob that had tarred and feathered a customs officer at Gloucester. The assembly told the governor that he had better investigate the cause of the riots, grievances against oppression. Moreover, it incisively pointed out that far worse than isolated, uncoordinated acts of violence was violence committed systematically and unpunished against the people by the standing army of Great Britain. Penetrating sharply beneath the righteous veil that the existence of a state apparatus cast over its organized violence, the Massachusetts Assembly denounced the army as a continuing unlawful body that committed continuing assaults and massacres. To this flagrant subversion of royal and military supremacy, the governor replied by dissolving the general court. While Boston posed no problem to the resistance movement, sharp struggles over how to react to the Townsend repeal were waged within the other two crucial cities, New York and Philadelphia. In contrast to relatively democratic and liberal Massachusetts, both Philadelphia and New York were plagued by strong Tory factions. The Philadelphia merchants also suffered from lack of uniformity in the non-importation agreements among the various colonies. Thus, Maryland accepted imports of coarse woolens, and the Philadelphia Agreement did not. This permitted the Maryland merchants to appropriate the Philadelphia trade in woolens. Of the 19 members of the Enforcing Committee of Merchants of Philadelphia, seven headed by Chairman John Raynal, a Quaker, resigned and began to agitate for rescinding the boycott. But the artisans and retail traders of Philadelphia insisted on continuing the boycott, backed by encouragement from the merchants of Boston and New York. By the time of the June 5 general meeting of subscribers to non-importation, the pressure on the merchants had succeeded in ending their disaffection. In Boston, false news that the Philadelphia merchants had decided to abandon non-importation led the Boston merchants to follow, but the Boston town meeting quickly forced the merchants back into line, even before the falsity of the rumor was revealed. One decisive factor in ending defection in Philadelphia was the letters by Benjamin Franklin to his Tory allies urging continued all-out adherence to the boycott. This body blow to Tory resistance by its erstwhile leader had several roots. In the first place, Franklin was very deeply involved in speculation in royal grants to western lands and his chief enemy was Lord Hillsborough. The natural consequence of Hillsborough's enmity was to push Franklin into friendships and association with the opposition and into disenchantment with government policies in general. Furthermore, Franklin always knew on which side his bread was buttered, 
in several colonial assemblies, Georgia, New Jersey, as well as Pennsylvania, had recently appointed him as their London agent. Now, in 1770, the key agency post from Massachusetts was vacant, and no Tory could hope to obtain this position. Franklin's call to Philadelphia to stand fast drew him closer in Philadelphia to Charles Thompson, iron manufacturer, distiller, and leader of the artisans' movement for non-importation, and away from Galloway's Tories. The Tory press in England, not without justice, assailed Franklin as Dr. Doubleface and the Judas of Craven Street, Franklin's home in London. And this, of course, brought him newfound popularity in America. As a result, the Massachusetts Assembly chose Franklin as its main agent over the estimable liberal and Wilkite Dr. Arthur Lee, and over the strenuous objections of Sam Adams and the bitter attacks of the Boston Gazette. However, Lee was chosen as alternate or substitute agent, and Adams kept up his correspondence with the libertarian Lee, an able and staunch advocate for the rights of America, rather than with Franklin. Franklin was able to secure the appointment by splitting the liberal leadership and securing the support of the radical Congregational Minister, the Reverend Samuel Cooper. To do this, he changed his old tune and flatly denied any legislative sovereignty of Parliament over the colonies, conceding allegiance only to the king. Philadelphia then also stood fast. New York was still to speak. When it did, this oligarchically dominated province sundered the united front of colonial resistance. Whereas the radicals were in total control of Boston, and Philadelphia was veering leftward, the Battle of Golden Hill had intensified a growing conservative reaction among erstwhile liberals, symbolized in the persecution of radical leader Alexander McDougall, a reaction sufficient to wreck radical influence in as oligarchically controlled a colony as New York. As early as March 1770, the growing reaction had become evident. The annual festivities commemorating repeal of the Stamp Act had always been cordially celebrated by all the liberal forces in the province led by the Sons of Liberty. The sons suddenly found their claim to lead the celebration challenged by a secessionist organization, the Friends of Liberty and Trade, which organized its own. And so, while the sons toasted the imprisoned MacDougall in continuance of the boycott until total repeal, the Friends ignored the MacDougall issue and drank and ambiguously to trade in navigation and a speedy removal of their embarrassments. It must be noted that New York merchants felt aggrieved that New York had relatively the best record of abiding by the non-importation agreement and had therefore suffered the greatest loss of trade. The list of friends included the leading merchants and property owners in New York, especially the powerful Oliver Delancey, John Alsop, Isaac Lowe, Leonard Lispinard, James Beekman, Gabriel Ludlow, and Peter Van Schack. 
When news of Townsend repeal arrived, the New York radicals were able to control matters by leading popular agitation. Tentative efforts of merchants to abandon the agreements were overruled. Recreant Boston merchant Nathaniel Rogers, who had come to a presumably more hospitable New York, was hanged in effigy and had to flee the province. A committee of the Sons informed Philadelphia merchants that New York would stand fast. They were right so far. Furthermore, a general meeting of New York inhabitants on May 30 voted by a large majority to preserve the boycott intact and to boycott any who dared to violate it. Another mass meeting on June 5 confirmed this decision. But the people of New York were one thing, the merchants another. A committee of merchants headed by Isaac Lowe promptly rejected the popular resolutions and called for an intercolonial congress of merchants to meet at Norwalk, Connecticut on June 18 to adopt a uniform and clearly a far looser agreement. The idea of the Norwalk Congress was promptly rejected by the merchants of the other colonies. The Boston merchants unanimously rejected any idea of deviation from the agreement and the merchants of Essex County, New Jersey, would only consider meeting to strengthen the boycott. The Philadelphia merchants also stood firm. Of all the American port towns, only Hartford agreed to send delegates. With the Norwalk Congress necessarily abandoned, the New York merchants moved towards scuttling the boycott by themselves. They employed a cunning device Merchants went through New York City, visiting each person individually and asking him whether he would vote for continuing the boycott, provided Philadelphia and Boston concurred, or for removing it on all commodities except tea. The merchants triumphantly reported an overwhelming popular vote of confidence, 1,180 in favor of rescinding. 300 neutral or refusing to speak their views, and few in favor of the status quo. The New York merchants then sent news of this vote to Boston and Philadelphia to win their agreement. But the other towns were singularly uninspired by a canvas that encouraged the maximum of implicit intimidation of the voters. Even the Hartford merchants refused to alter the boycott. The New York radicals also pointed out that the poll was composed of only one-fourth of the eligible voters and excluded rural folk entirely. Undaunted by their inability to persuade the merchants, let alone the populace, of any other town to betray the non-importation movement, the merchants of New York decided to do it themselves. Although a public meeting called by the merchants overwhelmingly rejected the idea of another poll of individuals, the merchants organized a second canvas on July 7, this time asking whether people favored rescinding the boycott even though Philadelphia and Boston had refused. The radicals, led by Isaac Sears and Alexander McDougall, organized a public meeting the same day that voted unanimously to retain the boycott. That night, two mobs clashed. The radicals, parading with the inscription, Liberty and no importation but in union with the other colonies, were routed by a conservative mob 
armed with sticks led by Judge Elias Desbrosses, President-elect of the New York Chamber of Commerce. Two days later, the merchants reported a popular victory in its highly irregular canvas. But the less than 800 yes votes were a minority, as against abstentions among those polled. But the Committee of Merchants was interested only in token face-saving, and that night they hastened to announce their resolve to import every British good except tea. The mighty non-importation movement had been shattered on the rock of New York reaction. From that point on, the radical leadership in the colonies fought a valiant but doomed fight to preserve non-importation. When the Committee of Merchants of New York gloatingly informed the other colonies of their deed, angry reaction was quick to pour in from all sides. In Philadelphia, a great mass meeting of the city and county on July 14 condemned New York's action as a sordid and wanton defection from the common cause and announced a boycott against New York. The meeting of Boston merchants voted unanimously to burn the New York letter publicly. The Albany merchants blasted their New York City colleagues for unaccountable duplicity. In New Jersey, indignation was particularly rife. Students at Princeton College, including James Madison, publicly burned the letter in a funeral service for the betrayed cause. Mass meetings in the towns of Woodbridge and New Brunswick and in Essex, Sussex, Burlington and Somerset counties voted to censure and boycott New York. An unfortunate fruit peddler in Woodbridge hailing from New York was dumped into a pond to cool his courage. In Connecticut, merchants and other individuals of New Haven resolved to boycott New York. An all-Connecticut meeting at New Haven on September 13, representing merchants and farmers from the great majority of towns in the colony, resolved to boycott all British imports from New York. The southern colonies did not display as much zeal in denouncing New York's action, with the predictable exception of Charleston. There, a mass meeting on August 22 unanimously voted to punish New York's scandalous revolt from the common cause of freedom by an absolute boycott. This was no idle talk. Sea captains from New York were in subsequent months forbidden trading rights in Charleston's port. In the southern colonies, reaction was much more diffuse, but Talbot County, Maryland, resolved to support an absolute boycott of New York, and the merchants and inhabitants of Wilmington and Brunswick, North Carolina, unanimously reaffirmed the boycott. Although, as author Schlesinger writes, the patriotic indignation of the other provinces at the defection of New York was splendid to behold, the boycott could not survive the defection of a port as great as New York. The strain of New York's merchants obtaining business that could go elsewhere was too much to bear. In Philadelphia, the seven dissident merchants joined with seven others to demand a house-to-house poll in the crafty New York manner, when a committee of merchants headed by Charles Thompson refused the dissident merchants managed to call a small public meeting of subscribers to the boycott on September 20 to gain a majority for rescinding the agreement.
On the flimsy pretext of this majority, the dissident merchants resolved to end the boycott except on tea, and this despite a virtually unanimous advance vote by a mass meeting of Philadelphia citizens to continue the boycott and a similar vote of a Philadelphia grand jury. With New York and Philadelphia now fallen, could even mighty Boston be far behind? In mid-September, a huge mass meeting of a thousand merchants and traders of Boston had urged on Philadelphia an intercolonial congress of merchants to strengthen the agreement. But the call came too late, and Philadelphia had irredeemably defected from the boycott. The bulk of Boston merchants had long been restive under the boycott, and now they had their chance. On October 12, the Boston merchants unanimously voted to confine their boycott to tea. The great non-importation movement, to all intents and purposes, was ended. General Gage exulted that interest had thus triumphed over patriotism. With the great ports brought low, the other colonies could put up no further resistance. At a meeting of the General Committee of Maryland on October 25, the Baltimore merchants, led by Jonathan Hudson, affirmed their absolute determination to end the boycott and duly ignored the resolution of the meeting, which included assemblymen, councillors, and planters, as well as merchants, to abide by the agreements and to boycott any Baltimore violators. The merchants simply resumed all British imports except tea. In Virginia, never enthused about the agreements, non-importation would be quietly repealed early next July. In North Carolina, it simply disappeared without a trace. But South Carolina died hard. Radical sentiment dwindled, but was still strong. A general meeting of subscribers met on December 13 to decide South Carolina's course. Even now, though alone among the colonies, South Carolina's magnificent radical movement fought on. Thomas Lynch, planter and eminent radical leader, traveled 50 miles to plead with all his eloquence for the expiring liberty of his dear country, which the merchants would see like any other merchandise. Sam Adams, for his part, denounced the defecting merchants who, like a spaniel, meanly cringed and kissed the rod that whipped them. Lynch was backed wholeheartedly by fellow leaders Christopher Gadson and John Mackenzie. The radicals urged continuing the boycott coupled with open importation of the banned goods from Holland, but their valiant effort was in vain and even South Carolina surrendered. Notwithstanding, the Assembly considered boycotting the northern provinces in protest against their betrayal, but finally abandoned the idea as punishing every northerner for the sins of some of their merchants. Unstated was the realization that a one-colony boycott would not be very effective. By the end of 1770, an uneasy stability had settled upon the American colonies. A few things had been achieved. The bulk of the Townsend duties were now repealed, and the British troops were out of Boston.
The non-importation movement had helped in the former, although its impact in Britain had been greatly lessened by coincidentally increased demands for British products on the continent, and violent rebellion in Boston had accomplished the latter. But the major Townsend tax on tea remained, as did the customs commissioners, who returned to Boston in December, the vice-admiralty courts, and their new hierarchical powers, and the previous trade and navigation acts. British troops remained at Castle William, and the Navy was now stationed in Boston Harbor, thus permitting Boston to remain as the potential center of future crisis. Ominous rumblings of threats against Boston and against the Massachusetts Charter were only temporarily dampened by the war crisis with Spain, as were intentions to make official salaries in the colonies independent of their assemblies. Peaceful resolution of the Spanish crisis in early 1771, by the way, further strengthened the hold of the Tory North Ministry by discrediting the war hysteria of Chatham and Shelburne in opposition. The experience of the Townsend crisis imparted certain lessons to the radical leaders in America. In the first place, it was clear that revolutionary violence was a powerful weapon against the British. Where it could be employed, as against stamp distributors, customs officers, or British troops, it either accomplished its task of getting rid of the oppressive officials or effectively mobilized mass support by raising popular indignation against the violence of the British. In some cases, it is true, as in the Battle of Golden Hill, violent rebellion led to a victorious counter-revolutionary reaction. But these two consequences were not contradictory. In any case, violence radically polarized public opinion, and the question to be weighed was which newly polarized side would be the stronger. Since the revolutionary movement was a mass movement of the American people, in most cases, such polarization could only help the radical cause. Second, while voluntary boycott of British goods was certainly a vital weapon, it had proved most effective when used in conjunction with violence, as in the stamp crisis. When the boycott dragged on for several years, as in the Townsend crisis, inevitable strains might lead to a breach in the agreement, and one important breach was bound to end the movement. Furthermore, it was realized that a boycott movement confined to merchants would be particularly vulnerable to break up from within. Volume 3, Part 6, The Regulator Uprising Chapter 50, The South Carolina Regulation while the quarrel with Great Britain was by far the main conflict in the American colonies from the mid-1760s on, internal conflict occasionally took center stage, as we have seen with the New York Tenants' Uprising of 1766. The first of the great regulator conflicts broke out in the back country of South Carolina in 1767. The dominant group in the back country was the small and medium-sized planters, who had expanded rapidly into the upcountry after the Cherokee Indians had been driven out in 1761. 
The expansion of settlement naturally outran sluggishly moving governmental institutions, and this lag created grave social and political problems and grievances in the backcountry. One important grievance was inherent in representative government, a tendency for new population centers to be underrepresented and older centers to be overrepresented. In short, a tendency for formerly equitable structure of representation to cease reflecting social realities. Greatly reinforcing this natural tendency was a decree of the Crown forbidding South Carolina from expanding the membership of the Assembly, or even from creating new parishes, the units of representation. A second grievance stemmed from the peculiar tax system of South Carolina. Property outside Charleston was taxed per acre rather than in proportion to valuation. This was especially burdensome to and discriminatory against the lower-valued land of the backcountry. But the most urgent grievance of the backcountry was the rampant crime induced by the lack of organs of law enforcement. There were no courts, county or circuit, and no sheriffs in the backcountry. Hence, the whole burden of law enforcement fell on a few constables and justices of the peace who could make arrests but could not conduct trials, which had to take place in remote Charleston. The virtual absence of police or judicial protection for person and property led numerous outlaw gangs to plunder and ravage the backcountry at will. Some went so far as to settle down in their own frankly outlaw communities. The few existing constables were generally in the pay of the outlaw gangs. By the summer of 1767, the criminal gangs had so ravaged the country that economic effort in the backcountry was in danger of withering away. As one settler reported, the lowest state of poverty was to be preferred to riches and affluence, which would only attract the criminals. As crime reached a peak of intensity that summer, the people of the back country, disgusted with the government that had abandoned them, decided to protect themselves. Led by the major settlers and planters of the area, the back country men rose in a body and systematically attacked and raised the outlaw communities. Criminals were apprehended and speedily and effectively punished. Governor Charles Montague, who had done nothing to protect innocent settlers, had the gall to order these riots and disturbances to cease. No one, however, paid any attention to his decree. The outlaws responded by fighting back, burning houses, and abducting justices of the peace. The backcountry men now saw that haphazard pursuit and law enforcement against criminals could not work in the long run. That more systematic organization was necessary. And so, in the latter part of October 1767, the people chose a thousand men to execute the laws against all villains and harbors of villains and called them the Regulators. The regulators also took oaths to support one another in their illegal but vital activities. 
the regulators swung quickly and effectively into action, whipping criminals and burning down outlaw villages. Again, Governor Montague acted against the regulators fighting in self-defense rather than against the criminal gangs. The governor asked the assembly to suppress the regulator movement. In reply, four regulator leaders presented their case to the assembly in a statement signed by 4,000 men of the backcountry. The petition explained why, thus distressed, thus situated and unrelieved by government, many among us have been obliged to punish some of these banditti and their accomplices in a proper manner. The regulators were unfortunate, however, in having their petition written for them by their sympathizer, the well-known literature and Anglican clergyman Charles Wood Mason. Wood Mason was generally unpopular for having supported the Stamp Act and now angered the assembly further with barbed remarks and attacks on the class of lawyers. The offended assembly tabled the petition. But the regulator leaders quickly apologized for the Woodmason invective and appraisement of the facts made the government sympathetic to the regulator cause. The Assembly solved this dilemma during November, in effect by legalizing the regulators. Two companies of paid rangers were created for a three-month period to ride against the outlaws and were led and manned by leading regulators. The ranger regulators did a yeoman job. At the end of the three-month campaign in March 1768, the back country had been cleansed of outlaws. The criminals had been killed, arrested, or driven away. Many stolen horses and kidnapped girls had been rescued, and not one ranger regulator had lost his life. The regulator campaign had ended in notable success. If matters had ended there, all would have been well, and Professor Richard M. Brown would have been correct in lauding the regulators as the most zealous champions of good order. They believed in the rule of law. By taking the law into their own hands, the regulators did defy the government, but they acted in the interest of true justice. But power is a two-edged tool. Power also corrupts. No sooner had the regulators successfully wielded power and strict self-defense against predatory outlaws than they found that they enjoyed the taste of power and proposed to wield it for aggression instead of self-defense. Specifically, there existed in the backcountry numerous lower-class people, individuals who were self-employed in unrespectable and often low-paying occupations, a few were petty thieves. Most were honest but despised. Some were prostitutes, some gamblers, some squatters on unused land. Some were vagabonds living by their wits. Others were hunters selling furs and skins. All were hated by the respectable and middling planters of the backcountry, and for several reasons. One was aesthetic. The lower strata were not pleasing to the eye of the respectable set. More important, perhaps, was economic dislike. These self-employed poor, A, competed with the respectables, for example, in hunting, and B, seemed annoyingly idle.
when they could be supplying needed labor for the planters and traders of the region. The respectables were also distressed that the ancient and modern device for exploiting the self-employed poor by coercing them into the labor market, vagrancy laws, was peculiarly absent in South Carolina. Vacancy laws are a method of dragooning people who prefer being outside the labor market into laboring for their supposed betters. The vagrant is supposedly to be punished for being of no use to society. But since society, as Frank Kodorov has written, is people, this really means that the vagrant is of little or no use to potential employers and to those above him on the social scale. One does not have to be a Marxist to conclude that vagrancy laws are class exploitation. The respectable classes in South Carolina could have tolerated the aesthetic qualities of the lower set had they at least been supplying the upper classes with needed labor. The lower classes Failing to be laborers, there seemed to the solid citizens of the back country no excuse whatever for their continued existence. Typical of upper-class backcountry sentiment toward the low people was the complaint of the Reverend Charles Woodmason that the country swarms with vagrants, idlers, gamblers. But if you want to hire a fellow for work, you'll not raise one for money. And so the regulators moved from self-defense to aggression against the low people. In June 1768, a large congress of regulators adopted the plan of regulation, which was frankly designed to purge the country of all idle persons, all that have not a visible way of getting an honest living. Flogging and scourging or banishment were to be meted out to the baser sort of people who did not work at what the respectables thought an honest occupation. The plan was carried out with enthusiasm throughout the back country. Those not engaged in work regarded as respectable were systematically flogged by the regulators, and if not banished, were forced to work a certain number of acres of land. From forced labor, the regulators proceeded on their heady course to coercive supervision of everyone's personal morals. Immoral women were publicly shamed and beaten, and two women were given 500 lashes each. Wives began to use the regulators as a convenient way of flogging husbands who did not support them in the style to which they wanted to become accustomed. Now that the regulators had seized complete governmental power in the back country, they moved to exclude any judicial or police service, any execution of writs or warrants emanating from Charleston. In short, they sealed off the back country from any governmental influence from the coast and seceded de facto from South Carolina. Only writs of debt were allowed to be served. The back country was now a separate land, ruled at drumhead by regulator militia. One reason that regulators were anxious to keep South Carolina law out of the back country is that they themselves had become aggressors and criminals. And they knew that they were subject to prosecution in the South Carolina courts. Indeed, 
Victims of the plan of regulation soon brought charges in the court at Charleston. When the province tried to arrest leading regulators, the latter captured and roughed up the law officers and even a troop of militia. Bodies of militia deserted to the regulators. Lieutenant Governor William Bull reacted to these armed clashes in early August by decreeing the suppression of the regulators, combined with an amnesty for almost all existing regulator lawbreakers. The backcountry ignored the proclamation, and the South Carolina government simply did nothing. It stopped trying to enforce its authority and its law in the backcountry, and thus virtually accepted regulator rule over the entire region. In the face of a clear challenge to its authority, why did the South Carolina government virtually abdicate its rule over the back regions without a fight? Principally because the low country of South Carolina had the greatest concentration of Negro slaves in the colony, and hence the whites of this region were ever in fear of a slave revolt. Fighting against the regulators would have stripped the white forces weakened the strength of armed white rule over the Negroes and permitted a slave revolt against a weakened low country. When faced with the choice of protecting citizens against regulator violence or wreaking continued violence upon the slaves, the South Carolina government unhesitatingly chose the latter course. As Bull put it, a military force against the numerous and respectable regulators would have to be raised in the low country where white inhabitants are few and a numerous domestic enemy, the slaves, had to be attended to. Besides, the lieutenant governor could hardly fail to be enthusiastic about the regulator goal of suppressing and coercing the lower orders. Thus, the governor of South Carolina abandoned the people of the back country to the violence and intimidation of the regulators, just as the state had previously abandoned that tortured region to the violence and intimidation of the outlaw gangs, and just as private groups had to fill the function of defense against and suppression of the outlaws, so now a private group had to arise in the back country to defend the people against the regulators. As the regulators tightened their control in the latter half of 1768, the oppressed lower people, as well as many conscientious planters, began to unite against the new despotism. The latter, especially the justices of the peace, had also felt personally the violence of the plan of regulation. The concrete incident that sparked a vigorous reaction to the plan was the regulator beating and pursuing of John Musgrove, a leading planter and major of the militia. Along with his friend Jonathan Gilbert, a justice of the peace, Musgrove traveled to Charleston in late February 1769 to convince the governor and council of the crimes and misdeeds of the plan of regulation. The council was persuaded to deprive eleven leading regulators of their commissions as justices of the peace or officers of the militia. Having secured at least the sympathy of the governor and council, Musgrove and Gilbert set about organizing a private armed force against the regulators. By early March, they had formed the moderator movement. Fire, they realized, had to be fought with fire 
and force with force. The moderators had several hundred followers in the back country. To organize them, the leaders found the tough, brash mercenary Joseph Koffel, who proved an effective head of the moderator military force. A Charleston judge proceeded to give legal coloration to the moderators by authorizing them to execute warrants against some of the regulators. The moderators arrested the leaders, but obviously were not able to travel through regulator country to take them to trial at Charleston. Charleston was again reluctant to come to the aid of the beleaguered moderators who managed with no small effort to slip through the countryside and bring in the prisoners. Charleston's vacillation increased when news arrived of the criminal excesses of Colonel Coffell, who thought nothing of seizing provisions at will and imprisoning women and children as well as actual regulators. Charleston simply withdrew its legal coloration for Coffell, and with it any support whatever in the developing conflict. The moderators remained undaunted, however. Charleston's support at best had never been more than perfunctory. On March 25, 1769, six or seven hundred armed regulators and an equal number of moderators assembled for a showdown conflict near the junction of the Saluda and Bush Rivers. Just as the great conflict was beginning, a miraculous intercession appeared in the person of three notable emissaries of peace from Charleston. The three, large planters of the back country and led by the eminent Colonel Richard Richardson, had remained more or less aloof from the dispute and were thus uniquely qualified to serve as peacemakers. The peace agreement was in reality a total and bloodless victory for the moderators, for in return for the moderators' agreement to disperse, the regulators agreed to dissolve and let the law take its normal course. The regulator movement had effectively ended under the pressure of a moderator counterforce. The regulators, however, could not have dissolved so quickly had they not been assured that their main grievance and the main grievance of the entire backcountry would be removed shortly. Accordingly, the Assembly and the Council at the end of July enacted the Circuit Court Act, which brought the approval of the Governor and the Crown. The Act established a regular system of Circuit Courts in the backcountry, as well as sheriffs for each of the four newly created judicial districts. Two years later, the governor decided to liquidate the remnants of the controversy by pardoning 75 regulator wrongdoers. Volume 3, Chapter 51, The North Carolina Regulation Inspired by the success of the South Carolina regulators, a group of citizens of St. George's Parish in backcountry Georgia formed an association movement in the late spring of 1768. The aim of the association was armed action against Indians in the locality. Fearful of a full-scale Indian war, Governor Wright promptly told the local militia captains to order the association to disperse on pain of prosecution. The associators apparently obeyed the order as nothing more was heard of them. The term regulator, however, 
found its most important place in history in a movement that had only that name in common with the South Carolina organization. This movement, the regulators of the North Carolina backcountry, also adopted the name in April 1768, but its nature and purposes differed radically from those of its southern neighbor. One of the early roots of the North Carolina regulation lay in land monopoly. Large tracts of land had been arbitrarily granted to one George Selwyn. In Mecklenburg County in western North Carolina, numerous settlers and squatters refused to acknowledge Selwyn's claim or to pay him for the land. When in May 1765, Selwyn sent his agent, Henry McCullough, and a group of surveyors to Mecklenburg to enforce payment or eject the settlers, the latter rose up in defense of their land. A mob of settlers, led by Thomas Polk, set upon and severely whipped the surveyors and threatened McCullough with death. The North Carolina Council refused the request of the governor to intervene against the settlers. Another root of the regulation emerged also in the spring of 1765. In Orange County and in Granville County near the Virginia border, disturbances arose from the exactions of excessive and even illegal fees by county officials. The Nutbush Paper issued by George Sims, schoolmaster of Nutbush, Granville County, in June, denounced extortionate court fees imposed upon the public. The author pointed out that to pay a debt judgment of five pounds, a man had also to pay more than 41 shillings, or over 40% of the amount to the county clerk, and thus was forced to contribute his labor to the clerk for 21 days. In addition, the debtor was enslaved for 19 days to pay legal fees, and a further 19 days to pay the sheriff for prosecuting him. The climax arrived when the author peacefully drew up a petition protesting these outrages. Not only was the petition ignored, but the said government officials sued the petitioners for libel and imprisoned the author. These incidents were illustrative of the intense resentments and grievances of the back country against the government of North Carolina. And the major grievances were specifically against government, against excessive taxes and quit rents, against extortionate fees, and against dishonest and extortionate sheriffs and other appointed government officials. Nearly all government officials in North Carolina were paid in fees, and the fees were, of course, exacted from the hapless inhabitants of whatever locality the officials ruled. Indeed, as the historian John S. Bassett wrote, as soon as frontier counties were organized, sheriffs, clerks, registers, and lawyers swooped down upon the defenseless inhabitants like wolves. The various ranks of fee-charging officials conspired together. For example, lawyers and officials of county and superior courts collaborated to delay cases and thus collect increased fees. Another major grievance of the people of the North Carolina backcountry stemmed from poll taxes, 
which constituted virtually the only tax, and the bulk of the revenues in the province. The poll tax bore most heavily upon the poor. The settlers were plagued with quit-rents and high fees and taxes. To compound the evils, the people were plagued by dishonest and oppressive sheriffs. A common practice of the sheriff was to call upon a farmer without advance warning and demand that he pay his poll tax immediately. Refusing to give the farmer a chance to borrow in order to pay the tax, the sheriff would promptly seize the property and then quickly sell it cheaply to a friend of his before the farmer could come up with the money. To add grave insult to grievous injury, the sheriff charged the farmer an extra fee for the trouble of calling at the latter's house. As I seen on the cake of the sheriff's calling, the lawmen generally embezzled the revenues that they thus collected. Conditions, in short, were becoming ripe for rebellion in the North Carolina backcountry by the mid-1760s. The conflict reached the stage of definite organization in the Sandy Creek movement of the late summer of 1766. In late August, the leaders of the libertarian reform movement in Orange County concentrated in the county seat, called a countywide meeting of the delegates from each neighborhood to meet at Maddox Mills at Sandy Creek on October 10. No county officials sanctioned the unauthorized meeting, which nevertheless went ahead and hailed the recent victory of the Sons of Liberty against the Stamp Act and called for extension of this concept of liberty closer to home. The meeting delivered a trenchant attack upon the corruption of power. Take this as a maxim, that while men are men, though you should see all those sons of liberty who has, just now redeemed us from tyranny, set in offices and vested with power, they would soon corrupt again and oppress if they were not called upon to give an account of their stewardship. The Sandy Creek meeting called for annual meetings of such delegates in a continuing voluntary association of the people to keep check on the activities of their representatives and appointed rulers. Chief officer of the county and chief enemy of the Sandy Creek Association was the roundly hated Edmund Fanning. Fanning, a native New Yorker and a graduate of Yale, was a prototype of the provincial bureaucrat and the leader of the courthouse ring in his county. A favorite of Governor William Tryon, young Fanning had managed to acquire a justiceship of the peace and numerous important county offices, judge of the Superior Court, register of deeds, militia colonel, and member of the Assembly. Colonel Fanning denounced the Sandy Creek meeting as insurrectionary and threatened its leaders with punishment. Yet the leaders of the North Carolina protest movement were at this early stage far from revolutionary. The main leader of the Sandy Creek organization was Herman Husband, an intelligent and learned Quaker from Orange County and a man of considerable property. Husband, an active pamphleteer, led the agitation of public opinion, but shackled the movement by insisting strictly on Quaker nonviolence. 
continually husband urged peace and nonviolence and denigrated any form of violent revolution. During 1766 and 1767, the opposition to North Carolina government grew. Brunswick, Cumberland, and other counties refused to pay their taxes, and petitions similar to Sandy Creek's were submitted and similarly ignored in Anson, Granville, and Halifax counties, and in the Piedmont of North Carolina. But Orange County remained the focus of conflict. In 1767, a justice of the county court found a very scarce copy of the laws of North Carolina and discovered that the extortionate court fees of the province were illegal. Rather than mend its illegal ways, the tight-knit bureaucratic oligarchy of Orange County threatened the judge with arrest for contempt of court. The judge quickly fell silent and was soon dismissed from his post. The power of the courthouse clique remained impregnable. The contemptuous dismissal of the partially courageous judge disheartened the Sandy Creek Association and threw it into a disarray from which it never recovered. It became clear to the libertarian protesters that peaceful nonviolent protest of the husband variety could accomplish nothing. The people had protested at Sandy Creek and had suggested reforms. Their protests had been brusquely ignored. It was now evident that stronger and more radical measures of protest were required. Leadership of the liberal protest movement of backcountry North Carolina now passed into more vigorous and determined hands, those of James Hunter, the general of the movement, of William Butler, and of the poet and songsmith Redknapp Howell, a former New Jersey schoolmaster. The next phase of the protest movement was touched off in early 1768 when Sheriff Tyree Harris of Orange County posted the taxes for the coming year. Poll taxes had to be paid at a few centralized locations. Any tax paid at a different location would be automatically raised. This penalty tax was soon raised even higher by Colonel Fanning, Public opinion was further inflamed by an assembly appropriation of the large sum of 5,000 pounds to build a palace for Governor Tryon, a boondoggle of which one of the chief sponsors was Edmund Fanning. In ensuing years, 10,000 pounds more was appropriated for a home for the governor. The higher taxes and the generous perquisites granted to the governor initiated the development of a new association in Orange County, first known informally as the Mob, and then borrowing the name of regulators from the successful South Carolina movement. The first thing that the Mob did in Orange and other counties was to announce its refusal to pay taxes until its grievances were redressed and government fees and taxes lowered. Similar meetings were held in the spring of 1768 in counties west of the Hall River, and the various regulator associations took oaths to pay no taxes or illegal fees until redress was achieved. South and west of Orange County, sympathy for the movement was expressed in Anson and Rowan counties. 
The Sandy Creek Organization, incidentally, far from leading the new regulator movement, lagged behind this new radicalization and refused to join the tax strike as too hot and rash and, in some respects, not legal. Orange County, however, remained the heart and center of the growing regulator movement. Once again, as has happened so often in history, actual armed hostilities were opened by the men in power, by the panicky forces of counter-revolution. On April 4, a meeting of Orange regulators asked the sheriff and vestrymen of the county to meet with the regulator committee to give a full account of their use of public monies. The reply of Sheriff Harris was typically swift and brutal. The horse and saddle of a regulator were seized and sold for non-payment of some governmental levy. Here was the spark of armed rebellion in North Carolina. A crowd of nearly 100 armed regulators rode to the county seat of Hillsboro, seized the sheriff, rescued the horse and saddle, and returned them to their owner. After an official threatened to fire at the crowd, they shot up the roof of Colonel Fanning's house. Colonel Fanning was not the sort of Tory oligarch to take such an incident lying down. First, he had to gain the wholehearted support of Governor Tryon. Hysterically, Fanning falsely claimed to Tryon that the regulators were insurrectionaries who had sworn to pay no more taxes, to kill all tax collectors, to burn Hillsboro, and to become sovereign arbiters of right and wrong. Tryon and the council then agreed to authorize Fanning to call out the militia to suppress the rebellion. Striking back with all the might of government, Fanning ordered the arrest of the three leaders of the Regulator Rescue Party, William Butler, Peter Craven, and Norman Bell Hamilton. Seven companies of militia were now called up to suppress the regulation. Only 120 people appeared, and very few of these could be relied upon to fight the people of the county. About one-half of the people of Orange County were ardent regulators, and the others were strongly in sympathy. Thus, an orange regulator petition of protest collected over 400 signatures. The regulators called a confederation of inhabitants throughout the county to maintain enforcement of their tax strike and to prepare for a march in force on Hillsboro. But the regulator resolve to press its advantage was tragically weakened by the advice of such men as the Reverend George Micklejohn, who counseled delay and the holding of a large peace meeting on obtaining a promise of the county officials to meet with the settlers. The peace meeting was scheduled for May 11, but no officials deigned to appear, and while the bemused regulators peacefully elected delegates and waited for the peace meeting, Colonel Fanning seized the opportunity to swoop down upon them Denouncing the regulators as traitorous dogs, Fanning seized the startled regulator leaders on May 2, arresting Butler and husband. The two were given a quick kangaroo trial and promptly imprisoned at Hillsboro. The seizure of husband and Butler was enough to rouse the ire of all the populace, regulator and non-regulator alike. Seven hundred men marched to Hillsboro, 
and forced Fanning to release the prisoners. Seeing the might of the Regulator uprising, Governor Tryon used his wiles to lure the Regulators again into passivity. He promised the Regulators that if they behaved properly and returned to their homes to confine themselves to drawing up a petition, he would seek redress of their grievances before the Assembly. The Regulators naively agreed, forgetting the great principle of the English rebels of old, that grievances must be redressed before the keen edge of protest is allowed to soften. Once again, the bemused regulators allowed their movement to retreat to the naive petitioning of Sandy Creek days. At the end of May, the Orange regulators drew up a petition signed by Hunter, Howell, and 450 others, and Hunter and Howell were selected to present it, to the governor and council. Meanwhile, Fanning had tried hard to split the regulators and to induce them to sign a humble and contrite petition confessing their sins and errors and throwing themselves upon the mercy of the governor. Otherwise, he threatened the protesters. He would urge Tryon to regard them as traitors. Fanning's efforts were partly successful in weakening the timber of the regulator petition. But Governor Tryon and the Council, scenting weakness in the popular opposition and largely forgetting the Governor's promises, replied on June 25 by hinting at treason and demanding total submission and contrition by the regulators. All future meetings of regulators were banned, and they were ordered to pay their taxes. At the same time, local governmental fees were raised still higher. Although the regulators had been lured again into dispersing their armed force, they did hold a trump card, continued refusal to pay taxes. Though nonviolent, this step was far from passive. In fact, such refusal struck aggressively at the root of the oligarchic power structure of North Carolina. The regulators continued to meet and continued to refuse taxes. At a regulator meeting on August 1, Tryon sent a sheriff to demand submission and the payment of taxes, but the people continued adamant. Four hundred men quickly met and unanimously resolved to refuse tax payment and to kill any man who seized property for taxes due. Five hundred regulators gathered a week later at Peds, threatening to burn the county seat at Hillsborough, and began to march on the town. Rapidly the confrontation escalated. Tryon called out the militia, and an armed populace gathered in a meeting of one thousand regulators. Cowed once again by force majeure, Tryon, on August 11, again turned wheedling and conciliating, and promised that the sheriffs would now satisfy the people and give them an accounting at a general meeting on August 17, provided that the armed regulators would again disperse. And once again, the regulators, at the brink of victory, gullibly gave credence to Tryon's promises. Once again, they weakened their pressure to shift suddenly to peaceful and passive tactics. 
Once again, when the naively confident regulators assembled on the 17th, they were stunned to find a severe condemnation by Tryon denouncing them as criminal and illegal insurrectionaries and demanding a bond to ensure that no attempt would be made to rescue the imprisoned butler and husband. Tryon then proceeded to raise a mighty force of militia from all over the North Carolina backcountry. But while Tryon was raising his counter-revolutionary forces far and wide, people from other counties were increasingly joining Orange in the regulator protest. For instance, people from Anson County in southwest North Carolina. Anson County was tightly governed by a ruling clique of three men, Samuel Spencer, county clerk, assemblyman, and colonel of the militia and two embezzling ex-sheriffs who had moved up to become county judges. A citizens' association was formed in early 1768 to oppose this oligarchy. The Anson Association of Regulators, headed by Charles Robinson, pledged to refuse payment of taxes, to rescue any imprisoned members, and to retake any property seized for non-payment of taxes. In April, 100 Anson regulators gathered at the county court, drove the tyrannical judges off the bench, and made ready to run Robinson for assembly. Governor Tryon was also moved to promise Anson County regulators redress of grievances if they would disperse. Turning to the Orange Regulation for advice, the regulators received counsel that sowed dangerous illusions, disarmed the movement, and crippled its momentum. They were advised to abandon violence for a peaceful and friendly petition of grievances. 120 people of Anson signed this petition during August, but Tryon's only acknowledgment was to hail Anson County's submission. When Anson County found the governor calling out the militia in force, 500 men of the county resolved on armed self-defense against the government forces. Moreover, in Johnston County, close to the Low Country, a mob of 80 regulators threatened to oust their judges. But here the judges were able to mobilize governmental forces to defeat the rebels. Another regulator failure occurred in near Lowland, Edgecombe County, where 30 men tried unsuccessfully to release an insurgent leader from jail. Throughout the latter part of August and September of 1768, both sides gathered their forces in the rapidly polarizing conflict. Rowan and Mecklenburg counties in the southwestern backcountry sent particularly ardent pro-government militia, which were all assembled at Hillsboro in the heart of the Regulator Rebellion. The counter-revolutionary militia were bolstered and egged on by four leading Presbyterian ministers of the back country, who called for steadfast support of government on principle, and in this call they were backed up by Baptist and German ministers. All in all, Tryon was able to gather by the beginning of September nearly 1,500 militia. The main clue to their recruitment was the enormous proportion of top-ranking officers, largely politicians and bureaucrats. 
Fully one quarter of the assembled militia were officers, and thirty-four officers were ranked at major or higher. Of these, twenty-four were assemblymen or councillors, consisting of one quarter of the members of the legislature. Here was another indicator of how civil and military affairs of the province, whether local or central, rested in the hands of a small, tight, bureaucratic clique. The thirty-four leaders of the North Carolina oligarchy who headed the assemblage at Hillsboro to defend their vested privileges against the regulators included John Rutherford, president of the council, five other councillors, Edmund Fanning, Samuel Spencer, and a superior court justice, Maurice Moore. Ranged against the militia was a massive force of some three thousand seven hundred regulators. But the regulators, timorous and lacking determined and efficient revolutionary leadership, pleaded for negotiation. The only terms that Governor Tryon would consider were that the regulators disarm themselves, agree to pay all taxes, swear oaths of loyalty and allegiance to their rulers, and surrender nine of their leaders for trial, in addition to the still-incarcerated husband and butler. The regulators did not agree to these arrogant and insulting terms, but neither were they brave enough to use their overwhelming force. The regulators dispersed, with thirty of them accepting the terms of submission. Pressing his advantage, Tryon quickly sent troops to round up and arrest the regulator leaders. They met with no resistance from the demoralized regulators, and thirteen leaders were placed on trial. The regulators, moreover, resumed payment of their taxes. The second phase of the regulator protest movement had ended in total and abject failure. Governor Tryon's shrewd and cunning strategy had been met by bumbling confusion and ineptitude on the part of the popular opposition. Of the regulator leaders, William Butler was convicted for riot and rescue of confiscated property and sentenced to six months' imprisonment. John Philip Hartsoe and Samuel Deviney received three months. Herman Husband was acquitted on the charge of riot. James Hunter was convicted but freed at a new trial. The three convicted leaders had their sentences suspended and were finally pardoned at the King's instructions in September 1769. Meanwhile, Edmund Fanning was convicted of extorting illegal fees, but was fined only one penny in punishment and shorn only of his post as Register of Deeds. Governor Tryon had happily not followed the advice of various Presbyterian and other ministers who had preached triumphantly to the militia after the regulators had slunk back to their homes. Particularly fiery was the Reverend George Micklejohn, whose speech was distributed by the public printer. Micklejohn had urged the government to hang at least twenty of the rebels, and he assured one and all that their souls would surely travel to hell. The governor had promised to bring extortionate officials to trial. The trial of Fanning was, in particular, a mockery of that pledge. Other regulator charges against officials were systematically obstructed by the government. 
Complaining witnesses were driven away by the guards and ordered out of town, and grand juries were systematically packed with government officials themselves. The abject crumbling of the regulator movement did nothing, of course, to allay the grievances of the back country. After a lull of many months, regulator agitation welled up once more. In the spring of 1769, Orange County Sheriff John Lee, trying to arrest Ninian Hamilton and other regulator leaders, was set upon and severely whipped by a mob led by Hamilton and Davini. But this was an exceptional incident. The regulators generally turned to concentrate on political action, specifically to try to change assembly policies in the July elections. The regulators of Orange, Anson, and Rowan counties formulated their political program in petitions, asking for an end to poll taxes and a shift to property taxes, drastic limitations on legal fees, payment of taxes in kind, lower quit rents, a cutback of land grants to councillors and other governmental favorites, and a secret ballot for assembly elections. In contrast was the petition of 1,000 Presbyterians in backcountry Mecklenburg County. The petitioners proclaimed their loyalty to the government and requested repeal only of the Anglican establishment in their counties. The July elections did result in a general overturn of the North Carolina legislature. Of 77 assemblymen, 45 were new. Only a handful of the new representatives were regulators, but regulators did sweep the elections in Orange, Granville, and Halifax counties in the northern back country and Anson County in the southwest. Rowan County also returned the ardent regulator Christopher Nation. Orange County, for its part, elected Herman Husband to the assembly, while hidebound Mecklenburg County remained committed to the status quo. After the flush of enthusiasm over their political victory, the regulators found, to their dismay, that their victory had won them nothing. The assembly did nothing to redress their grievances. Indeed, the elections of the spring of 1770 only weakened regulator strength in the assembly. The regulators were neither the first nor the last revolutionary movement to become disillusioned with the fruits of political action and to find that voting and politics were just another blind alley to blunt their effectiveness, deflect them from their course, and weaken their purpose. The regulators, in fact, had tried every form of legal or nonviolent protest petitioning, suits in court, tax strikes, and political action. Each in its turn had totally failed. The regulators were finally learning that only one course of action remained to them, armed rebellion. Matters came to a head, inaugurating the fourth phase of the North Carolina regulation in late September 1770. The incident began on September 24, when James Hunter and other Orange regulators presented a petition at Hillsborough against the peculation and systematic bias of the county sheriffs, officers, and juries. Backing up the petition, 
was a determined crowd of 150 regulators led by Hunter, Butler, and Howell who invaded the county courtroom. The crowd threatened Judge Richard Henderson, who fled town and began to set upon its enemies. The courthouse lawyer, John Williams, was beaten up and leading county bureaucrats were given a severe trouncing. The crowd also proceeded to the highly satisfactory whipping of their arch-enemy, Colonel Fanning. Fanning was generously permitted to flee town, and his new pretentious house, reviled as being built from illegal fees, was thoroughly burned to the ground. The same treatment was meted out to Judge Henderson's house in Granville County some weeks later. Thus the regulators followed the model of the Stamp Act rebels. The regulators were now feeling their oats. Determined violent action had redressed their grievances by forcibly stopping the machinery of government in the county. Although the two years' delay had reduced the movement from several thousand to several hundred, the regulators, growing stronger by the day, threatened to storm the capital, New Bern, to be joined by the regulators of Butte and Johnston counties to prevent the assembly from seating Edmund Fanning from a newly created Rottenborough of Hillsborough. The assembly, now genuinely alarmed, did a little to remedy the problems of the back country by increasing representation of the Piedmont in the assembly and limiting governmental fees. But most of its panicky reaction centered around savage repression of the regulator movement. Its resolve for repression was strengthened by a secret agreement with the Presbyterian leaders. In exchange for the Assembly's permission to perform the marriage ceremony, Presbyterian ministers pledged their support against the regulation. With the back country thus split, the Assembly passed a law on January 1771, sponsored by Samuel Johnston of Edenton in the Low Country, for suppressing riots. The death penalty was decreed for any assemblage of ten or more people that refused to disperse. Anyone ignoring subpoenas for rioting would be declared an outlaw. The militia was authorized to enforce these decrees. Furthermore, any uplander could now be tried in low country courts, and anyone opposing the militia would be deemed guilty of treason. Furthermore, the assembly arbitrarily expelled Herman Husband for criticizing a reactionary assemblyman and then had Husband summarily arrested. The assembly finally released Husband after a couple of months when a grand jury refused to indict him. The release of Herman Husband served to disperse a threatened regulator rescue march on New Bern, but Tryon, furious at the release, determined to pursue a massive program of armed repression. There were several prongs to this campaign. First, Tryon called up the provincial militia, since the local backcountry militia was now ineffective. Second, the governor mobilized a private force of redressers, organized by Fanning, Thomas Hart, and Alexander Martin, who had all been beaten up at Hillsborough, in an armed association against the regulators. Particularly formidable was the aristocratic armed association of Cape Fear loyalists, headed by General Hugh Waddell. Third, Tryon brazenly ordered the packing of all juries, 
for trying regulators, with aristocratic gentlemen of the first rank, property and probity, who would take care to hear only pro-official witnesses. The regulators of 1771 were not the regulators of three years earlier. Disappointments at suppression had radicalized them, and particularly infuriating was Tryon's raising of the massive provincial force against them. The people were incensed. Redknapp Howell composed forty popular ballads to stir up the public. Edmund Fanning was declared an outlaw, who could therefore be shot on sight by the regulators. One gauge of the intensity of regulation feeling was the refusal of militiaman Jeremiah Pritchett to obey military orders and his attempt to breed a mutiny in support of the regulation. Pritchett was sentenced to the huge total of 150 lashes. At Pritchett's public flogging, one of the spectators tried to get the crowd to pelt the floggers with eggs. The man was immediately arrested and the colonel in charge threatened to run through any other heckler with his sword. Regulator forces sprang up in Halifax, Edgecombe, Butte, and Northampton counties. In Rowan County, the people refused to pay fees and threatened to kill every clerk and lawyer in the area. The court at the Rowan County seat of Salisbury was threatened with the same treatment as at Hillsborough. Rowan County and other regulators nevertheless proposed to arbitrate their disputes, but Governor Tryon adopted an implacably hard-line anti-appeasement view. No negotiations were possible with rebels, he declared, nor would there be arbitration by any organization but the government. At this rebuff, the regulators protested that every man would rise up and defend his just rights, our civil liberties are certainly more dear to us than the good opinion of a ruler. Governor Tryon tried to raise an armed force of 2,500 men. Despite determined efforts, including a subsidy to each volunteer, he could only raise less than 1,100 men, who were supplemented by General Waddell's irregulars of less than 300 men. Tryon's force had no fewer than 150 officers and Waddell's nearly 50. Most of Tryon's men came from Orange and Dobbs counties in the back country and Craven County in the lowlands. Tryon's and Waddell's forces were supposed to meet at Hillsboro, but Waddell's column was stopped by a large body of regulators on May 9 and forced to fall back to Salisbury. Waddell's ammunition had been destroyed by a heroic group of young rebels called the Black Boys of Cabarrus. Going to the rescue of his ally, Tryon moved westward from Hillsborough to the Alamance River, reaching it with a little less than 1,000 men. There he encountered a regulator force of 2,000, of which only 1,000, however, were armed. The final conflict was now at hand. The regulators though radicalized to the point of gathering an armed force, were still gravely undermined by the lack of firm and resolute leadership. There was no overall leader. The major leaders bickered among themselves and tragically weakened the movement by preaching against the use of armed force. Herman Husband would not fight at all. 
The other leaders naively counseled a token fight to induce Tryon to negotiate. They did not realize the absurdity of threatening or beginning the use of force without being prepared to use it effectively. Moreover, it was incredibly naive of them to still believe Tryon would negotiate honestly. James Hunter, when asked to take command of the regulators, replied in a magnificently individualistic but militarily ineffectual vein, We are all free men, and everyone must command himself. As a result, each company of regulators had a captain, but there was no overall commander. Shorn of any effective leaders on or off the field, the regulator movement had therefore no effective field command and no theoreticians to define their goals and purpose, their strategy and tactics. In such a case, only one outcome was possible. On May 16, Tryon's forces advanced, demanded unconditional surrender, and then, after a two-hour fight, routed the disorganized regulators into wild disorder. Thus ended the Battle of Alamance. Nine regulators were killed, and many wounded and captured. Surprisingly, the brief regulator resistance also took a toll of nine killed and several score injured. Tryon now had the opportunity to wreak his will on the routed and demoralized regulators. One leader, young James Few, a prisoner of the battle, was executed the next day on the ground that he had been made an outlaw for ignoring a court subpoena for burning Fanning's house. Tryon, then joined by Waddell, marched unresisted through the back country, looting and burning the houses and plantations of the regulator leaders, including the home of William Few, father of the hanged prisoner. In the brutal Tryon victory march, thousands of settlers were forced to take an oath of allegiance to him, promising to pay their taxes and obey the laws in exchange for the governor's pardon. Tryon's largesse, however, was not at all extended to the prisoners taken in battle. Summary court-martials were held in mid-June, and twelve prisoners were sentenced to death for high treason. Six of the convicted were pardoned but the other six were publicly executed on the spot. One of the executed regulators was Captain Benjamin Merrill of the Rowan County Militia, who died supposedly repenting in order to allow his family to inherit his property. But another of the executed, James Pugh, remained steadfast to the end, and indeed was hanged in the middle of a rebuke that he was delivering to Edmund Fanning. Assemblyman Thomas Person who had been sympathetic to the regulators, was arrested by Tryon on his march, but was ultimately acquitted. All the major leaders of the regulation had managed to escape capture. Redknapp Howell fled north to Maryland and eventually settled in New Jersey. Herman Husband fled north to western Pennsylvania. Other leaders escaped to South Carolina, and thousands of regulators soon trekked westward over the mountains. The government quickly moved toward pardon of the regulator leadership. The implacable enemies of the regulators, Governor Tryon and Edmund Fanning, both left in the summer of 1771, Tryon to become governor of New York and Fanning to be his secretary. 
the new governor of North Carolina, accelerated the pardoning of the wanted leaders. The latter petitioned for mercy, and when the Riot Act expired in 1772, they were allowed to surrender, come into court, and be pardoned. James Hunter returned from Maryland to general acclaim and remained free. The returning William Butler crawled to the authorities, proclaiming his utmost abhorrence of the regulation. Soon, in fact, the king had pardoned all the old leaders except Herman Husband, who remained in Pennsylvania. The North Carolina regulators, as we have seen, were far different from their namesakes to the South. The South Carolina group arose from lack of law enforcement in the back country, and the ensuing conflict was largely intra-back country with the private moderator movement finally checking the invasive acts of the regulators. In North Carolina, however, the major grievance was too much government, specifically too much revenue extracted from the public in taxes and fees. Hence the conflict was much more sectional than in South Carolina, where the local courthouse oligarchies in the back countries were appointed by the royal provincial officials in Charleston. Within the back country, the bulk of the split was waged between the people and the oligarchy of bureaucrats. The regulator conflict cannot be properly interpreted, as many historians have done, in religious terms. For example, as low country Anglican versus back country Protestant. As we have seen, the Presbyterian Church was very active in opposing the movement. Its ministers wrote a circular letter urging Presbyterians not to join the regulators. And of course, the established Anglican Church was also opposed to the regulators. But so too with the Baptists, who were almost all opposed Indeed, pro-regulator Baptists were excommunicated from the church. The German and Quaker sects also opposed the regulation. Volume 3, Part 7, Prelude to Revolution, 1770-1775. Volume 3, Chapter 52, The Uneasy Lull, 1770-1772. While North Carolina was going through bloody internal conflict, the rest of the colonies had settled into uneasy stability with regard to Great Britain. The lull came with the repeal of the Townsend duties and the collapse of non-importation in late 1770. But Boston and Massachusetts still served as the focal point of trouble and dispute. Massachusetts continued feeling restive over talk in England of such drastic changes as substituting a royally appointed council for an elected one and abolishing the Massachusetts town meeting. The stationing of British instead of provincial troops at Castle William, coupled with the British Navy in Boston Harbor, was seen as a harbinger of such an unwanted change. Another feared change was that the British themselves would pay the salaries of American officials, thereby putting the latter beyond the control of colonial assemblies. This would lead to stricter enforcement of the trade and revenue laws. The first step in this crucial change was the decision of Britain in early 1771 to pay the full salary of Governor Hutchinson of 
Massachusetts. Hutchinson was, of course, jubilant over this development and over the stationing of the military in the harbor, but Sam Adams perceived that the governor was now independent of popular check or control. There is no question that the grip of the radical liberals on the people of Massachusetts declined considerably during this lull, this period of sullen silence, as Adams put it, and Adams could not succeed in rousing the people against the Hutchinson salary. But despite hints of defection by John Hancock and others, the Liberal Party held together in the 1771 elections, and the House strongly denounced the Hutchinson salary payment. The Tories, of course, tried their best to exploit this period of quiescence by splitting and weakening the Liberals. The opposition to Britain, they thundered, was trying to lead the colonists into a state of anarchy under the name of liberty. The grand old colony of the Puritans, the Tories warned, was now permitting itself to be misled by such virulent opposers of our holy religion as Dr. Thomas Young and William Molyneux, leading rationalist and deist. Sam Adams, a devout Congregationalist and an advocate of old Puritan virtues, could not be baited for his supposed atheism. Unassailable on this charge, he sprang to the defense of Dr. Young. Young, Adams reminded his readers, was an unwearied asserter of the rights of his countrymen, a man who should be judged rather by his political than by his religious views. Of course, the man most hated by the Tories was Sam Adams, and Hutchinson charged that the incendiary Adams wishes the destruction of every friend to government in America. The crowning effort by Hutchinson and the Tories to crush the radicals during the lull period took place in the Massachusetts elections in 1772. A concerted effort to defeat Sam Adams failed, but it did succeed in reducing his vote to 30% below that of his colleagues, Thomas Cushing and John Hancock. And of these, Cushing had always been a conservative opportunist, and John Hancock was seriously flirting with desertion of the liberal cause. Hancock, indeed, had shifted toward a relatively neutral position. Furthermore, James Otis, in moments of sanity, drifted in the conservative direction. John Adams withdrew to the quiet of private life. A disheartened Dr. Thomas Young left Massachusetts for North Carolina, and another of Sam Adams' leading followers, Dr. Benjamin Church, secretly sold out his colleagues and attacked his own Whig writings in the Tory press. And Sam Adams was rebuffed by such other American leaders as John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, when he urged them to help him keep alive the spirit of opposition to British encroachments. Yet Adams remained undaunted, writing that, Where there is a spark of patriotic fire, we will enkindle it. Perhaps he realized that no revolutionary movement has ever proceeded in a straight-line fashion. Rather, it runs a zigzag course with periodic bursts of intensity, alternating with periods of lull and consolidation, and even partial retreat. Indeed, just as the liberal movement was being forced into partial retreat, the seeds of the next great advance were being sown. 
It soon became clear that the British were laying plans. Following the wedge in the door achieved by their payment of Hutchinson's salary, the British would proceed to the far more serious step of paying the Massachusetts judges salaries as well. In short, Great Britain claimed the right not merely to tax the people of Massachusetts without their consent, but also to make judges independent of the colonists by means of the very taxes extracted from them. This move by the Crown was also a reward for the judges' tenderness toward the British troops in the Boston Massacre cases. The British move was particularly unpopular because Hutchinson had filled the principal post of the Massachusetts judiciary with his own Tory-minded relatives, Lynn's, Cotton's, and Oliver's. With Hancock and Adams now reconciled, the Boston town meeting promptly denounced this plan. The issue next went to the Massachusetts Assembly, which affirmed that such a proposal infringed the constitutional rights of the Assembly, and at the end of June 1772 passed this resolution by a vote of 85 to 19. Typically, Hutchinson dissolved the general court. Although Massachusetts found itself in a period of troubled quiet, the resentment against Britain remained alive in that other radical colony, South Carolina. A long-continuing dispute arose over the appropriation by the House at the end of 1769 of a gift of 1,500 pounds sterling to the English radical leader John Wilkes, the enraged Crown ordered the governor of South Carolina to veto any further revenue bills that did not expressly delimit the uses of appropriated money and that failed to penalize the colony's treasurer if he should spend treasury funds without consent of the governor and council, as well as of the House. In short, the House was ordered to agree to stripping itself of its vital power over all appropriations in the colony. This, the House, led by Thomas Lynch, Christopher Gadsden, and John Rutledge, flatly refused to do. This impasse with the Crown and with the royally appointed governor and council pitted against the House continued beyond the end of the Townsend Act crisis. The South Carolina House steadfastly refused to pass any revenue bill complying with the royal instructions, that is, any bill inconsistent with the proper rights of the people. So radicalized was the South Carolina oligarchy by this bitter struggle that even a cautious trimmer, like Henry Lawrence wrote at the end of 1771, that he would rather have no tax bill for seven years and even forfeit his whole estate, then surrender, for the issue involved was nothing less than the very essence of true liberty. The royal instruction to South Carolina was, to Lawrence, a threat equal to the hated stamp tax. Lord Hillsborough, typically, was determined to grant no concession to South Carolina, and the South Carolina House was repeatedly dissolved, Notwithstanding, the South Carolina House would not yield. The latter's resistance, in fact, was stiffened by a vote of confidence by the electorate in the spring 1772 elections. Volume 3, Chapter 53, The Gaspé Incident
During the period of relative calm, trouble had not only been stirred by British aggressiveness against Massachusetts and South Carolina. The Restrictive Trade and Navigation Acts, to which were now added the sugar and tea duties, were always in danger of being enforced now that the era of salutary neglect was gone forever. Underneath the seeming calm, there remained the inner contradictions of potential conflict over enforcement. Only a spark, only a minor incident was needed to bring this potential to the surface. Customs enforcement had been intensified since late 1771. Already in November, two incidents of resistance against the officials had occurred. The controller of customs at Falmouth, Massachusetts, had been forced by a mob to tell them the name of an informer. And off Philadelphia, thirty armed men captured the crew of a customs schooner and rescued a confiscated merchant vessel. It is not surprising, however, that the culminating crisis should have burst forth in prickly, steadfastly independent little Rhode Island. Here was a colony that valued its trade so much as to have proved a poor security risk during the days of non-importation. But this very spirit led the Rhode Islanders to resent with particular bitterness British customs collectors trespassing upon their freedom of trade. Rhode Island had had a stirring recent history of conflict with customs officials. We have already seen its struggles with the hated John Robinson, after Robinson became one of Boston's customs commissioners in late 1767, he was replaced as Rhode Island Collector of Customs by Charles Dudley, Jr., and the Rhode Island resistance continued. In May 1769, the customs commissioners sent to Newport the Liberty, which had been converted to a naval sloop after being seized from John Hancock. The Liberty commanded by the zealous captain William Reed, promptly began to seize merchant vessels right and left. This intensification of customs enforcement in Rhode Island swelled the resentment of its citizens. In mid-June 1769, Dudley's deputy collector, Jesse Seville, was seized as an informer by an angry mob and nearly beaten to death. Whereupon the fiery Providence Gazette trenchantly declared that Seville was treated with more tenderness and lenity than is perhaps due an informer. In mid-July, Captain Reed called the attention of the townspeople of Newport to the depredations of his sloop. For in the harbor, the Liberty fired brutally upon one of the ships it had seized, even firing upon the captain escaping in an open boat. The next night, the angry people of Newport rose up, Forcing Reed to remove his crew from the Liberty, they grounded, scuttled, and then burned the customs sloop to the ground. The seized vessels naturally took the opportunity to escape. True to Rhode Island tradition, nothing was done by the democratically elected government to apprehend the leaders of the mob. Finally, by the spring of 1771, Rhode Islanders were moved to proceed against Dudley himself. The highest representative of royal authority in Rhode Island was beaten almost to death. Thus the stage was set in Rhode Island for the smashing of the relative lull of 1770-72. 
In March 1772, there sailed into Rhode Island waters the British naval schooner Gaspé, commanded by Lieutenant William Duddingston, known to Rhode Islanders for having savagely beaten up a defenseless fisherman in Pennsylvania three years before. Duddingston lost no time in impressing his personality upon the public. Without even notifying Governor Joseph Wanton, Duddingston illegally launched a systematic campaign of hounding local vessels. Soon, Duddingston intensified the drive and arrogantly stopped, searched, or fired upon everything afloat on the pretext of rigorously enforcing the laws. Duddingston and his men also stole livestock from Rhode Island farms and lumber from woodsmen. The public was understandably hard put to distinguish the British sailors from mere pirates. The Rhode Island merchants proposed to outfit an armed ship to rescue any vessel seized by the gas pay, but Admiral John Montague, based at Boston, scotched the plan by threatening to hang all concerned as pirates. On June 9, 1772, the hated Gaspé ran aground off Warwick in the course of a fierce pursuit of a merchant vessel. When the people of Providence heard the good news, the town's wealthiest merchant and a son of liberty, John Brown, organized a joyous party of citizens to finish the job begun by nature. Brown and his party, which included James Sabin and Captain Abraham Whipple, sailed to the Gaspé, shot and wounded Lieutenant Duddingston, removed the crew, and burned the Gaspé to the ground. A satisfactory night's work done, the people of Providence then went about their business. Ever since the attack on the British vessel St. John, eight years earlier, Rhode Islanders had been steeped in the pleasant tradition of a lack of strenuous search by the government for the parties responsible for such incidents. But in early September, the Crown suddenly decided to bypass Rhode Island authorities and to send the guilty parties to England for high treason. A royal commission of inquiry was appointed to find the culprits, deliver them to England via the Royal Navy, and to call on General Gage's troops, if necessary, for support. Appointed to the commission was Governor Wanton of Rhode Island, who could be depended upon not to search too hard. But he was more than offset by the other members, four of the top royally appointed judges in the colonies, specifically Robert Ockmoody, who was the vice-admiralty judge at Boston, and the chief justices of New Jersey, Massachusetts, and New York. Now, here, in the escalation of law enforcement into the hands of British authorities by setting up a star chamber procedure and threatening trials for treason in England, was not only a dramatic incident of conflict, but also a serious threat to colonial liberties. The Pennsylvania Journal representing American sentiment, warned that such a commission could make the lot of the colonists worse than the subjects of the most despotic power on earth. Thus, in June 1772, the people of Rhode Island burned the British schooner Gaspé, and the British reacted ominously by appointing a royal commission of inquiry in early September. The latter move was followed later in the month by a step long feared by the citizens of Massachusetts. 
the announcement of a decision by the Crown to pay judicial salaries in Massachusetts out of customs revenue. No longer would judges be paid by and therefore subject to the control of the Colonial Assembly. Specifically, the salaries to be paid permanently and securely by the Crown were those of the Attorney General and the Solicitor General of Massachusetts and the five judges of the Superior Court of the Colony, a reward to precisely those officials who had shown their tenderness for the British troops responsible for the Boston Massacre. It is not surprising that these deeds especially the appointing of the Gaspé Commission, should have aroused the dormant radical movement in America, or that the first sign of revival should have come in Massachusetts, or that its first spokesman should have been Samuel Adams. Volume 3, Chapter 54, The Committees of Correspondence As soon as the judge's salary decision became known, Sam Adams mounted a campaign of pressure for a Boston town meeting on the issue. Writing in the Boston Gazette, Adams asked whether it was not high time for the people of this country explicitly to declare whether they would be free men or slaves. He concluded, Let associations and combinations be everywhere set up to consult and recover our just rights. But Adams' campaign faced once again the opposition of his conservative colleagues, led now by John Hancock and other Boston select men. Finally, by October 28, the determined Adams had pushed through a town meeting. At a final meeting on November 2, and after great difficulty, Adams won support for his plan for a permanent committee of correspondence. As a standing committee of Boston, it was to expound the rights of the colonists and to communicate its declarations to other towns and colonies. There had been several other committees of correspondence, especially as standing committees of colonial assemblies in America, but those had been ad hoc for specific tasks of protest. Adams was the first to propose and secure a committee of correspondence on a permanent footing, its purpose, as Edward Collins wrote, was to organize in such a way that it could be utilized that spirit of suspicion, discontent, and rebellion which he had long been fomenting in Massachusetts. Election to the 21-man Committee of Correspondence was spurned by the conservative leaders of the American resistance, Hancock, Speaker Thomas Cushing, and several select men and wealthy merchants. As a result, the leadership of the committee devolved upon determined radical spirits, Sam Adams, the returned Dr. Thomas Young, and William Cooper. Eighteen of the committee members were Sons of Liberty. James Otis, as front man, was made original chairman, but Otis's insanity soon forced Adams to take up the chairmanship. Assurances of support for Boston's militant leadership were secured by Adams from such eminent friends and allies as Elbridge Gerry of the town of Marblehead and James Warren of Plymouth. Sam Adams was now in his element, and on November 20, this driving libertarian leader presented from the committee to the Boston town meeting the Boston Resolves. 
The resolves consisted essentially of a state of the rights of the colonist, written by Adams himself, and a list of infringements and violation of those rights drawn up by young Dr. Joseph Warren. Adams stunned the Tories by going beyond mere positive law to rest his case for liberty squarely upon that old clarion call to revolution, natural rights. For if rights were derived by man from his nature, then any body of positive law violating those rights can be, and indeed must be, challenged. Adams asserted man's natural rights bluntly and lucidly. Among the natural rights of the colonies are these. First, a right to life. Secondly, to liberty. Thirdly, to property. Together with the right to support and defend them in the best manner they can. Those are evident branches of, rather than deductions from, the duty of self-preservation, commonly called the first law of nature. All men have a right to remain in the state of nature as long as they please, and in case of intolerable oppression, civil or religious, to leave the society they belong to and enter into another. Every natural right not explicitly given up or from the nature of a social compact necessarily ceded remains. The list of infringements summed up the specific grievances of the colonists against the British for violations of their rights, assumption by Parliament of the power to legislate for the Americans without their consent, and to tax them without their consent, the appointment of a corps of royal customs officials supported by fleets and by troops quartered in Boston and New York without their consent, payment from taxes of gubernatorial and judicial salaries by Britain rather than by the assemblies, extension of the powers of vice-admiralty courts, restriction of American iron and hat manufacturing, and attempts to impose an Anglican episcopate in America, the determined opposition of the conservative patriots to Adams' campaign, proved to be the peevish expression of a small minority of the people of Massachusetts. The 300 members of the Boston Town Meeting of November 20 voted unanimously to approve and disseminate these resolves. What is more, the resolutions had immediate success in other towns throughout Massachusetts and spread like wildfire, along with the idea of permanent committees of correspondence. Massachusetts' opinion was set ablaze, and even as cautious a liberal as John Adams was moved to declare that there was no more justice left in Britain than there was in hell, that I wished for war. Town after town endorsed the Boston Resolves. Of the 240 towns in Massachusetts, 80, including the major towns, quickly voted support, while most of the others prepared to follow. Along with this approval, each town appointed its own permanent committee of correspondence, led by Plymouth, then Cambridge, Marblehead, Charlestown, and Newburyport, and the town of Pembroke enthusiastically made the Adams' resolutions even more explicit. The American people, it declared, are warranted by the laws of God and nature. 
in the use of every rightful act and energy of policy, stratagem, and force. In that era, being poor was deemed rather a disgrace than a badge of merit. Hence, Tories, such as Thomas Hutchinson, whose interpretation of the history of Massachusetts has greatly influenced later historians, were wont to pillory the resistance movement as a collection of poor and lowly rabble. In reality, however, this was a true mass movement led by the bulk of the propertied in almost every town of Massachusetts, small or large. Only a few towns of varying size, such as Salem and Weston, failed to join the ranks. Alarmed by the rapid spread of popular rebellious agitation and seeing the implication of the resolves for revolution and independence, Governor Hutchinson called together the general court in early 1773 and tried to browbeat it into acknowledging absolute parliamentary authority. But this only succeeded in fanning higher the revolutionary flames. The general court and the Boston town meeting flatly repulsed his efforts. To Hutchinson's accusations of thoughts of revolution and independence, Sam Adams and Boston countered with the great and overriding natural law of self-preservation and liberty. In the Massachusetts spring elections of 1773, the radicals swept all before them, no longer did Adams receive significantly fewer votes than his colleagues in the House, and the towns reaffirmed their instructions in behalf of liberty. In Andover, the wealthiest citizen, Councillor Samuel Phillips, led the popular movement for the resolves, and even Hatfield replaced its Tory representative, Israel Williams, with an eminent liberal of the town. The popular liberals also ousted two Tories from the council, asked to have Hutchinson and Lieutenant Governor Oliver recalled, and threatened to impeach the judges should they dare to accept salaries from the Crown. Hutchinson responded by dissolving the general court. The Boston resolves and news of the creation of the Boston Committee of Correspondence were spread to other colonies by the committee and had immediate impact. Undoubtedly, by this time, Sam Adams and other far-sighted radicals, realizing the implications of natural rights theory, were toying with the idea of American independence. Samuel Parsons of Providence wrote to Adams in March 1773 that the idea of unalterable allegiance to any prince or state is inadmissible. Our 17th century ancestors, he added, were virtually independent of Great Britain. Was this not a useful hint for the future? Adams intended to urge the sending of a circular letter to all the other colonies, calling for committees of correspondence in all the provincial assemblies. But here he was anticipated by the radical leaders of Virginia, who were inspired by Boston's committee to establish a committee of correspondence of the Provincial House. Six years earlier, Richard Henry Lee had proposed intercolonial committees of correspondence. Now Lee, Patrick Henry, and Thomas Jefferson led the Virginia House of Burgesses on March 12, 1773, to create the first standing committee of correspondence of a provincial assembly. The Virginia Committee was to concentrate, naturally, 
on the gas pay inquiry rather than on Massachusetts' judicial salaries. The first assembly to follow Virginia's example was Rhode Island, which in mid-May chose a committee of leading merchants and politicians of the colony, including Stephen Hopkins, Moses Brown, and Henry Ward. Rhode Island was quickly followed by the lower houses of Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, led, of course, by Sam Adams. Thus, by June 1773, New England and Virginia had established assembly committees of correspondence. The other colonies were slower to join in the campaign. First came South Carolina in July, and by the end of the year, all colonial assemblies except New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania had selected committees of correspondence. New York and New Jersey joined in the first two months of 1774, but Pennsylvania's house, run by the Tory speaker Joseph Galloway, failed completely to respond. The provincial committees of correspondence, however, proved to be of little importance. Necessarily bureaucratic and slow-moving organizations tied to approval of their assemblies and unable to meet when their governing body was not in session, the provincial committees proved too staid and cumbersome to be effective. Instead, it was the local committees, begun in Boston by Sam Adams, that proved to be the important and efficient engines of agitation and revolution. These freewheeling local committees were the major instruments of revolution, for a successful revolution not only needs ideology, leadership, and mass support and enthusiasm, it needs also institutions and organization. That organization was now being supplied by the local committees of correspondence, in which the old sons of liberty were glad to submerge. Meanwhile, the Royal Commission of Inquiry, whose menace had touched off such intense reaction, was mired in ignominious failure. The commission, denounced as an inquisition at every hand, could not haul convicts to England unless they were caught. And how could evidence of crime be gathered when virtually the entire colony approved the deed? Furthermore, the commission was dependent on the local authorities for warrants for information and for enforcing arrests. But local authority was elected by the populace, and in wholehearted sympathy with the alleged criminals in the Gaspé affair. Even if the authorities had cooperated, the Crown could have done little about the stubborn refusal of the people of Providence to point out the guilty parties in the burning of the gas bay. Remarkably, not a single informer could be found. After holding meetings in January and May, the gas bay commission acknowledged defeat and disbanded in June 1773. The disbanding of the commission was aided by Lord Dartmouth's opposition to any trials in England. A Whig, Dartmouth had succeeded Lord Hillsborough as Secretary of State for the colonies in the fall of 1772. As a corollary, Lieutenant Duddingston was successfully sued by some merchants for confiscating their rum and sugar. Customs officials throughout the colonies relaxed their enforcement, and seizures declined by nearly three-fifths. In sum, 
By mid-1773, the American revolutionary movement had progressed far beyond where it was the year before. Massachusetts and South Carolina were embroiled in chronic problems with Great Britain. But more important, the British revenue ship Gaspé had been burned and its royal commission of inquiry cleverly thwarted by the people of Rhode Island. And rising out of this victory was the rapid development of a crucial network of committees of correspondence that embraced towns, counties, and assemblies of the colonies. Spurred into being by the Gaspé affair, these committees remained as continuing expressions of public opinion and revolutionary pressure. Volume 3, Chapter 55 Tea Launches the Final Crisis The duty on tea, a modest levy of threepence per pound, was the only Townsend duty not repealed in 1770. The American boycott on British tea continued after 1770. Although the boycott was only partially observed in most of the ports, it was strictly maintained in the two major tea-buying ports of New York and Philadelphia, which shifted to buying smuggled tea from Holland and the Dutch West Indies. Here was a happy marriage of principle and economic self-interest, for the price of smuggled tea was considerably lower than that imported from Great Britain. During 1771 and 1772, the Americans imported 580,000 pounds of British tea, of which Boston imported 375,000 pounds, and the southern ports most of the remainder. In contrast to this average annual import of dutiable tea of 290,000 pounds, total American consumption per year was estimated at 6.5 million pounds. Even reducing the sum to half, British tea was not in these years able to capture over 8% of the vast American tea market. The British tea price could have been far more competitive with Dutch tea, even with the three-penny burden, because the Townsend Act had removed the shilling tax on imports of tea into England for all tea re-exported to America. In 1769, however, the East India Company, to which Britain had granted a monopoly on the import of tea, the tea was imported from China, followed the typical path of monopoly and raised the upset price it charged at auction from about two shillings three pence a pound to three shillings. Since tea in Holland sold for less than two shillings, the uneconomic status of British tea in the colonies became evident. The structure of the English tea trade was as follows. The East India Company monopoly imported tea from Canton, China, using its full governmental powers to rule India as the trading base for the lucrative China commerce. The company sold the tea at public auction, setting the minimum or upset price. English merchants bought it at auction and sold the tea to American importing merchants who in turn sold it to the retailers. American purchase of British tea was discouraged not only by the high price, but also by the irregular timing of the East India auctions, which did not permit proper advance planning by American merchants. 
The price raising by the East India Company was a reflection as much of its growing financial difficulties as of its privileged monopoly status. The East India Company did not enjoy prosperity during the widespread economic boom of 1769 through 72. Its high price, coupled with the American tea boycott, caused millions of pounds of tea to pile up unsold in East India warehouses. Moreover, a powerful clique of speculators in East India stock insisted on paying a high dividend. Thus, hazardously running up the stock far above what was justified by the actual operations of the company, they paid the high dividend, even though this burdened the company further by legally obligating it to pay an annual sum of four hundred thousand pounds to the crown. Furthermore, the company was legally liable for reimbursing the crown for revenues foregone. From exempting it from duties on tea re-exported to America, the loss of the American market caused the unpaid liability to pile up, reaching over seven hundred thousand pounds by September 1772. The company's dwindling sales, its overpurchase of tea in relation to the actual American market, and its heavy expenses in running the government of Bengal. All contributed to making its position precarious. The East India Company lost money in Bengal, but the company bureaucrats there were able to garner large personal fortunes by plundering the natives. An act of June 1772 eliminated any further need for company reimbursement of the government for loss of tax revenue. It also replaced two fifths of the former import duty levied on the company's re-exported tea. But since little tea was being re-exported to America anyway, this extra burden proved to be academic. Finally, in mid-June, the great economic boom of 1770-72 followed the usual path of booms based upon credit expansion, financial crash, and depression. A wave of failures of leading banks in London and Scotland brought about distress and a stock market crash. The stock boom had been fueled by bank credit expansion in London, Amsterdam, and Paris. The general credit crash of mid 1772 hit particularly at the heavily overinflated East India shares, the price of which fell by 60 percent in the month of July alone. The crash of East India stock was also aggravated by attacks in Parliament upon the company in the spring of 1772, attacks because of its tyranny, plunder, and rapacity as a private monopoly vested with state power in India. Neither the Whig calls for vigorous reform of the monopoly, nor the Crown's drive for tight governmental control over its own creature, was calculated to aid its financial fortunes. In September, the company passed its dividend and also defaulted on customs payments to the Treasury. Since these payments were important to the Treasury, the British government itself was now in deep financial trouble. The Crown then decided to effect a twofold plan: to relieve the affairs of the East India Company and save it from imminent bankruptcy, 
and to move as a kind of quid pro quo to take over control of its unruly creature. The best way to relieve the company, in addition to a large parliamentary loan, seemed to be to sell some of the seventeen million pound surplus inventory of East India tea to the long-lost American market. And what better way to dump the tea than by lowering its price and expanding East India Company operations to direct sales to the colonies? Hence. The Tea Act of May, 1773. The Tea Act first restored the full exemption or drawback of duties paid on tea imported into England and then re-exported to America. Second, it continued the old threepence duty on American tea imports, despite the pleas of the East India Company, in order to gain some revenue. And to preserve the principle of parliamentary taxation of American trade, but these provisions were relatively unimportant, as they merely continued policies that had prevailed since 1767 and had provoked little clamor. The radical innovation, the deed that alarmed and provoked the Americans, was to extend the hated and feared East Indian monopoly. To American shores, for the Tea Act authorized the East India Company to obtain a license from the Treasury and to export tea to America on its own account and from its own warehouses. These sales on all inventory of tea over ten million pounds could be made either to merchants it designated or to branch houses of its own in America. Here was a grievous threat indeed to the merchants of America. The East India Company could now employ its monopoly power to cut prices even below smuggling prices, and to arrogate the entire American tea trade to a new vast network of its own agents, branches, and favored merchants. New York and Philadelphia merchants, in particular, feared imminent ruin. Of their flourishing trade in smuggled Dutch tea, but the fears of American merchants were hardly confined to tea. They knew full well that the East India Company imported into England vast quantities of other commodities: silks, calicoes, spices, chinaware, and so forth. And if now the East India Company were to take over the American tea business, could these commodities be far behind? Indeed, such a scheme was already being proposed to England by the Tory merchant of Philadelphia, Thomas Wharton. Philadelphia had already had bitter experience with East India Company machinations in other commodities than tea. In 1771, when China ware first began to be manufactured successfully in Philadelphia, the East India Company, monopoly importers of China ware into England, managed to manipulate the price to fall by one fourth in order to destroy its newfound American competition. It is the curious position of some historians. That to focus on mercantile opposition to the East India monopoly means to charge such hostility to the Tea Act with lacking principle, with being confined to economic self-interest, and with lacking the support of the bulk of the people. On the contrary, 
There is no necessary contradiction between political principle and economic self-interest. Opposition to a governmentally privileged monopoly is in itself a high principle, which can be and was upheld by the American populace as well as by the merchants. The fact that the competing merchants would also have been driven to the wall by the East India monopoly was certainly a compelling reason for mercantile opposition to the Tea Act, but it did not conflict with the libertarian principles that generally animated American opinion. Quite the opposite. Defense of one's property and commerce against a privileged monopoly is required by libertarian principle. Liberty implies property rights and free trade. It does not contradict them. Historians as disparate as Robert E. Brown and James Truslow Adams agree in upholding the spurious contradiction. Thus Adams, generally pro-British, sneers at the anti-monopoly focus as involving absolutely no principle, presumably since defense of one's economic rights can never be conjoined with high principles. Brown, determinedly anti-British in accepting this fallacious dichotomy, tries oddly and unsuccessfully to assert that the main focus of American opposition to the Tea Act was on the tea tax and not on monopoly. In this way, he hopes to salvage democratic principle in what would otherwise be a supposedly narrow, selfish economic ground for American resistance. But his attempt ignores the fact that the tea tax had been quietly on the books since 1767 and that no new tax or even more rigorous enforcement was here being imposed. Another vital factor in the colonists' opposition to the East India invasion was their horror at the brutal and rapacious record of East India Company government in Bengal, its depredations, monopoly, and ruinous taxation, a record that had led directly to the disastrous Bengal famine of 1769-71, one of the most terrible famines in history, it killed millions, eradicating a full one-third of the population of Bengal. The specter of that famine and of the East India Company tyranny that had brought it about was in the minds of the American people as they confronted the prospect of the East India Company extending its tentacles to America. This horror at the record of the East India Company was expressed most forcefully and eloquently in the widely circulated pamphlet of Pennsylvania's eminent liberal leader, John Dickinson. There, the East India Company's conduct in Asia for some years past has given ample proof how little they regard the laws of nations, the rights, liberties, or lives of men. They have levied war, excited rebellions, dethroned princes, and sacrificed millions for the sake of gain. The revenue of mighty kingdoms have centered in their coffers, and these not being sufficient to glut their avarice, they have, by the most unparalleled barbarities, 
extortions, and monopolies stripped the miserable inhabitants of their property and reduced whole provinces to indigence and ruin. Fifteen hundred thousand perished by famine in one year, not because the earth denied its fruits, but this company and its servants engrossed all the necessaries of life and set them at so high a rate that the poor could not purchase them. Thus, having drained the sources of that immense wealth, they now, it seems, cast their eyes to America as a new threat whereon to exercise their talents of rapine, oppression, and cruelty. The monopoly of tea is, I dare say, but a small part of the plan they have formed to strip us of our property. In coming to the aid of the near-bankrupt East India Company, the British government did not neglect its quid pro quo. In two companion acts to the Tea Act, it took care to grant itself control of East India affairs and patronage. Thus, the top governors of India were now to be named by the government. This takeover, too, had grave repercussions in the colonies, for this involved a violation of the East India Company Charter by Great Britain, and the Americans feared nothing more than a threat of tampering with their precious colonial charters. Yet here was clear precedent for large-scale intervention. American opposition, particularly New York opposition, to the new tea policy was whipped up by the brilliant theoretician of the Rockingham Whigs, Edmund Burke. Burke was appointed New York's London agent in late 1770, and his correspondence had great influence in forming opinion in that colony. Opposed to the record of the East India Company, and especially to the Crown's takeover, Burke bitterly attacked the King's friends and the Tories who were behind the Tea Act. He urged Americans to resist, pledging the full support of the English Whigs in that effort. Volume 3, Chapter 56, The Boston Tea Party the first concrete step of the East India Company to invade the American market came at the end of August 1773 and was published in the American press in September, aiming eventually to construct a factory in Philadelphia and its own warehouse in each of three leading American ports. The company decided to begin by shipping 600,000 pounds of tea to a few favored merchants as agents or consignees in the four leading ports of America. The merchants of the four ports quickly mobilized against this threat and were backed by the press and the bulk of the populace. It was clear to the resistors that the best way to meet the tea invasion was in the same way that the hated stamps had been repulsed by revolutionary mob violence or the threat thereof against the few favored distributors of the commodity. In 1765, the appointed stamp distributors had been persuaded by force to resign their post. Now it was the few consignees designated by the company to receive the tea. After securing their resignation, the next step was to prevent the East India tea from landing on American shores. The British government had no idea that the Tea Act 
would cause any particular stir, much less that violence against its agents, direct or indirect, would be resumed. Not surprisingly, matters came to a head in Boston, that great center of Anglo-American confrontations faced a British fleet and troops stationed offshore. Moreover, it had as governor the flint-hearted Tory Thomas Hutchinson. Opinion had been inflamed against Hutchinson the previous spring when the wily Benjamin Franklin, to ingratiate himself with his employers, the Massachusetts Assembly, secretly sent them old letters of Hutchinson and of his henchman, Andrew Oliver, expressing Tory views and calling on Britain for tough policies against the colonies. Sam Adams' publication of the letters in June polarized the silent conflict between Massachusetts and its governor and provoked him to be more intransigent than ever. Three of the Boston Tea consignees, by no coincidence, turned out to be two sons and a nephew of Hutchinson, in a firm of which the governor himself was a member and probable partner. Hutchinson's personal interest in East India tea simply strengthened his Tory resolve to give not an inch to the colonist. Thus, whereas the executive officials of the three other colonies, lacking specific instructions to the contrary, were happy to look the other way while mob pressure was put upon the consignees, Hutchinson resolved to back the consignees to the hilt. On November 3, a Boston mob gathered at the Liberty Tree to witness an expected resignation by the consignees. Thwarted by their refusal, the mob stormed the store of Richard Clark, Hutchinson's nephew, and was only driven off after a prolonged struggle by a group of friends of the consignees. Two days later, on November 5 and 6, a Boston town meeting was assembled and presided over by John Hancock. The meeting unanimously adopted resolutions demanding that no merchants import any British tea, and appointed a committee including such radical leaders as Sam Adams, William Molyneux, and Dr. Joseph Warren to pressure the resignation of the consignees. But the consignees were emboldened by Hutchinson's support and repeatedly refused to resign. When the tea arrived, they, along with the harassed customs commissioners, took secure refuge with the British troops at Castle William. With the consignees refusing to resign, stopping the landing of the tea became ever more important to the Americans. Transcending the bounds of Boston, Sam Adams called a joint meeting of the committees of correspondence of the towns of Boston, Roxbury, Brookline, and Cambridge for November 22. The meeting resolved unanimously to prevent the landing and sale of the tea, and the Boston Committee was instructed to raise the town to immediate and effectual opposition. The Boston town meeting, furthermore, was now superseded by the unofficial, flexible, and more powerful revolutionary institution, the Body Meeting, a recurring mass meeting of the body of all inhabitants of Boston and Roxbury, Brookline, and Cambridge. The first tea ship, the Dartmouth, arrived at Boston Harbor on November 27. Two other East India tea ships followed a few days later. 
Promptly, two great mass meetings of the body met through November 29 and 30, presided over by the eminent merchant Jonathan Williams. The mass meeting adopted unanimously the resolution of Sam Adams that the tea be shipped back by the East India Company and that no duty whatever be paid on the tea. The latter demand represented an advance in American goals. Hutchinson sent the sheriff to disperse the unlawful assemblage, but he was hissed down by the meeting. While the consignees discreetly repaired to Castle William, Hutchinson responded to the popular demand by refusing the ship's permission to leave the harbor unless duty were paid. Thus, the East India ships were caught between two swords. On receiving word of the situation from their committees of correspondence, town after town in Massachusetts resolved to back the Boston mass meeting to the hilt, including Cambridge, Brookline, Roxbury, Charlestown, Marblehead, Plymouth, Malden, Gloucester, Lexington, Groton, Newburyport, Lynn, and Medford. The deadlock at the port could not continue indefinitely. The tea ships at entry into port made the vessels liable to seizure by the customs officers after twenty days for non-payment of duty. The rebels were afraid that once the customs officers had the tea, they could land it, sell it secretly to the people, and use the money to pay the salaries of the appointed officials of the colony. Meanwhile, the Boston Committee of Correspondence provided a military guard on the tea ships to make sure that the tea was not landed in secret. Clearly, the tea must be destroyed before its confiscation by customs, and the period of grace for the Dartmouth was up on December 17. The last chance for the colonists was therefore on December 16. That day, the 16th, a great mass meeting of the body of 8,000 people learned of Hutchinson's refusal to allow the Dartmouth to sail home. The meeting heard the news with great restiveness and anger. Several angry speeches ensued. The prominent merchant John Rowe asked meaningfully, Who knows how tea will mingle with salt water? Finally, Sam Adams arose to give the signal that angry words must now give way to deeds. This meeting can do nothing more to save the country. Thereupon, a remarkably disciplined ginger group of Sons of Liberty, disguised as Mohawk Indians, rushed to Griffin's Wharf, boarded all three tea ships, and spent several hours of the night dumping every bit of East India tea into Boston Harbor. No other property and no person was at all harmed. This was the famous and electrifying Boston Tea Party. The heroic band of Mohawks that defied British armed might numbered over a hundred and represented a cross-section of the populace, from leading merchants to farmers, carpenters, and blacksmiths. The band also probably included such prominent radical leaders as the merchants William Molyneux and Henry Bass, the engraver Paul Revere, the young clerk and writer James Swan, the old South End gang leader Ebenezer McIntosh, and the ardent radical theoretician Dr. Thomas Young, who had previously made the first public suggestion for dumping the tea overboard. 
The Mohawks had done their work well, and Hutchinson soon found that no Americans, whether the council, grand juries, justices of the peace, sheriffs, or the militia, would help to track down the culprits. Only one witness to the Tea Party was willing to testify, but only if the trial took place in England. John Adams hailed the Tea Party as an epic in history and as the most magnificent moment of all the actions of the Patriot forces before the outbreak of the Revolution. Many Massachusetts towns leaped to the support of the Tea Party. Many were sufficiently radicalized by the occasion to deny Parliament's rights to legislate for and to tax the colonies and to pay for the salaries of colonial officials. These included the towns of Hadley, Braintree, Sheffield, Andover, and Worcester. On the other hand, a few towns were frightened by the radical deed and dissolved their committees of correspondence. Volume 3, Chapter 57 The Other Colonies Resist Tea The rebels had an easier time of it in the other colonies, with no Hutchinson or British fleet to hinder them, and with the inspiring example of the Boston Tea Party before them, the consignees and tea ships put up little resistance to popular pressure. The first public meeting of protest in the colonies against the Tea Act took place in Philadelphia on October 16. The citizens of Philadelphia adopted a comprehensive set of resolutions that served as a model for Boston and the other colonies. The Tea Act and tea duty were denounced, and a committee was appointed to demand resignation of the consignees. The consignees, including Thomas Wharton, saw the way the wind blew and soon resigned. A second public meeting warned against the landing of the tea. The tea ship sailed up the Delaware on December 25. The vessel was stopped four miles from Philadelphia, thus avoiding the Boston problem of the customs duty. The captain was deeply impressed with the intense feeling of the public against landing the tea. Two days later, a huge public meeting of 8,000 assembled in the town and demanded that the captain sail immediately for England. The meeting also voiced its resounding approval of the Boston Tea Party, doing so over the opposition of its more conservative resolutions committee. The captain of the tea ship agreed to bow to the public will and promptly returned to England. Philadelphia had repulsed the tea threat. In New York, the story blended many of the same elements of the Philadelphia and Boston episodes. In preparation for the tea ship, an Association of the Sons of Liberty was drawn up on November 29, which association called for a boycott against any enemies to its country. Enemies were those who might aid in introducing the British tea into the country or who might buy or sell the tea after it had landed. A boycott was also called against those who had failed to boycott the transgressors. The association was signed by the leading lawyers, merchants, and merchant shipmasters, landowners, and mechanics of New York. A committee of the newly formed sons then pressured the three New York consignees to resign, aided by a public threat of violence issued by the radical Mohawks, a direct action group formed by the Sons of Liberty. 
Under this pressure, and realizing that mass opinion was solidly against them, the consignees resigned their post on December 1. The Sons then held a mass meeting of 2,000 on December 17, headed by the veteran radical leader, the merchant John Lamb. The meeting denounced the landing of NET and decided to appoint a committee of correspondence to write to other colonies. Harbor pilots were warned against guiding any tea ships into port. The meeting derisively spurned the mayor's suggestion that the British tea be stored at the local fort. In reaction to this meeting, the conservative Isaac Lowe launched a movement to renounce the use of force in opposing the landing of the tea. But this movement was swept aside by popular enthusiasm upon receipt of the news of the Boston Tea Party. When a tea ship arrived off New York the following April, the captain, heeding the counsel of the Committee of Correspondence, promised not to enter the port and sailed away. A few days later, however, another sea captain was planning to sneak 18 chests of tea into New York. The angry citizens, on discovering the ruse, emulated the Bostonians by boarding the ship and dumping the tea into the sea. The treacherous captain promptly fled to another vessel and sailed back to England. The final port to be sent the tea was Charleston. There the radicals were in more difficult straits than elsewhere, since Charleston had not been an important center of the tea trade and the merchants were not as directly threatened. The tea ship London arrived on December 2, precipitating a mass meeting the following day. The meeting, headed by Christopher Gadson, succeeded in persuading the tea consignees to resign their commissions. It further agreed to circulate among the merchants of Charleston a petition pledging the non-importation of British tea. Gadson and the others found, however, that while the planters and artisans, soon to form a John Wilkes Club, were eager to pledge a boycott of merchants importing dutiable tea, the merchants themselves were reluctant to join the ranks. A showdown meeting of merchants, planters, and mechanics was held on December 17, each of the three groups having privately caucused in preparation for the critical meeting. The radicals passed a resolution for non-importation of duty teas, but the conservative merchants managed to weaken the resolve by including all teas in the interdict, including smuggled Dutch teas, and allowing six months for consumption of their current stocks of dutiable British tea. While the struggles continued over a boycott, the tea ships remained in the harbor. The 20-day period for payment of duty would soon expire, after which non-paying ships were subject to seizure. Would the people of Charleston follow the Bostonians in a bold tea party? On the contrary, the merchants' opposition discouraged the radicals, and the customs officials seized and landed the tea on December 22 without any opposition. Nothing happened thereafter, however. The easygoing government officials made no attempt to sell the tea, and it remained safely in the government warehouse until the outbreak of the revolution. Thus, in every one of the four colonies, Determined action by the resisting Americans prevented any of the East Indian tea from reaching its consignees. Once again, 
the rebellious Americans had been successful in forcibly thwarting British designs. Moreover, tea parties continued during 1774, and the Americans soon radicalized their opposition to include the tea tax, and therefore all duty to tea, even that of private merchants. A group of Boston Mohawks destroyed a cargo of tea in March, and tea cargoes were burned during the year at Charleston, Greenwich, Annapolis, and in New Jersey. Indeed, so fiercely did the Americans concentrate upon tea that all tea, even smuggled tea, soon became boycotted and shunned for fear that the tea might be English. Tea, which had been a staple drink throughout America, soon vanished from the colonies. As early as January 30, the Boston tea dealers agreed to suspend the sale of all tea, and the movement soon spread to other towns and provinces. Volume 3, Chapter 58, The Coercive Acts News of the Boston Tea Party and the other resistance to East India tea hit the British like a thunderclap. Since the repeal of the Townsend duties over three years earlier, news of the American colonies had dropped out of the British press, and while Massachusetts had continued to be a slight irritant, it was generally assumed that everything was tranquil in the colonies. Hence, no one in Britain had an inkling of the furor that the Tea Act would cause. Suddenly, America erupted again, and now the British saw that the colonial problems had never been really quieted. They also began to see something more, that generally only the extreme poles are logical or viable, and that in-between states are logically self-contradictory and unstable mixtures that impel persistently toward one pole or the other. And so the British began to realize that continued drift and repeated near conflicts with Americans were unworkable, and that Great Britain must finally choose either to pursue appeasement and go back to the salutary neglect and colonial quasi-independence of the pre-Seven Years' War era, or to take the hard line and crush the colonists and impose absolute British rule. The choice was appeasement and peaceful coexistence on the one hand, or maximum force for total victory on the other. In keeping with its nature, of course, the Tory imperialist ruling clique opted unhesitatingly for coercion and the mailed fist. When the news of the crisis came to London, Benjamin Franklin was amid an unhappy imbroglio. While trying as agent for Massachusetts to present a Massachusetts petition for removal of Hutchinson and Oliver, the news of Franklin's responsibility for unearthing the Hutchinson-Oliver letters and sending them to Boston came to light. Reaction to Franklin's underhanded methods was widespread and understandably bitter, especially because of Franklin's presumed Tory leanings. When news of the Tea Party arrived shortly thereafter, it was not difficult for the British to leap to the absurd conclusion that the whole affair was a diabolical plot conceived by the sinister, subversive devil Dr. Franklin. 
Franklin became the general scapegoat and whipping boy, was quickly dismissed from his lucrative royal post as deputy postmaster general of America, and was roundly denounced as a viper festering the bosom of the English government, an old dotard who had schemed to make himself dictator of an independent Massachusetts. As John Adams later wrote, in reaction to the continuing hold of this myth on the minds of the British, the history of our revolution will be one continued lie from one end to the other. The essence of the whole will be that Dr. Franklin's electrical rod smote the earth and outsprang General Washington. To compound the irony, Franklin at the same time was sending his stern Tory disapproval of the Tea Party to the Massachusetts Committee of Correspondence. Franklin denounced the extremism of destroying what he chose to call private property, a designation that surely stretched the concept of private to the breaking point. Franklin also vainly demanded that Massachusetts repair the damages and pay compensation to the company. Within the cabinet, the ministry prepared to crush the rebellious Americans, the Bedfordites, the Grenvilleites, the King's friends, and King George himself howled for revenge and suppression. Only Lord North himself and the Whiggish Lord Dartmouth half-brother of North and Secretary of State for the Colonies, who had replaced Hillsborough a year and a half earlier, pleaded for confining the mailed fist to rebellious Boston. They largely won the day. But this old policy of isolating and smashing the leading center of resistance could no longer work. The American colonists were too united from years of struggle and from the growth of such revolutionary institutions as a network of local committees of correspondence. The Crown called Parliament into session in early March 1774 and presented a series of four coercive acts designed to bring Britain's might to bear upon Boston. First came the Boston Port Act, which brutally closed the port of Boston to all commerce until the town granted compensation for the lost tea to the East India Company and paid the foregone duties to the Crown. The Act also transferred the Royal Custom House from Boston to Salem for the duration of the Act. No ships were to load or unload at Boston except for military stores and whatever food or fuel might be cleared by the customs authorities. Opposition in Great Britain was revitalized. The Chathamites and the bulk of the Whigs had condemned the Tea Party, but they could not sanction coercion of the colonies. One of the few British supporters of the Tea Party had been the Wilkite radical MP Alderman Bull, who urged clearing Boston of British soldiers, brutes that have too long been suffered to live there. The plan supposedly to isolate and then coerce Boston into submission had stemmed from Lord Dartmouth and his undersecretary, John Pownall. Chatham, in opposition, urged a demand for reparation before coercion, but the most effective opposition came from the Whigs. Edmund Burke, William Dowdswell, 
the West Indian merchant Rose Fuller, and young Charles James Fox. But the opposition was in vain. With even Colonel Barre and General Conway speaking in favor of the bill, the Boston Port Bill was quickly passed on March 30, was approved by the king the following day, and became effective on June 1. Charles Van, MP from Wales, was the most extreme proponent, calling for the destruction of Boston, that nest of locusts. Great Britain added to the injury of the people of Massachusetts by seeming kindness of removing Hutchinson, but replaced him as governor and captain general by General Thomas Gage, who was sent to Boston to announce the stormy tidings and to put the bill into effect. Gage was also to transfer the seat of Massachusetts government from Boston to Salem. The Boston Port Act was soon followed in early April by the Massachusetts Government Act. North and Dartmouth had hoped to end their coercive measures with the presumably temporary rap on the knuckles of the Port Act. They now allowed themselves to be pressured into approving the second and drastically permanent act of suppression, a task made easy by the growing mental instability of Lord North. Following the counsel and guidance of former Massachusetts governor Francis Bernard, the Tories were about to see their old dream of destroying the preciously guarded Massachusetts charter come true. The Massachusetts Government Act changed the Massachusetts Council to a body appointed by the king, each councillor continuing in office at the king's pleasure. The Massachusetts governor was now given exclusive power to appoint and dismiss all executive and inferior judicial officers, including justices of the peace and sheriffs. Superior court judges were to be nominated by the governor for appointment by the king. Juries would now be chosen by the sheriff instead of democratically elected by the people of the towns. Finally, to crush the local radical centers of colonial resistance, the act barred town meetings from being held or an agenda acted upon except by express permission of the governor. The only minor victory for moderation was Dartmouth's deletion of an original proposal to bring the tea rioters to trial in Great Britain. This savage act had been staunchly opposed by some of the leading Whigs and Liberals, Sir George Seville, Colonel Barre, who had reluctantly supported the Port Act, Charles James Fox, General Conway, and Edmund Burke. Notwithstanding, it passed by a large majority, was approved on May 20, and became effective on July 1 and August 1, different provisions taking effect on the two dates. This was as far as North and Dartmouth wanted to go. But meanwhile, severe pressure for still further measures descended upon them from the rest of the cabinet, led by the Grenvilleite Lord Privy Seal, the Earl of Suffolk, and the Earl of Sandwich, a Bedfordite. Sandwich and Suffolk pushed through the Administration of Justice Act, introduced in mid-April. This act provided exemption from any high crimes committed in Massachusetts by royal officials in the course of their duties. 
Any royal official committing a capital crime in the course of collecting revenue or suppressing a riot would now have his trial transferred from the local courts to Great Britain, provided that the governor and council decided that the official could not receive a fair trial in Massachusetts. This exemption act passed overwhelmingly, despite the opposition of Colonel Barre and others, and the king signed it on May 20. No other act could have been more calculated to arouse the fears and hostilities of the colonists than the fourth coercive act, the Quartering Act, which revived the troubles over quartering British troops on the colonists. This act applied to all the colonies and forced the provinces to supply unoccupied houses and dwellings to quarter British troops at the location desired by the latter. For example, to put up the troops in Boston proper rather than at government barracks at Castle William. The Quartering Act, introduced at the same time as the Third Coercive Act, whipped through commons without debate and was opposed in the House of Lords only by Chatham. The measure received royal approval on June 7. The beleaguered Whigs heroically tried to counterattack during the passage of the Coercive Acts. In mid-April, Rose Fuller moved repeal of the Tea Act and was backed by Fox, Barre, and an eloquent and widely circulated speech by Edmund Burke. However, the motion was voted down by an overwhelming majority. Volume 3, Chapter 59, The Quebec Act A fifth act passed concurrently in the same session was regarded by the colonists and by the Rockingham Whigs as part of the coercive series. The Quebec Act was introduced in early May and passed and approved by the King at the end of June over the vigorous opposition of Barre, Fox, Burke, and Chatham. The bulk of present-day historians have chided Whigs and Americans for their opposition and fantasies about the bill and have praised the Quebec Act as a wise and statesmanlike measure. The Quebec Act had two basic parts, fastening a permanent frame of government on the people of Quebec and aggressively expanding the province's borders. The latter provision arbitrarily but provisionally extended the domain of Quebec to the French communities in the Ohio Valley and Illinois country. Although such extension threatened to interfere with speculative claims to the western lands, the Act's rather vague clause occasioned little protest because the land involved was a virtually unpopulated area concerning which the crown, beset by conflicting speculative interest, had never been able to make up its mind on a proper land policy. The really intense opposition to the Quebec Act, in both England and America, centered on its domestic provisions, its permanent frame of government for the hapless French who had been conquered in the French and Indian War, and governed only in tentative, makeshift fashion since. The root premise of this supposedly statesmanlike measure was the ingrained English view that the French Canadians were an inferior race, unfit for self-government, and fit only to be governed by an English ruling class. 
There was at this time only a handful of English in Canada, mainly merchants and royal bureaucrats. The Quebec Act deprived Quebec completely of any elected assembly, even the previously existing assembly for the handful of English there, and of any right to trial by jury in civil cases. Full legislative authority was vested in a royally appointed council, but even the acts of this creature of the crown were subject to royal veto. Moreover, the power to levy all but purely local taxes upon the Canadians was vested in Parliament itself. Executive power was to accrue to a royally appointed military governor. Furthermore, a supplementary act levied duties on imports into Quebec to pay the salaries of the royally appointed officials. The chill that this schema sent up the American colonists' spine can well be imagined, for in this there seemed to be a model of the ultimate aim of Great Britain, to reduce all the American colonies to abject creatures totally ruled by instruments of Parliament and the Crown. English or natural liberties, such as trial by jury, no taxation without consent by representation, and assembly control over executive salaries were arrogantly swept away. And there was in the Quebec Act not even a hint of any future self-government for Canada. The Quebec Act, to be sure, disestablished the Anglican Church and removed the grievous disabilities under which the French Catholics had suffered since the British conquest. But instead of allowing simple religious liberty, the Quebec Act reimposed the Roman Catholic Church as the established religious communion, thus restoring the feudal political privileges to the seigneurs and the church against which the poor habitants had been struggling for many years. The compulsory re-establishment of the Catholic Church was no service either to the people of Quebec or to the church itself. For as in so many cases in history the quid pro quo exacted for special privilege was special control. Under the Act, the Catholic Church and its revenues were placed under crown control, and the Catholic Church of Quebec was to be completely severed from the Roman See. As Lord North promised, no bishop will be there under papal authority because Great Britain will not permit any papal authority whatever in the country. Current historians attribute the English and American horror at these provisions to simple anti-Catholic prejudice. Although this certainly played an ample role, the Whigs, the leading English opponents of the Quebec Act, were long-time champions of religious liberty for Quebec as well as Britain. They had fought valiantly for absolute toleration of the Catholic Church in religious matters, including even permission for a resident bishop. Their objection to the religious provisions of the Quebec Act was the re-imposition of an established church and of corollary feudalism. They realized that the North Ministry was seeking to gain the political support of the Quebec clergy, by granting them special political privileges. The Whigs also denounced the Quebec Act's limitation on rights of jury trial and its replacing an elected assembly with a royally appointed council. 
and their main protest at the extension of Quebec to the western lands was the consequent extension of these evil and despotic principles to the vast areas of the West. Edmund Burke did yeoman work in alerting New York to the nature and implications of the Quebec Act, as well as to its threat to New York's own western land claims, a service that helped greatly in radicalizing opinion in that often conservative province. One of the fruits, in fact, of Burke's opposition to all the coercive acts was his election to Parliament in the autumn from Bristol, the second greatest port of England and the metropolis of West England and the home of leading merchants in the American trade. Bristol bitterly opposed the coercive measures and Wilkite radicalism grew rapidly there. In fact, the other newly elected representative from Bristol was the prominent New York merchant and ardent radical Henry Kruger, Jr. Aside from Bristol, however, the fall election was a triumph for the government and a defeat for the Whigs. No check on British power would emanate from that quarter. Volume 3, Chapter 60 Boston calls for the Solemn League and Covenant. The four coercive acts and the Quebec Act, soon to be called by the colonists the Intolerable Acts, struck the Americans with the force of a thunderclap. The savage repression of Boston was to the American colonies the hurling down of the gauntlet. The embattled colonists sharpened and increasingly unified by the years of struggle for liberty against Great Britain, hastened to accept that challenge. The shocking news of the Boston Port Act, the first coercive act, reached Boston on May 11, 1774. It was immediately clear that the fate of Boston and of the entire American resistance movement of which Boston was the leader, now hinged on the all-important question, would the other American towns and colonies come to the aid of Boston in this great crisis? On hearing the news, the Boston town meeting and neighboring committees of correspondence met to decide their course. The frightened conservatives attacked the Tea Party as being mob violence and urged submission by paying for the tea. The radicals, however, firmly declared that they would see Boston burned before paying a farthing to the East India Company. The May 13 Boston town meeting, led by Sam Adams, resolved to appeal to other Americans for united action against Great Britain. It urged a joint American boycott, not only of all imports from Great Britain, but of exports as well, until the Port Act was repealed. The Boston Committee of Correspondence was instructed to inform the other colonies. The same day, May 13, the committee joined other committees of eight neighboring towns to urge upon all other colonies the total boycott of trade with Britain. The radical Boston engraver and courier Paul Revere was then sent to the critical ports of New York and Philadelphia with Boston's appeal. Boston urgently impressed upon its correspondence that it was the first line of defense of the liberty of all Americans, and that it was being singled out for punishment simply because it had long been the vanguard of that defense. 
first to respond and rally to Boston's support were the other towns of Massachusetts, including even the towns of Salem and Marblehead, which presumably would have benefited by the closing of Boston and the shifting of the site of government and customs officials. Liberal donations of food and money soon poured into suffering Boston from towns and provinces as far away as South Carolina. When the black day of June 1 dawned and the Port Act went into effect, angry demonstrations took place throughout the colonies. In Philadelphia, church bells tolled and shops closed. In New York, effigies of Lord North, Hutchinson, and the Devil were paraded through the streets and burned. In Connecticut, the Port Act was publicly burned and executed. Newport, which had had its differences with Boston in the past, pledged its aid to the Bostonians who have so nobly stood as a barrier against slavery. This unification was indeed spurred by the fact that the other leading ports knew they had treated the British tea as roughly if not nearly as dramatically, as had Boston. As the fateful day of June 1, 1774 drew near, the conservatives of Boston made a last-ditch attempt to reverse the tide, but the town meeting of May 30 resolved not to consume any British manufacturers and to boycott any violators. As Hutchinson prepared to leave office, however, 124 Boston conservatives signed a petition praising the administration of Hutchinson and another welcoming General Gage and promised to pay their share of the damage for the destroyed East India tea. About a quarter of the signers were merchants, many of them wealthy. The Boston merchants had been persuaded by the Committee of Correspondence to agree to a total boycott of Britain, provided that merchants of other American colonies would agree to join. In early June, the radicals were dismayed to find merchants of other towns refusing to agree, and the conservative merchants of Boston then hastened to abrogate their agreement. The eminent liberal Congregational Minister, the Reverend Charles Chauncey of Boston, angrily denounced the defecting merchants. So many of them are so mercenary as to find within themselves a readiness to become slaves themselves, as well as to be accessory to the slavery of others, if they imagine they may by this means serve their own private separate interest. Sam Adams and the Radicals had learned better during the Townsend struggles than to rely on merchants to boycott for principle. Now the whole body of consumers was to engage in the boycott. Counterattacking, the Boston Committee of Correspondence adopted on June 5 the Solemn League and Covenant, drawn up by Dr. Joseph Warren and other Radicals. The Solemn League urged all Americans to sign a pledge to boycott immediately all trade with Great Britain and to bar all purchases and all consumption of British products after October 1. It also pledged in turn to boycott forever any American who refused to sign such a covenant. Dependence on the merchants was bypassed for reliance on the voluntary actions of the masses of the people. 
Conservative Boston merchants counterattacked vigorously and tried to challenge the committee. The Boston Town Meeting endorsed the Solemn League and Covenant on June 17, but a final battle between conservatives and liberals took place in the Boston Town Meeting of June 27-28. The meeting overwhelmingly defeated a motion of censure and voted approval of the actions of its committee of correspondence. In contrast, Governor Gage ordered magistrates to arrest any persons circulating the traitorous covenant. To find this proclamation, nearly every Bostonian signed the pledge. The Massachusetts towns were quick to rally to the Solemn League and Covenant. The town of Worcester, in fact, strengthened the covenant by advancing the date of non-importation from October 1 to August 1. The covenant was adopted by 14 other Massachusetts towns, among them Gloucester, Braintree, and Shrewsbury. Towns outside the province announced their support, Portsmouth, New Hampshire being one. Furthermore, special county conventions in Massachusetts endorsed the total boycott. including those of Berkshire, Suffolk, Plymouth, and Bristol. Meanwhile, other towns were responding to Boston's boycott appeal of May 13. The town meeting of Providence, Rhode Island on May 17 introduced an important and creative new proposal, a Congress of Representatives from all the colonies to conduct and unite the American boycott and resistance. In addition, Providence expressed willingness to enter into a joint boycott, as did Newport and New Haven. The real problem was the reaction of Philadelphia and New York to Boston's plea. Hence the importance of Paul Revere's speeding the transmission of Boston's circular letter to those cities. New York's radicals in control of its committees of correspondence were as eager as Boston's to join the boycott and pledge their support. But the radicals in New York faced far stronger conservative opposition in that oligarchy-ridden province, and they sadly lacked a revolutionary leader with the brilliance and dedication of Sam Adams. The radicals had called a series of meetings of merchants and mechanics on May 13. At the meeting, a committee of 25 was set up that included conservatives, but was dominated by the old committee of the Sons of Liberty. At a public meeting of merchants on May 16, however, radical leaders Isaac Sears and Alexander MacDougall saw to their dismay a successful vote to oust the existing Committee of Correspondence and to replace it with a new and larger committee that had enough conservatives to put it under right-wing control. Fully half the merchants on the new committee had been zealous in breaking the non-importation agreement in 1770, and 20 of the 51 members were later to choose the Tory side in the revolution. On May 19, a public mass meeting of the inhabitants of the city and county met to act on the nominations made at the merchants' meeting of three days before. The conservative merchants demonstrated their dominance by making their leader and chairman of the new committee of correspondence, Isaac Lowe, chairman of the meeting. Aside from agreeing to add one radical to the committee, the conservatives swept the meeting. 
whereupon Governor Codwalder Colden was moved to write exultantly to the Earl of Dartmouth that the new committee of 51 was made up of some of the wisest and most prudent citizens of New York. The decision of how to reply to Boston's appeal was now in the hands of New York's conservatives, who decided to use Providence's call for a general congress meant to implement the boycott as a tactic for delaying any effective action. The new Committee of 51, therefore, answered Boston on May 23 that all action should be postponed until an interprovincial congress could be held. Boston vainly replied by urging immediately non-intercourse with Britain rather than wait many months for a Congress. But New York was adamant. It was such responses as New York's that drove the Boston radicals to endorse the Solemn League and Covenant by which the masses could impose a total boycott over the heads of recalcitrant merchants. John C. Miller is completely in error when he asserts at length that the New York and Philadelphia conservatives were here reacting against the Solemn League and Covenant. For these meetings, calling for postponement until a Congress should open, took place several weeks before the Covenant was drawn up. In truth, the Covenant was a reaction against the conservative decisions in New York and Philadelphia. The Committee of 51 tried to prod new committees of correspondence from the New York towns into being, but the few that did appear in Suffolk County, Orange County, and Cumberland County urged the radical Boston program of immediate boycott. To counteract the conservative coup, the radicals held their own meeting, denounced the Port Act, urged an immediate non-importation agreement, and named their own Committee of Correspondence. The Sons of Liberty also countered the Committee of 51 by creating a new Committee of Mechanics to operate as a center of radical pressure. A similar conservative victory had occurred at the same time in the other major port of Philadelphia. The strong group of conservatives wished to confine American protest to a timorous petition of grievances to Great Britain. On the other hand, the radicals, led by the Philadelphia iron manufacturer and distiller Charles Thompson, wished to heed Boston's appeal. When Paul Revere brought Boston's letter, the radical leaders, Thompson, already known as the Sam Adams of Philadelphia, and the young Quaker Thomas Mifflin, called a public meeting for the next day, May 20, and tried desperately to enlist the great John Dickinson in their cause. But it often happens to pioneers in a revolutionary movement that the movement's dynamic advance leaves them behind in a kind of crabbed cul-de-sac. Such had recently been happening to Dickinson, who caviled at the Boston Tea Party and at the bold resistant movement required by current conditions. At the meeting of May 20, Thomas and Mifflin urged an immediate declaration making common cause with Boston. Instead, Dickinson and Joseph Reed gained the day with an unhappy bit of stalling, pleading with the governor for a special session of the assembly to petition for redress of grievances. 
Furthermore, the committee of correspondence selected by the meeting to answer Boston was also dominated by the conservative forces. In its letter to Boston of May 21, the Philadelphia Committee showed itself even more conservative than New York. It had the bad taste to denounce the Tea Party. It pressed Massachusetts to compensate the East India Company. It called for varying the boycott plan by reserving it for a last resort. And it urged that a general Congress be strictly confined to petitioning the Crown. The letter was drawn up by the highly conservative and Tory Anglican minister, Dr. William Smith, head of the College of Philadelphia. This response also contributed to Boston's adoption of the Solemn League and Covenant. The only recourse left to the Pennsylvania radicals was to exploit the governor's rejection of the petition for a special session of the assembly. When the expected rejection was announced, radicals forced a new committee of correspondence upon the old committee by calling a meeting of 200 angry mechanics, artisans, for June 9. This artisan pressure forced the old committee to call a general mass meeting of Philadelphia city and county for an enlarged committee on June 18. But the conservatives moved skillfully behind the scenes to control the mass meeting in advance. The caucus selected a new committee comprising the old committee and 27 representatives of religious sects in the city. The proposed committee was strongly under the control of the conservatives, who cleverly chose the eminent John Dickinson to be chairman, and thus to serve as front man for their designs. The meeting proved easily amenable to manipulation by the conservative religious caucus. The hand-picked committee of 43 was selected, and an intercolonial congress proposed to petition for redress of grievances, no mention was made of Boston's appeal for a boycott of Great Britain. During the next three weeks, most counties in Pennsylvania created committees of correspondence and obediently adopted the Philadelphia Resolution for an intra-provincial Congress. Thus, Boston's appeal for immediate and total non-intercourse with Britain had been shunted aside by the victorious conservative forces of New York and Philadelphia, who instead took up and perverted Providence's proposal for a general Congress. The conservatives had two aims in mind, to delay any action for the many months' time necessary to call and hold a Congress, and second, to limit the Congress to a peaceful and innocuous petition of Great Britain, and to keep it from such radical measures as a total boycott. The desperate response of the Boston Radicals was the Solemn League and Covenant, calling for a general public boycott of Britain to override the merchants and the local governments. But while many towns of Massachusetts approved the Covenant, other towns of the province, including Marblehead, Salem, Charlestown, and Springfield, decided to wait for the Congress, as did most of the towns in Connecticut. It was swiftly evident to the Boston leaders that the covenant could not be pushed through immediately and that the conservatives had at least achieved their objective of delay. 
The Boston Radicals were unyielding in matters of principle, but they were eminently adaptable and realistic in matters of tactics. And so they quickly cut their losses and decided to join the movement for an intercolonial congress. The official call for the congress accordingly came from the Massachusetts Assembly on June 17. The Continental Congress was to meet at Philadelphia on September 5. The great struggles within the American revolutionary movement were now to be waged for the soul of the Continental Congress. Meanwhile, the pressing emergency was the shutdown of the port of Boston by the nearby British fleet. Generous donations of food and supplies from all the colonies kept the Bostonians from acutely suffering from the British blockade. The passage of the later coercive acts helped to radicalize American opinion still further and the Boston Committee of Correspondence urged civil disobedience against the invalid abrogation of the Massachusetts Charter and the innovation of a royally appointed council. The new councilors found themselves beset by American mobs and by social ostracism, and they were soon forced to flee to Boston in the arms of General Gage. The judges and sheriffs newly appointed by Gage also soon joined their Tory colleagues. In addition, the general threat to the liberty of the other colonies from the coercive acts appeared to be reinforced by the Quebec Act, which also seemed to raise the old specter of popery. Volume 3, Chapter 61 Selecting Delegates to the First Continental Congress From mid-June until the opening of the Congress, the major struggles were waged over the selection of delegates in the various colonies, and the lining up of support for, or opposition to, a total boycott of trade with Great Britain. Massachusetts delegates were chosen by the Assembly on the day of the call, June 17, and in defiance of General Gage. Makeup of the delegates, including Sam Adams and John Adams, as well as the conservative Thomas Cushing, ensured Massachusetts' leadership of the radical forces in the Congress. In New York, the radicals, now centered in the Committee of Mechanics, prepared to do battle over delegates with the conservative Committee of 51. At a meeting of the latter committee on July 4, the Radicals' proposal for a concurrent choice of delegates by the two committees was beaten by a two-to-one majority, and the Committee of 51 thus gained the exclusive privilege of naming delegates. Nominated as delegates were four staunch conservatives, Isaac Lowe, James Duane, John Alsop, and the very young lawyer, John Jay, as well as the middle-of-the-road merchant Philip Livingston. The embittered radicals struck back and called a meeting of their own on July 6, at which Boston was energetically supported and the forthcoming Congress urged to agree to non-importation. The radical pressure forced a general mass meeting of July 7 to vote to poll all the taxpayers, freeholders, and freemen of New York City on the delegates, under joint supervision of the two rival committees. 
The radicals were to run leaders Alexander MacDougall and Leonard Lespinard against Alsop and Duane. But the Committee of 51 immediately reneged on the agreement to hold a general election, and 11 radical members of the committee heatedly resigned the next day. Ignoring the radicals, the committee resolved on July 13 to keep the original slate of five and instructed them not to call for a boycott. But the public meeting called by the committee for July 19 bitterly overruled the Committee of 51, created a new committee of ten radicals and five conservatives, and substituted two radicals, unexceptional friends of liberty, for Livingston and Duane. But the Committee of 51 again scorned a public meeting, this time one called by itself, and now pressed forward plans for a general election. The conservatives managed to defeat radical resolutions at a public meeting of July 25, and went ahead with a public election of delegates on July 28. In exchange for the rather feeble statement by the five candidates that a faithfully observed general non-importation agreement seemed to be the most effective measure for the Congress to take, the radicals suddenly capitulated, and the five conservative choices were unanimously selected as delegates from the city and county of New York. Of the 13 other counties of New York province, six took no action at all in securing representation in the Congress, while four counties, Albany, Westchester, Dutchess, Ulster, gladly authorized the conservative city delegates to act for them. Only three counties proceeded to elect delegates of their own, Suffolk and Orange Counties, where the towns had supported a boycott, and Kings County, where two liberal citizens selected one of their number to be the delegate from the entire county. Thus, New York's internecine struggle resulted in a largely conservative delegation. Pennsylvania's problems, however, were rather different. The committee of 43, to be sure, was largely in conservative hands under the -the middle-of-the-road chairmanship of John Dickinson, But in Pennsylvania, much farther right than these conservatives was the arch-Tory faction headed by the wily and powerful Speaker of the House, Joseph Galloway. To Galloway, all popular resistance going beyond humble petitioning of Parliament was rank anarchy. Galloway similarly insisted that the delegates to the Congress be chosen by the legally constituted provincial assembly. Any other method would be popular and hence revolutionary and not subject to the control of Joseph Galloway. To combat the Galloway threat and also to push its own extra-legal case, the committee of 43 decided on June 27 to call a convention of county committees to advise the assembly on a choice of delegates. Such a convention, not subject to the undemocratic weighting of representation in behalf of the eastern counties, was bound to be more radical than the assembly. An extra-legal and hence revolutionary provincial convention of county committees was called by the Committee of 43 for July 15. Press controversy raged, meanwhile, over the Boston boycott proposal 
and a radical artisan and trader meeting in Philadelphia urging a boycott was ignored by the Committee of 43. The Pennsylvania Convention, meeting on July 15 through 20, under the guidance of John Dickinson and the committee, labored mightily to bring forth a mouse. Boycott was urged as only a last resort after petitioning, but any boycott agreed upon by the Congress would receive full support. Pennsylvania delegates were instructed to ask for redress of the various American grievances, in return for which Americans would pay an annual revenue to the king and pay all damages to the East India Company. In response to this highly tame resolution, the Galloway faction denounced the illegal convention as setting up anarchy above order, the beginning of republicanism. Galloway ignored the tortured pleas of the convention and selected delegates exclusively from the assembly itself, but the liberals managed to add Dickinson to the list late in the proceedings of the assembly. In New England, the radicals had little trouble in dominating the selection of delegates. In Connecticut, delegates were chosen by the Assembly's Committee of Correspondence. In Rhode Island, they were chosen by the General Assembly. Looking forward to a firm and inviolable union of all the colonies, Rhode Island chose Stephen Hopkins and Samuel Ward, leaders of the two hostile political factions in the province, as its two delegates. But this gesture of unity was to be overshadowed by the apparent desire of Ward and Hopkins to disagree with each other on all vital matters. As to New Hampshire, when Governor Wentworth prevented the House from choosing delegates, the representatives called an extra-legal convention of the towns to choose the delegates from that colony. Back in the middle colonies, New Jersey's assembly as well as meetings of 11 of the province's 13 counties, sturdily endorsed non-importation and non-consumption and perhaps non-exportation. Delegates to the Congress were chosen by Provincial Convention of County Committees of Correspondence, which recommended non-importation and non-consumption. In Delaware, Mass meetings in the three counties selected representatives to a convention at Newcastle, which chose delegates to the Congress. In the South, the first province to react to the crisis in Boston was Maryland. The inhabitants of Annapolis met on May 25 and adopted an impeccably radical set of resolutions, pledging to join an association for immediate non-importation and non-exportation with Great Britain. Any province not agreeing was in turn to be boycotted. The meeting further urged lawyers not to bring suits for recovery of debt due to Britain until the Port Act was repealed. Within a few weeks, eight of Maryland's 16 counties followed the lead of Annapolis, the bulk of them favoring a total boycott and half of them suspension of debt collections. On June 22, a province-wide convention of county committees of correspondence chosen by the county meetings met at Annapolis. Every county in the province was represented, with each county being allocated one vote. 
the convention urged the Congress to adopt boycott agreements and pledged to follow its lead. Virginia was particularly exercised at the brutal treatment meted out to Boston. On hearing news of the Port Act, Richard Henry Lee was dissuaded only with difficulty from pressing for an immediate declaration in behalf of Boston. On May 24, the House of Burgesses, adopting an idea of the brilliant young lawyer and planter, Thomas Jefferson, unanimously set aside the fateful 1st of June as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. Governor Dunmore retaliated by dissolving the House, but the Burgesses met, as supposedly private citizens, on the 27th and formed an association to boycott the use of tea and suggested an annual general congress. This was a feeble resolution indeed, but when Boston's circular letter arrived at the end of May, Peyton Randolph gathered the remaining Burgesses together, and this rump, divided on tactics, called a meeting of Burgesses for August 1 to decide Virginia's course. To guide this extra-legal provincial convention, 31 counties of Virginia held public meetings to frame instructions and resolutions. Of the 31, 20 counties declared for absolute boycott of Great Britain, jointly with other provinces, while eight others advocated non-importation only. Three Virginia counties, Accomack, Dinwiddie, Isle of Wight, were conservative enough to leave all matters up to the provincial convention. Eight counties wished to couple suspension of debt collection with non-exportation. Six of the counties took the occasion to denounce the importation of slaves from Africa, and two, Fairfax and Hanover, actually condemned slavery itself as immoral. The period of June and July was particularly appropriate for forming public opinion. In it, two important contributions to the public debate advanced the American cause far beyond where even the radicals were officially prepared to go. Particularly important was a Virginia contribution by Thomas Jefferson, a summary view of the rights of British America. This widely circulated pamphlet proposed instructions for the Virginia delegates and rejected all parliamentary authority, whatever, over the colonies, acknowledging that allegiance was owed only to the king. Since the British king could not impose legislation or taxation without parliament, such allegiance would necessarily be more ceremonial and pro forma than anything else, and signified an advance to virtual independence from Great Britain. Jefferson grounded his case not only on legal and historical claims, but especially on the lock-in natural rights of man. The libertarian rights of the colonist included freedom of trade with all parts of the world, and this right invalidated even parliamentary attempts to regulate American trade. Even the king himself was warned to desist from tyranny. Kings are the servants, not the proprietors of the people. Open your breast, sire, to liberal and expanded thought. Let not the name of George III be a blot on the page of history. 
It might be noted that shortly after publication of Jefferson's pamphlet, a rising young Pennsylvania lawyer, James Wilson, issued an updated version of an unpublished paper of six years before, Wilson's Considerations on the Nature and Extent of the Legislative Authority of the British Parliament, also espoused independence of parliamentary authority. Legislatures must themselves be regulated by natural law, wrote Wilson, who added, All men are, by nature, equal and free. No one has a right to any authority over another without his consent. Citing the Swiss political theorist Jean-Jacques Berlamacchi, Wilson proclaimed that all power is derived from the people, that their happiness is the end of government, and that any invasions of this principle were illegitimate acts of government. From what source, then, does the alleged sovereignty of Parliament flow? Have they a natural right to make laws by which we may be deprived of our properties, of our liberties, of our lives? What act of ours has rendered us subject to those to whom we were formerly equal? Do those who embark free men in Great Britain disembark slaves in America? Another important and trenchantly radical essay in Virginia was a series of pseudonymous articles in the Virginia Gazette by the eminent lawyer and planter Thompson Mason. Mason denied Parliament's power to legislate for the colonies, but his major stress was on the methods for Americans to pursue, on tactics rather than basic philosophic principles, brilliantly rejecting total boycott as a temporizing and rather vulnerable measure, Thompson Mason boldly cut straight to the heart of the matter. Congress should flatly refuse every law, regulation, and tax imposed by Parliament. And should this total civil disobedience to Great Britain be challenged by British arms, it should press onward to armed resistance and outright secession if necessary. For Mason realized that more was at stake than non-intercourse with Britain. Far more important would be civil disobedience at least to the anti-Massachusetts laws and perhaps to all the others as well. The Virginia Convention met on August 1 through 6, spurred by Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and the radical planters George Mason, George Washington, and Richard Henry Lee, the convention proceeded to top all previous colonial gatherings, save that of Massachusetts and its solemn league and covenant, by refusing to wait for the Congress to impose a boycott. The convention boldly adopted the Virginia Association, which pledged, one, immediate non-importation, and non-use of any kind of tea. Two, an absolute boycott of all direct or indirect imports from Great Britain, including slaves from Africa or the West Indies, except medicines, beginning on November 1. And three, 
absolute non-exportation, direct or indirect, to Great Britain, beginning on August 10, 1775. The total boycott would remain in effect until all the grievances named by the Congress were redressed. To supervise enforcement of the association, a committee was chosen in each county, and non-signing or violating merchants and traders were publicly boycotted and severed from all dealings with the public. North Carolina followed after Virginia and thus came under radical control. A six-county meeting was held at Wilmington on July 21, under the chairmanship of a young ex-Bostonian lawyer, William Hooper. A provincial convention representing the counties was then called for August 25. Governor Josiah Martin proclaimed his prohibition of this scheduled illegal meeting, but the North Carolinians simply ignored the decree. The provincial convention met on schedule at New Bern, with 32 of the 38 counties and two of the six towns represented. The convention adopted a slightly modified variant of the Virginia Association. East India tea was not to be used after September 10. All British imports except medicine were to stop after January 1. No slaves imported after November 1, 1774, and no exports to Great Britain after October 1, 1775. In one respect, North Carolina went slightly beyond its sister colony, for it pledged a boycott of any province town, or individual that failed to abide by any plan adopted by the Continental Congress. In South Carolina, the radical leaders, notable as they were, had a far more difficult time. On hearing of the Boston Port Act, Peter Timothy and his South Carolina Gazette called for a general non-importation and perhaps non-exportation with Britain. Christopher Gadson, the Sam Adams of South Carolina, was, of course, ready to plunge wholeheartedly into the fray, even at the risk of his entire considerable mercantile fortune. However, the merchants and factors were generally recalcitrant, and the rice planters, heavily dependent on export of their staple, were strongly opposed to any non-export agreement. A plea to wait for Congress to act therefore exerted great effect in South Carolina. On June 13, the General Committee of Charleston called a general meeting, representing the people of South Carolina, for July 6. Articles in Timothy's Gazette called insistently for boycott instructions to the delegates at the Congress, but the newly formed Chamber of Commerce bitterly opposed any boycott measure and drew up a slate of delegate nominations that pledged to support the Chamber's views. The extra-legal general-provincial meeting took place at Charleston July 6 through 8. Appointment of representatives was haphazard and chaotic, but the meeting soon clearly divided into two factions— The radicals favored adopting the Boston boycott idea immediately and allowing South Carolina's delegates to the Congress full power to vote. The conservatives wanted restricted powers for the delegates and a postponement of all action until Congress made its decision. The first step of the convention was to reject any immediate boycott. 
Following this, the convention vested the delegation with full power to vote for any measures at the Congress. The struggle now shifted to the personnel of the South Carolina delegation. Here, every free man of the entire province was declared to be entitled to vote. However, the radicals proved themselves even more tactically inept than in New York, for although the radical slate won the election by over 400 votes, the radicals had oddly chosen on their slate of five no less than three conservatives. Thus, a conservative majority was assured for South Carolina's delegation to the Congress. Only conservative Edward Rutledge's status as son-in-law to Gadsden seems to account for his place and that of his brother John on the radical slate. On August 2, the Commons House of Assembly officially ratified the slate of delegates and voted money for their expenses. By the end of August, 12 American colonies had selected delegates to the Continental Congress, with Massachusetts, Virginia, and North Carolina leading the radical cause, having already pledged a comprehensive boycott of trade with Great Britain. Only one colony sent no delegates, the newest, smallest, and southernmost province of Georgia. The task of the radicals in Georgia proved insurmountable. In the first place, Georgia received a generous annual subsidy from Parliament, and as a result was hagridden by as many placemen and government bureaucrats as the most populous of the colonies. It received $1 million a year in general subsidy, as well as lavish bounties for growing silk and indigo. The vested economic interest created in the tiny colony by this lavish spending by the British government proved too much to overcome. Furthermore, backcountry Georgians hankered after British troops to aid them in fighting the numerous Creeks and other Indians in the backcountry, as well as perhaps heavily armed Spanish Louisiana. Finally, Georgia was the only colony with no charter, and therefore with no legal rights recognized by Great Britain. Georgians were thus at the mercy of their royally appointed governor. The small group of radicals in Georgia were concentrated in Christ Church Parish, including the seaport of Savannah, and St. John's Parish, directly to the south, which contained former citizens of Dorchester, Massachusetts, who had founded the settlements of Midway and Sunbury. The latter was later to be renamed, appropriately, Liberty County. Toward the end of July, the Georgia radicals, under the plotting of their South Carolina confreres, peppered the Georgia Gazette with propaganda defending the Boston cause. Hastily on July 20, the Gazette called for a provincial meeting at Savannah on July 27. This meeting, first rejected, then fraudulently drove through the appointment of a committee to draw up resolutions. The meeting, seeing itself beleaguered and outnumbered, called a systematically selected, though extra-legal, provincial convention at Savannah for August 10. Sir James Wright followed the usual precedent of provincial governors by interdicting the forthcoming meeting, while 46 inhabitants of St. Paul Parish, Augusta, attacked any solidarity with Boston and called for British troops to aid in fighting Indians. 
the Convention of August 10 condemned the coercive acts and pledged Georgia's support to measures of redress adopted by the other colonies. For the first time in an American province, a motion to select delegates to the Continental Congress was rejected, this despite numerous irregular practices committed by the desperate radicals. From Savannah to the backcountry, numerous protests poured in against the secrecy, fraud, and misrepresentation practiced by the radicals. But all these practices were to no avail. The intrepid radicals of St. John's Parish, in a last desperate try, held a convention of St. John's, St. George's, Waynesboro, and St. David's parishes, and chose Dr. Lyman Hall as delegate, provided that the other parishes would agree. But nothing ever came of this plea. Georgia alone remained unrepresented at the Continental Congress of 1774. Volume 3, Chapter 62, Resistance in Massachusetts While the Congress prepared to meet, revolutionary struggles were greatly intensifying in Massachusetts. General Gage had reoccupied Boston with four regiments of British troops sent from Ireland. Additional regiments were also transferred to Boston. The people of Boston did not attempt to meet the troops head-on. Instead, they engaged in a thoroughgoing campaign of mass non-cooperation, of non-violent resistance to the British troops. First, the town refused to provide barracks for the soldiery, obliging them to camp out on Boston Common for the remainder of 1774. A voluntary boycott was instituted against the British. The Boston Committee of Correspondence ordered carpenters not to help erect barracks. Lumber was cut off, and merchants refused to sell the British tools or supplies of any kind. Sabotage of materials also disrupted Gage's plans. Gage was forced to bring construction workers from Nova Scotia to build the barracks. All in all, the British soldiers were surrounded with a wall of hostility and the liberal press kept up a drumfire of propaganda about the rapes and robberies committed by the bloody soldiery. Mass resistance in Massachusetts also extended to the body of the coercive acts. In August, Gage published a list of 36 new royally appointed mandamus councillors who succeeded the old councillors in accordance with the Massachusetts Government Act. A meeting of delegates from the towns declared them unconstitutional and suggested a new revolutionary provincial congress to become the new government of Massachusetts. The knot of notorious Tories chosen for the new council was subjected to intense mob pressure, which forced the councillors either to resign or to take refuge in the arms of British troops in Boston. Abijah Williams, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver, Justice Peter Oliver, Foster Hutchinson, and eleven others were forced to resign. So extensive was the use of Boston as a place of refuge for Tory officials that the Whig leader Edmund Burke caustically taunted the British in Parliament, saying he had often heard of such places for thieves, rogues, and female orphans, but it was the first time he ever heard of an asylum for magistrates. 
General Gage contemplated sending troops into the countryside to protect counselors and judges from popular wrath, but threw up his hands at the universality of opposition to these appointees. The royal courts were also subject to harassment now that judges were removable at pleasure rather than for ill behavior. The Pittsfield town meeting urged the people to resist the coercive acts to the last extremity and resolved that no courts should sit until the Massachusetts Government Act was repealed. Indeed, all courts were stopped throughout Massachusetts by methods ranging from persuasion to outright coercion. In Boston, the chief justice and sheriffs were unable to find a juror who would be sworn so that the superior court could meet. To settle its special problems as the center of conflict with Great Britain, Massachusetts, during the summer, was preparing for an extra-legal provincial congress in the autumn. County conventions overwhelmingly protested the coercive acts and attacked the appointment of officials at royal pleasure, the destruction of trial by jury, and the payment of government salaries apart from any control by the representatives of the people. All implied that even armed resistance would be justified to prevent enforcement of the coercive acts and called for a provincial congress to organize the opposition. Town meetings did the same and ratified the county conventions, and Brookline voted to indemnify any town official for any penalty incurred from violating the coercive acts. As Massachusetts resistance grew and deepened, and a wall of resistance, nonviolent at least in relation to the British Army and Navy, built up against the coercive acts, General Gage became increasingly frightened and trigger-happy. He was under increasing pressure by his superiors to reflect the chauvinist contempt of the British for the Americans— the British leaders held that a mere show of force, a mere cleaving to a hard line and eschewing the temptation to appeasement, would quickly drum the numerous but craven colonials into line. The military men were eager to crush the Americans and believed, with the narrowness and vainglory of the military mind, that this could be accomplished easily. Gage began to follow the classic and fateful path of a minority in power that is faced with a determined and largely nonviolent resistance of the majority. Recourse to aggressive use of state violence against the people. Thus Gage tried to use troops to prevent a Salem town meeting called to select delegates to a county convention of protest. His attempt failed. Later, on September 1, Gage sent troops into Charlestown and Cambridge to seize cannon and ammunition belonging to the province of Massachusetts. Twenty thousand men of the western towns of Massachusetts quickly gathered in Cambridge to march on Boston, but were persuaded to turn back by cooler heads who realized that American unity had not yet been sufficiently forged to back up such a direct attack on the armed forces of Great Britain. But meanwhile, town meetings and county conventions in Massachusetts were calling for more military training for its militia in preparation 
for possible armed resistance. Despite General Gage's increasing reliance on aggressiveness and bluster, he recognized that his concrete military situation was precarious. He urged Britain to send reinforcements and decided in early September to fortify Boston Neck. Reacting to the latter plan, Boston workers boycotted the project and refused to help build the fortifications. Learning that Gage would apply at New York, Boston's Committee of Mechanics successfully warned the New Yorkers not to export carpenters to Boston. Volume 3, Chapter 63 The First Continental Congress On September 5, 1774, there met at Philadelphia the most fateful and momentous assemblage ever gathered in the colonies, the Continental Congress. Brilliant and distinguished, the colonial leaders had come to decide the course of the colonies. They were, besides being eminent, young and vigorous, the average age of the delegates being only forty-five. It soon became evident that there were two polar groups at the Congress, the radicals, determined on resistance to the British, and the conservatives, bent on more securely fastening the British yoke upon the colonies. It was sensibly determined that, with the number of delegates varying greatly from each colony, the colonies would vote as separate units. Leading the radical forces were Massachusetts, headed by the brilliant father of the revolution, Sam Adams, and graced by his rising young distant cousin, John Adams, and Virginia, whose delegation included the eminent young leaders Patrick Henry, George Washington, and Richard Henry Lee. North Carolina and the rest of New England dependably followed the radical lead, but Rhode Island's inherent split between Hopkins and Ward served to cancel each other's votes, and the blunder of the South Carolina radicals in selecting their delegates made matters difficult for the revolutionaries. Heading the Tory forces was the wily, shrewd Joseph Galloway of Philadelphia, seconded by the New York delegation, especially the young lawyer James Duane. The Congress conducted its deliberations in secret. It began in committee by debating two vital questions, the philosophical groundwork of the American stand and how far it would deny the authority of Parliament. The radicals on the committee led by John Adams and Richard Henry Lee, insisted on grounding the American case on the ultimacy of natural law and natural rights. The conservatives, on the other hand, were most anxious to ignore natural law and its profoundly radical implications, and to confine the American statement of grievances to legalistic discussions of the British Constitution. Joseph Galloway, James Duane, and Edward Rutledge led this attempt, but the radicals prevailed in cleaving to natural law. During this early formative period of the Congress, Sam Adams engineered a masterstroke that electrified the meeting. Adams had the radicals of Suffolk County, including Boston, meet to draw up county resolves, such as Middlesex and other counties had done. 
Prevented by the British authorities from meeting in Boston, the radicals met at a village outside the metropolis on September 9 and adopted a set of resolves drawn up by Dr. Joseph Warren. Known as the Suffolk Resolves, they were sped down to Philadelphia by Paul Revere, reaching there on September 16. The Resolves bitterly opposed the recent Acts of Parliament and called ringingly for mass civil disobedience. No obedience is due from this province to either or any part of the coercive acts they asserted. Furthermore, no taxes would be paid to the constituted government until it became truly valid. In short, the resolves implicitly called upon the people of Massachusetts to set up a dual government that would cease to obey and indeed ignore the British-appointed authorities. In addition, the resistance would use violence only defensively and only if the British attempted to enforce the coercive acts upon the people. Besides the specific civil disobedience in Massachusetts, the Suffolk Resolves urged the Continental Congress to organize a general voluntary boycott of all trade relations with Britain. The Suffolk Resolves struck the Congress with overwhelming force. The day after they were received, the Congress voted to endorse them enthusiastically. Adams' brilliant strategy had thus gotten the Congress committed to civil disobedience in Massachusetts and to the principle of an absolute boycott of Great Britain. John Adams, deeply moved, wrote in his diary that this was one of the happiest days of my life. Now he knew that America will support Massachusetts or perish with her. Sam Adams supported that judgment. Five days later, on September 22, the Congress specifically endorsed the Suffolk Clause for a boycott of Great Britain. But it soon became clear the Radicals had not yet won the day. The Congress was not ready to endorse dual courts or legislators to be set up by the people in Massachusetts, much less to think of absolute independence. Indeed, Joseph Galloway was now ready to play his last Tory trump. The wily Galloway introduced to the Congress his plan of the proposed union between Great Britain and the colonies. Galloway's plan pursued the old Tory dream proposed since the late 17th century of a centralized government for all the colonies. Under the tempting facade of colonial unity, Great Britain was finally to unite the colonies under one imperial yoke. Each colony was to retain its present form of rule over its local affairs, the central government for the several colonies was to consist of a president-general appointed by the king, subject to the king's veto, and holding office at the king's pleasure, and of a grand council chosen by the assembly of each province. The grand council's actions were to be subject to the president-general's veto. This central organ of president and council was furthermore to constitute an inferior branch of the British legislature, and measures dealing with America could originate either with this body or with the rest of Parliament, each of which would have to agree with the measure. 
The similarities of Galloway's plan to Franklin's Albany plan at the Albany Congress of 1754 are obvious. Galloway, however, would have even more solidly cemented the ties between America and Britain. The central authority was to act as a transmission belt of rule between Britain and the separate colonies. And with the new central body inducted, as it were, into the British Parliament, the plea of no taxation without representation would no longer hold. Joseph Galloway's lethal but sugar-coated pill constituted the big conservative drive of the Congress. Galloway opined that every society must have one supreme legislature and executive as its authority, that every individual of a society must be subordinate to the supreme will of this authority, and that in the present case, this authority was the British Parliament. Supporting the Galloway plan were Duane and the two youngest delegates to the Congress, Edward Rutledge, 25, and New York's John Jay, 29. Leading the opposition were Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee. Galloway's plan was just barely defeated by a vote of six to five, Rhode Island producing a tie between its two delegates. Although the vote was secret, It is safe to guess that Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Virginia, and North Carolina voted nay, while Pennsylvania, New York, dominated by the conservative New York City delegates, and South Carolina voted in favor. This means that one of the middle colonies, New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland, voted against the plan. This vote was the high-water mark for conservatism at the Congress. The victorious radicals tried to eliminate all traces of the close balloting. On October 8th, the Congress became still more explicit in support of the Massachusetts resistance, specifically applauding that province's moves and urging all America to come to the aid of Massachusetts, should Britain try to impose upon it an enforcement of the coercive acts. Galloway and Duane tried unsuccessfully to have their opposition to this resolution recorded in the minutes of the Congress. That the Congress should issue a declaration of grievances and petition Britain for redress was agreed upon by all, liberal and conservative alike. The philosophical groundwork of rights and the admitted scope of parliamentary authority had now to be determined— With Duane largely responsible for its writing, the Declaration of Rights, adopted on October 14, played down the inalienable natural rights of life, liberty, and property, and stressed instead the far more restricted rights of petition, assembly, and jury trial, as well as freedom from a standing army without consent of an assembly. The position taken on Parliament was also rather backward for the dynamic situation of the time. The old, orthodox, and weak American position was simply reiterated. Parliament had the right to regulate American trade, but not to tax the colonies internally or externally, or to govern their domestic affairs. The coercive acts in the Quebec Act were condemned, and repeal was urged of thirteen invasive parliamentary acts 
that had been in effect since 1763. The Congress also requested the termination of British standing armies occupying American towns, of the dissolutions of colonial assemblies, and of the aggrandizement of the vice-admiralty courts. The Congress's address to the King, drawn up by the moderate John Dickinson, carefully followed the customs of rendering obeisance to the king and pinning the blame on his advisers and underlings alone. Having endorsed Massachusetts' resistance, urged redress of grievances, and rejected Galloway's plan for a central government, the Congress took up its final and vital matter of business, deciding the general American means of waging the struggle against Britain, specifically the question of a continental boycott. On October 18, the Congress agreed to the Continental Association, closely patterned after the Virginia Association of early August. The colonies jointly pledged an absolute boycott of trade with Great Britain, non-importation after December 1, including no slave trade after that date, non-consumption of British products after March 1, 1775, and no exports to Britain after September 1, 1775. Because of the threat of the South Carolina delegation, with the exception of the redoubtable Gadsden, not to sign, the Congress reluctantly agreed to exempt South Carolina's staple rice from the ban on exports to Britain. Most ardent for total boycott were Thomas Cushing of Massachusetts, young Samuel Chase of Maryland, and Eliphalet Dyer of Connecticut, who urged immediate non-importation, non-consumption, and non-exportation, but they were overruled by the necessity of gaining the support of Virginia's tobacco planters. The Continental Association was to remain in effect until all the listed grievances had been redressed, it was to be enforced by rigorous but nonviolent methods of persuasion and expression. Any trader violating the boycott would be ostracized and boycotted by every colony. As to enforcement, every town, city, and county would select a committee to oversee the boycott, publicize the names of violators, and then denounce them as enemies of American liberty. Furthermore, any colony violating or failing to agree to the association would be denounced and itself be boycotted. The Continental Congress had, on the whole, done its work well, despite a lack of enthusiasm, again accepting Christopher Gadsden, for taking the offensive against British troops, for American independence, and even for denying the authority of Parliament to regulate trade, and despite the strong conservative bloc and its machinations, the Congress stood squarely behind Massachusetts and took steps to come to its aid. Civil disobedience and defensive resistance by the people of Massachusetts were endorsed, and the Continental Association was pledged to boycott British trade until the grievances of Massachusetts and other Americans should be allayed. Charles Thompson, the Philadelphia radical leader who had been chosen Secretary of the Congress, expressed a common sentiment upon adjournment. I hope the administration will be convinced that it is not a little faction 
but the whole body of American freeholders that now complain and apply for redress, and who, I am sure, will resist rather than submit, even yet the wound may be healed and peace and law restored. But we are at the brink of a precipice. Finally, before adjourning on October 26, the Continental Congress resolved to meet again the following May 10, if its grievances had not yet been relieved. Thus, a permanent revolutionary assembly was here created. It should be noted, however, that since the measures of enforcement of the boycott were to be purely local and voluntary among the people, the First Continental Congress could in no proper sense be regarded as a dual governmental institution. Volume 3, Chapter 64 The Continental Association As the Congress ended, the colonists hastened to ratify the results at provincial congresses, which were extra-legal revolutionary bodies, whose composition was very much like the official assemblies. Localities throughout the colonies created committees of inspection, observation, or public safety to oversee and enforce the association agreement. In Massachusetts, General Gage's refusal to permit the assembly to meet brought about the institution of a provincial congress, which endorsed the congress's measures in early December. Weeks earlier, Marblehead and Newburyport had taken the lead in forming local committees of inspection. The Boston town meeting selected a committee of 63, including Cushing, Hancock, Sam Adams, Paul Revere, and Henry Bass, to enforce the association. In Massachusetts, few towns needed to establish new commissions of inspection, as they would simply continue committees already chosen to enforce the now-superseded Solemn League and Covenant. Only the town of Marshfield refused to agree to the association. New Hampshire's Provincial Congress unanimously endorsed the association in late January, and many towns appointed local committees. In Rhode Island and Connecticut, there was no need for special congresses, since the official assemblies were uniquely free from British control. Hence, the assemblies themselves ratified the boycott. In Connecticut, resistance to the association centered in the small Anglican elements of many small towns in Fairfield County, Ridgefield, Newtown, and Reading among them. New Jersey, on the other hand, had little trouble in ratifying and setting up local committees, the Provincial Assembly itself approved the Congress's proceedings at the end of January. The situation in Pennsylvania, in contrast, was highly delicate, but soon proved successful. The Radicals realized that to enforce the association, the Conservative Committee of 43 and the Philadelphia politics that it dominated had to be bypassed. On November 14, the Radicals held their own mass meeting and decided to hold elections by ballot, with the city and county of Philadelphia each electing its own committee. In the election, the Radical Committee slate won an overwhelming victory in the city. As a result, the new committee of 66 was far more radical than the old Philadelphia Committee of 43. 
The counties also chose committees of inspection to enforce the association. Finally, the Pennsylvania Assembly itself ratified the Continental Association and then set up a provincial congress that endorsed the Continental Congress in late January. As for Delaware, its assembly unanimously endorsed the congress, but Anglican Sussex County refused to select a committee of inspection. Maryland was the first of the southern colonies to act. Many of its counties chose committees of inspection and a provincial convention unanimously endorsed the Congress in early December. Virginia, too, acted quickly in forming committees. Its provincial convention endorsed the Congress's proceedings at the end of March. North Carolina also began early. Its enforcement committees, particularly at Wilmington, and the Tidewater counties being established in early December. However, North Carolina's provincial convention did not endorse the Congress until the following April. In South Carolina, the battle for ratification and enforcement of the association was led by the Liberal General Committee of Charleston. Radical liberals, led by Gadsden and the South Carolina Gazette, urged ratification without the galling and discriminatory exemption for rice exports, while from the right, the indigo planters wanted to include South Carolina's other staple in the exemption. At the South Carolina Provincial Congress in mid-January, the magnificent Gadsden argued against special privilege for rice, while John Rutledge pleaded hardship and dependence of the colony on the export of rice to Britain. Furthermore, to purchase the support of the indigo interest, the General Committee had suggested that privileged rice growers compensate the indigo planters by buying a certain proportion of the latter crop. The indigo subsidy was defended by the Rutledges, William Henry Drayton, and even Thomas Lynch, while Gadsden cuttingly asked why only the indigo growers and not other people in the province should benefit from the rice exemption. Finally, the compensation was extended to other agricultural commodities. South Carolina's Provincial Congress set up an unusually systematic set of local enforcement committees. In every parish and district, members of the Congress composed a majority of the committee, and future vacancies were to be filled in elections by the inhabitants. Two colonies failed to ratify the association, New York and Georgia. Many of New York's conservative intellectuals, such as the Anglican ministers Samuel Seabury and Thomas Chandler, removed themselves in disgust from the association movement, openly denouncing it and being branded as Tories in return. But the bulk of conservatives determined to stay within the popular movement in New York and thereby to guide and emasculate it. The Conservative Committee of 51, however, was forced to dissolve and yield to the clamor of the Radical Committee of Mechanics for a public election of a new committee. At a public meeting on November 22, the newly elected Committee of 60 was dominated by the Radicals, including Isaac Sears and Alexander MacDougall. However, the landlord-run rural counties remained apathetic to the revolutionary movement, and only Suffolk, Ulster, and Albany counties endorsed the association. 
In Suffolk, particularly, the several towns hastened to appoint enforcement committees. Radicals attempted to form committees of inspection in Queens and Tryon counties, but with little success. Thus, when committees in Jamaica and Newtown, Queens, were appointed, the committees were speedily repudiated by many of their citizens. In upcountry Dutchess County, a Tory association openly combated the boycott, and the majority of freeholders swore to obey the constituted laws of the land and to enforce obedience to the rightful authority of King and Parliament. A majority of Jamaica freeholders signed a loyalist oath, and Oyster Bay was largely Tory. A public meeting of freeholders of Albany County pledged loyalty to established government, and a loyalty poll was constructed in Ulster County. The radicals made a determined effort to get the New York Assembly to ratify the association, but failed by one vote. Notwithstanding, the Radical Committee of 60 proved sufficient in controlling the course of the trade in New York City. In Georgia, conditions in late 1774 were more favorable for ratification. The looming Indian War had faded, and Rice had received its exemption from the Continental Congress. But now many of the radical leaders in Georgia began to lose their nerve. The Savannah and the Assembly Radicals proposed to endorse the association only if more time were granted for launching non-importation and non-exportation. Only the pure radicals of St. John's Parish, led by Dr. Lyman Hall, adopted the association without deviation on December 1. A provincial congress met in Georgia on January 18. Only five of the twelve parishes sent delegates, and these represented only small minorities of their parishes. The congress then, lacking self-confidence, decided to submit its extra-legal decisions to the official Georgia Assembly. The Congress proceeded to ratify the association, but with modifications, postponing non-importation to March 15 and non-exportation to December 1, 1775. Governor Wright dissolved the Assembly before it could ratify, but the Congress tried to redeem itself by publishing its decisions, It did not, however, go so far as to ratify, undiluted, the actual measures of the Continental Congress. Local committees in every province began immediately to enforce non-importation after December 1 and non-consumption the following March. In addition to boycotting and ostracizing violators, the same methods were used against persons of known Tory leanings, While historians have remarked on the paradox of a libertarian movement using coercive measures against dissidents, the remarkable thing is the degree of libertarian means that this movement used in pursuit of its ends. Never before in history had so much reliance been placed on such nonviolent methods of mass struggle as the boycott, and on such libertarian and non-violent means of enforcing the boycott as secondary boycotts, social ostracism, blacklist, and public obloquy.
This unprecedented constancy of libertarian ends and means, especially for a revolutionary mass movement of such size and scope, was marred only around the edges by such minor excesses as the use of the tar pot, the rail, and the feathers. The whole association movement of 1774-75 is a remarkable testament to the strength of libertarian ideals permeating the revolutionary era. One of the earliest examples of organized voluntary boycott took place in Worcester, Massachusetts, in early November, when over 40 blacksmiths of the county pledged to refuse to sell their services to all who violated the association in any way. They also resolved to do no further work for specified persons and families with Tory leanings, particularly Timothy Ruggles, and others who had been trying to form a Tory association supported by Governor Gage, and pledged each other mutual aid against a popular threat to their lives or liberties or properties. Further pressure on the Ruggles group came from the Massachusetts Provincial Congress on December 9, which recommended to the local committees of correspondence a widespread public notice to such associations and any people signing them that their names be published to the world, their persons treated with that neglect, and their memories transmitted to posterity with that ignominy which such unnatural conduct must deserve. Under this pressure, the Ruggles group found that it was virtually devoid of signers. Only in the incorrigible Tory town of Marshfield did a sizable number gather to sign a loyalist association, and even they had to send a hurried call to British troops for protection. There was little trouble about endorsing non-importation in Massachusetts. Non-consumption presented a more difficult enforcement problem. The Newburyport Inspection Committee solved the matter by requiring shopkeepers to produce a certificate from a committee of inspection attesting that the goods were not sold in violation of the association. Tea, a product hitherto in great demand in the colonies, was the biggest non-consumption problem. Typical of committee vigilance was the crackdown on Thomas Lilly of Marblehead for buying tea for his own consumption. Lilly was pressured into publicly burning the English tea and publicly recanting his errors. A particular problem was the itinerant peddlers who sold East India tea in the country towns. A certificate here would not be practicable. Hence, the Provincial Congress in mid-February urged abstinence from all trading with peddlers. Even before the meeting of the Continental Congress, Radical editors had begun publicly blacklisting Massachusetts supporters of the intolerable acts and traitors accepting jobs in the Gage regime. The Norwich Packet of Connecticut on October 13 blasted the Reverend Samuel Peters, a Tory Anglican minister, as the most unnatural monster and detestable parasite to this country. In response, the Petersham Town Meeting branded 14 Tories incorrigible enemies of America for being opposed to the Continental Congress and the Association. The Marblehead Town Meeting decided to boycott a half-dozen of its citizens as abettors of tyranny and parasites of their country. 
Sometimes, of course, there were excesses, as when mob coercion forced Dr. Abraham Alden of Bedford and John Taylor of Shrewsbury to confess their errors. In New Hampshire, non-importation was energetically enforced in the port of Portsmouth by the Committee of 45. The main trouble was in the country towns, where peddlers violated non-importation and non-consumption regulations. As a solution, the towns of Exeter, Kingston, Newmarket, and Brentwood imposed a prohibition upon peddling. The Provincial Convention in late January endorsed the prohibition and extended it to the province, urging all citizens to maintain the boycott by abandoning the use of tea. Rhode Island enforced the association very well. One excess in that province went beyond voluntary market means. The requirement by the town of Providence that all traders show certificates of compliance with the association. Connecticut did little direct importing of its own, therefore its problem was largely that of enforcing non-consumption. The vigilant committees of inspection conducted their own private trials of people accused of violating the association. These trials were almost always fair and impartial. They required full proof of violations according to the laws of evidence and invited the defendant to appear voluntarily. This procedure began in Hartford County in late January and soon spread to New Haven, Fairfield, and Litchfield counties. The committee of the town of Norwich also adopted the idea of requiring dealers under pain of boycott to certify that their goods were not acquired in violation of the association. One problem that plagued Connecticut and many other colonies was introduced by the Continental Congresses demand that merchants and traders not take advantage of scarcity and that they hold the prices of boycotted goods to the previous year's levels. This absurd attempt at voluntary price-fixing betrayed a monumental ignorance of how the market price system operates. When goods become scarce, as under non-importation agreements, the free market price rises to account for the greater scarcity. Putting the matter into such pseudo-moralistic terms as taking unfair advantage of the scarcity completely ignores the rationing function of the price system. If prices do not rise to reflect increased scarcity, then the goods will soon disappear and not be available at all to those clamoring to buy. Consumers as well as producers are gravely injured by this form of price control. In Connecticut, in late January, a joint meeting of committees of inspection of Hartford County attempted to impose fixed retail prices on imported goods, and this drive spread to the other counties as well. New York was the great feeder port for New Jersey and Connecticut hence its importance for enforcing non-importation. Fortunately, the radicals on the Committee of Sixty soon took over the commercial affairs of the city, and the committee rigorously enforced the boycott. Great mobs prevented several English ships from landing. 
Happily, while enforcement of the boycott was rigorous, the committee showed instinctive economic sense by not insisting on prices remaining the same as the supposedly God-given prices of the previous year. In this way, the committee did not aggravate the substantial amount of Tory sentiment in New York, while allowing effective imposition of the boycott. Furthermore, the rigorous enforcement of non-importation upon the city made unimportant the fact that non-consumption could not begin to be enforced outside the city, and Albany, Ulster, and Suffolk counties, the only areas where local inspection committees were available. Probably most of the infractions, again, occurred in the area of tea consumption, Like the Ruggles Association in Massachusetts, Tory organizations did not get very far in New York. A group of Tories in ultra-conservative and landlord-ridden Dutchess and Westchester counties attempted to form such associations, but did not succeed. The association was also well enforced in New Jersey, where there were few ports. The Elizabethtown Committee cooperated with their brethren in New York, Woodbridge Township and Gloucester County also enforced the boycott wholeheartedly, and a tea party was held by New Jersey Indians when East Indian tea almost landed secretly at Greenwich in Cumberland County. And in February, the committees of observation of Elizabethtown and Woodbridge decided on a complete boycott of trade with the Tory citizenry of Staten Island. Tea drinking a favorite pastime of Americans, again proved the most difficult part of the association to enforce. When Silas Newcomb of Cumberland County announced rather rashly that he proposed to drink tea, all dealings were broken off with him by the Cumberland Committee, and in two months he abjectly recanted. Philadelphia, filled with conservative Quaker merchants, was the big problem area for the American rebels. Here was the weak link that threatened to collapse the entire boycott movement. In the late 17th century, the Quaker creed of nonviolence had been radically individualist and anti-statist. But during the 18th century, Pennsylvania Quakers had become increasingly conservative, statist, and even warlike. Quaker nonviolence was now largely a thinly-veiled camouflage for highly conservative, quasi-Tory views. The official Quaker Committee of Sufferings in Pennsylvania and New Jersey kept up a steady drumfire of agitation against the association and other anti-British measures, which agitation, despite its nonviolence, was supposedly in violation of Quaker religious views. A Quaker meeting for Pennsylvania and New Jersey in late January was quite explicitly Tory. It denounced every usurpation of power and authority in opposition to the laws and government and all combinations, insurrections, conspiracies, and illegal assemblages. The official Quakers were not able to silence their pro-association brethren. Despite these problems, the Philadelphia Committee of 66 did an excellent job of enforcing non-importation. 
The committee divided its membership into six districts, and one member from each district was delegated each morning to inspect all incoming vessels. This enforcement, as in New York, was greatly facilitated by a sensible laxity in fixing import prices. Despite the de jure pronunciamentos, for example, dry goods prices had increased by 25 to 100 percent by March 1775. Delaware, a small and agricultural rather than commercial province, was scarcely a center for non-importation struggles and had little trouble in enforcing the boycott. The southern colonies had particular problems in enforcing the boycott. Especially where the merchants were Scots or factors of Scottish firms, Scottish zeal for the American cause was less than ardent. But with the planters heavily in debt to these merchants in the normal course of trade, the Southerners had a powerful political weapon against the Tories—a threat to suspend the judicial collection of debts. Maryland faced the problem of a score of navigable rivers where imports could enter the province, but keen vigilance by committees of radicals at the commercial centers of Baltimore and Annapolis ensured effective enforcement of the association. In December, a provincial convention resolved that all lawyers should refuse to prosecute any suits, especially collections of debt, for those who violated the boycott. In enforcing non-consumption, tea was again the main problem. Sometimes a bit of violence was added, as in the case of the stubborn tea dealer John Parks. Parks was boycotted by the committee for Upper Frederick County, and to the boycott was added the breaking of his doors and windows by a mob. Unfortunately, the rigors of enforcement here extended to price fixing as well, and the local and provincial committees tried. Canute-like to hold back the tides, of which they knew nothing, by fixing precise but necessarily arbitrary markups of wholesale and retail prices over costs. The opposition of Scottish merchants and factors was particularly strong in Virginia. That colony led in closing down collections of debts as a means of putting further pressure on British merchant creditors for repeal of the coercive acts. A provincial convention in August, for that reason, closed up the county courts and successfully recommended boycott of the general court by lawyers and witnesses in civil cases. This action was confirmed by the convention of the following March. Many historians have charged that the court closings, and indeed much of the revolutionary impetus in Virginia, occurred primarily. Because of a desire to avoid paying debts to Great Britain, it seems clear, however, that the measure was rather a means of putting pressure on Britain to repeal the intolerable acts, just as similar pressure had been used against the Stamp Act a decade before. This is indicated by the fact that when some grasping planter debtors urged a boycott of merchants, not just for violating the association. But also for failing to extend credit, this attempt was immediately slapped down by the leadership. 
Indeed, Peyton Randolph, who had presided at the Continental Congress, sternly reminded the hotheads that the association did not empower local committees to dictate to merchants how much credit they may give. And even for strictly political purposes against Britain, a good many of the more moderate of the Virginia leaders opposed the temporary non-payment of debts as unjust. These included George Washington, Robert Beverly, Peyton Randolph, and Edmund Pendleton. Backing political non-payment were the more radical George Mason, Patrick Henry, Landon Carter, and Richard Henry Lee. Both sides of the dispute, of course, were led by large tobacco planters. The Virginia rebels made enforcement of the boycott much more difficult than it had to be. In the first place, they frenziedly tried to prevent any price increases, and the committees arrogantly insisted on inspecting the day books and invoices of the merchants to make sure that prices were not increasing. Indeed, price-fixing committees were actively harassing merchants in many Virginia counties. The other unnecessary task taken up by the radicals was the decision to require every individual citizen to sign the Continental Association. This went beyond all the other colonies and forced the radicals to boycott not only violators of the association, but also any of those who were not enthusiastic enough to endorse it. All this considerably multiplied the roster of supposed delinquents and those harassed by the popular forces. As in the other colonies, open Tories were, of course, held up to public obloquy. As elsewhere, the difficult article of consumption to boycott was tea. This was the product requiring enforcement. Tea parties were held at the port of Yorktown to reinforce the boycott. North Carolina, as so often happened, largely followed the example of neighboring Virginia. Here the body of suspect Scottish merchants was compactly gathered at Wilmington. The merchants agreed to obey the boycott, but understandably balked at price-fixing. The implacable committees persisted in carefully supervising prices, and committees in Pitt and Rowan counties, and in Wilmington, presumed to fix maximum prices for salt, dry goods, rum, and gunpowder. The Wilmington Committee also followed the aggressive Virginia lead of insisting that every individual sign the association. When eleven Scottish merchants refused to sign, they were boycotted. Eight recanted and signed. The most striking example of tormenting a non-signer was the case of Thomas McKnight of Currituck County in the extreme northeastern part of the colony. A member of the provincial convention in April, McKnight, announced that he would abide by the association but would not endorse it. A struggle now raged at the convention on whether to harass him further. The majority favored accepting McKnight's course but the fanatical minority threatened to withdraw from and split the convention and thus forced through a boycott of the candid McKnight. To put pressure on British merchants, the North Carolina liberals, again following Virginia, refused to allow the courts to operate, thus suspending collections of debts. There was little trouble, furthermore, in enforcing the non-consumption agreement. 
As could be expected, the radicals were active and zealous in South Carolina. Charleston's radical-oriented general committee led the enforcement and advanced beyond the Continental Association by establishing its own association for non-consumption of tea to begin on November 1. At committee direction, the schoolboys of Charleston collected all the tea in the city and burned it publicly on Guy Fawkes Day, November 5. Merchants of Charleston were induced by the committee to dump their English imported tea into the river. Non-importation was enforced with great efficiency and zeal. Sometimes, as in the McKnight case, enforcement degenerated into petty absurdities. Consider, for example, the case of Robert Smith, who returned from London to Charleston, bringing with him his furniture and two horses. Immediately, the ultra-radicals led by Christopher Gadson denounced this act as an import in violation of the association. After the General Committee had narrowly approved Smith's action, Gadson and 250 radicals urged reconsideration. But led by Lynch and the Rutledges, the General Committee continued to endorse Smith, but by one vote only. As elsewhere in the South, action was taken against collection of debt by British or Tory creditors. South Carolina's Provincial Congress in January decided that any judicial processes for debt had to be approved by local committees of observation. The absence of anti-creditor animus, per se, is seen in the instruction to the local committees to permit prosecution for debt whenever debtors were trying to evade their obligations permanently or to defraud their creditors. Georgia did not join in the non-importation agreement until March, and even then there was no effective enforcement in that royal, bureaucrat-ridden colony. The colonies were then faced with the problem of boycotting this lone holdout of the 13 American colonies. Accordingly, on February 8, the Charleston General Committee decreed a boycott of trade with all citizens of Georgia. The radical enclave of St. John's Parish hastened to send delegates to Charleston, urging exemption for themselves and the perplexed General Assembly agreed to turn the case over to the next meeting of the Continental Congress. In the meanwhile, however, the boycott of Georgia persisted, and the poor citizens of St. John's were forced against their principles to engage in limited trade with the Tory merchants of Savannah. Quebec had also been invited to join the association. The English merchants of Quebec were willing to join, but the overwhelming French majority was understandably loath to join with either wing of its hated oppressors, and the English merchants understandably feared that they would simply lose their trade to their French rivals. Quebec, therefore, did not join the association. By mid-April, the Philadelphia Committee began the colonial boycotts of the non-signing colonies, Georgia, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland. The task of checking and certifying the good faith of merchants within the several colonies was not unduly difficult. Local committees in the seaports performed the major tasks. 
But how could the genuineness of goods and merchants be assured in the coastal trade when the merchants of two remote colonies traded with each other? Early in the association movement, a Salem merchant trading with Virginia hit on a happy device that served also to cement and expand the scope of the network of revolutionary popular institutions in America. The merchant asked the Salem Committee of Correspondence to issue him a certificate vouching for his devotion to the cause of American liberty. The Boston Committee of Correspondence enthusiastically welcomed the idea, and the plan, spearheaded by Providence and the Virginia counties, was soon adopted in the other provinces. Volume 3, Chapter 65 The Impact on Britain Buoyed by the network of provincial conventions and local enforcement committees, the Continental Congress's boycott of British imports proved extraordinarily effective. Imports of the 13 American colonies from Great Britain fell from 2.6 million pounds in 1774 to over 200,000 pounds in 1775. The effectiveness of the boycott is even more startling if we omit non-boycott in Georgia, where imports more than doubled, from 57,500 pounds to 135,000 pounds. Omitting Georgia, imports from Great Britain fell 97% in one year. The drastic decline in imports had the desired effect on the British merchants and manufacturers in the American trade. From January through March 1775, they kept up a drum fire of agitation upon Parliament to repeal the coercive acts. Petitions to this effect passed into Parliament from London and from such manufacturing towns as Bristol, Glasgow, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Nottingham, and Belfast, which all complained of business losses, bankruptcies, and unemployment. Indeed, in February, a subscription fund to send relief to the distressed people of Boston and New England was launched by merchants in London. But the Tory North Ministry, far more firmly ensconced than the government of a decade before, adamantly hewed to the tough line of suppression and no appeasement. Solicitor General Alexander Wedderburn declared in April that the interest of commerce and manufacturers must bow to the higher interest of upholding supreme legislative power against open rebellion. An enemy in the bowels of a kingdom is surely to be resisted, opposed, and conquered, notwithstanding the trade that may suffer and the factories that may be ruined. Indeed, rather than relent, Lord North decided to escalate the struggle and bring the fractious Americans to heel by severe retaliation. If Americans would not trade with Britain, then by God they would not be allowed to trade with anyone else. On March 30, Parliament, over Whig and Chathamite opposition, enacted North's New England Restraining Act, prohibiting New England from trading with any place except Britain and the British West Indies after July 1, and from using the Newfoundland fisheries after July 20, 
until peaceful conditions were restored. When news arrived of the widespread ratification of the Continental Association, Parliament, in mid-April, extended the provisions of the Restraining Act to New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina. With petty cunning, the supposedly Tory colonies of New York, Delaware, North Carolina, and Georgia were omitted in an attempt to induce them to break with the boycott. But the time for divisive tactics had long since passed. While moving to impose a big-stick policy of escalating force, Lord North also held out a highly anemic and suspect carrot. His conciliatory plan, introduced into Parliament on February 20, tried to seduce the Americans into abandoning their position under the cloak of saving face. Thus, a colony was to be spared parliamentary taxation for revenue, provided that it would tax itself to pay for the salaries of the royal officials. Britain, indeed the whim of the crown, was, in short, to tell each colony how much it must raise in taxes to pay for purposes fixed by the home country, and then the colony would have to obey. Thus, imposed taxation by Britain would remain under a new guise. North's complex and unworkable plan was consciously designed, as were his force acts, to split the American colonies. But no one was fooled. The illustrious Whig leader Edmund Burke brilliantly analyzed the plan and such of its unworkable features as deciding on quotas of taxes for each colony as a ransom by auction of the colonies. Lord North's proposal was soon rendered obsolete by the rush of events, reaching New York, for example, the day after news of Lexington and Concord. Burke, leading the opposition in the House of Commons to the British crackdown, called for repeal and a return to the old Whig colonial policy. In his speech on conciliation with the colonies, Burke set forth the necessity of appeasement as the prime foreign policy of a truly strong government. I mean to give peace. Peace implies reconciliation, and reconciliation does, in a manner, always imply concession on one part or on the other. In this state of things, the proposal ought to originate from us. Great and acknowledged force is not impaired, either in effect or in opinion, by an unwillingness to exert itself. The superior power may offer peace with honor and with safety." and Burke made clear that peace was precisely the desideratum, to be arrived at simply and directly, not by the paradox of pursuing the chimera of peace through waging long and bloody war. The proposition is peace, not peace through the medium of war, not peace to be hunted through the labyrinth of intricate and endless negotiations, not peace to arise out of universal discord, fomented from principle, not peace to depend on the juridical determination of perplexing questions. It is simple peace, sought in its natural course and in its ordinary haunts. It is peace sought in the spirit of peace, 
laid in principles purely pacific. Burke saluted American achievements and economic development, which had not been squeezed into this happy form by the constraints of watchful and suspicious government, but that, through a wise and salutary neglect, a generous nature has been suffered to take her own way to perfection. He added, When I see how profitable they have been to us, I feel all the pride of power sink, and all presumption in the wisdom of human contrivances melt and die away within me. In this way, Burke harked back to the crucial distinction he had made in his first work, A Vindication of Natural Society, 1756, between the benefits of natural, voluntary actions in society, natural government, and the mischievous effects of the coercive intervention of the state, artificial government. This hard-hitting anarchist attack on government, written synonymously while Burke was an impecunious and disgruntled young law student, was by him quickly repudiated as a supposed satire when his authorship became known. Burke hailed the fierce spirit of liberty that had grown up among the Americans, a result of their remoteness, their religion and customs, their English tradition of liberty and revolution, and their education in legal and political theory. Now the spirit of liberty in America was in collision with the spirit of power in England. Burke saw with acute perception the radically new nature of what the Americans had recently been doing. He saw that they had been creating, in their network of local and provincial committees of correspondence, of enforcement, and conventions of delegates, both provincial and continental, an approach to a state of anarchism. For here were revolutionary institutions, completely illegal and outside the legal framework, created spontaneously by the people, building from the grassroots. This voluntary network of popular revolutionary organs, from town committees up to provincial conventions, and even including the Congress, exercised only minimal coercive authority. Its influence was in giving leadership to the voluntary actions of the mass of individuals. These institutions, for example, did not live off taxation, that coercive institution unique to the concept of government, and none printed its own money. Thus, as legal government began to break down, particularly where it was prohibited in Massachusetts and was replaced by these popular institutions, government in America began to veer toward anarchism. As Burke phrased it, We thought, sir, that the utmost which the discontented colonist would do was to disturb authority. We never dreamt they could of themselves supply it. They have formed a government sufficient for its purposes, without the troublesome formality of an election. Evident necessity and tacit consent have done the business in an instant. So well have they done it that the new institution is infinitely better obeyed than the ancient government ever was in its most fortunate period. Obedience is what makes government, and not the names by which it is called. This new government has originated 
directly from the people and was not transmitted through any of the ordinary artificial media of a positive constitution. It was not a manufacture ready formed and transmitted to them in that condition from England. The evil arising from hence is this, that the colonist, having once found the possibility of enjoying the advantages of order in the midst of a struggle for liberty, such struggles will not henceforward seem so terrible to the settled and sober part of mankind as they had appeared before. And as to Massachusetts, we were confident that the first feeling, if not the very prospect of anarchy, would instantly enforce a complete submission. The experiment was tried. A new, strange, unexpected face of things appeared. Anarchy is found tolerable. A vast province has now subsisted and subsisted in a considerable degree of health and vigor for near a twelve-month, without governors, without judges, and without executive magistrates. Volume 3, Chapter 66 The Tory Press in America While the Whigs were leading an unsuccessful opposition in England, a small group of Tories, looked on with favor by the royal officials, were doing the same to the main current in America. Cynically crying out for liberty, they had never displayed much zeal for anyone's liberty but their own, they denounced the rebels and the Continental Congress as a greater tyrant than the crown. They could only do this, of course, by blurring any distinction between the coercive invasion of persons and property and the voluntary methods of boycott or public censure. Despite their charge of tyranny, the Tories had undisturbed control of several of the colony's most influential newspapers. By far the leading Tory journalist in America was James Rivington, publisher of the New York Gazetteer, whose articles circulated throughout the colonies. Rivington was seconded by Hugh Gaines's New York Gazette and Weekly Mercury. Delighted by Rivington's pen, Governor Gage distributed 400 copies of each issue of the Gazetteer to soldiers and Tories in Boston. The radical editors fumed at Rivington, calling him a Judas and a most wretched Jacobitish hireling incendiary. Rivington replied in kind. Young James Madison angrily wrote to a friend from Virginia that if we had Rivington twenty-four hours in this place, he would meet with adequate punishment. In Boston, the Tory press rode high under the guns of British troops. The two leading newspapers were the Massachusetts Gazette and Boston Newsletter, and the Massachusetts Gazette and Boston Postboy. One cocky Tory called upon the British troops to make ready to kill those trumpeters of sedition. The editors of the radical papers, the Boston Gazette and the Massachusetts Spy. The British troops did threaten to tar and feather these leaders. Tory writers such as William Edis of Maryland, Grotius and Thomas Truman, made their case in the press. 
The leading statement of the Tory case was written in a series of articles by Daniel Leonard as Massachusetts Tensus in the Massachusetts Gazette and Boston Postboy. Leonard, a renegade liberal, now enjoying the perquisites of the post of Solicitor General of the Customs Board, attacked the anarchy rampant in the colonies. Confusing invasion of person and property by violence with such non-invasive measures as public boycott, Leonard decried the tyranny as well as the anarchy of the rebels. Answering Leonard in a running and scholarly debate in the Massachusetts press was John Adams, writing as Novanglis. Adams pointed to the mass support of the American cause and declared it to be in the great British tradition of resistance to tyranny. He asserted flatly that America is not any part of the British realm and warned that Britain was preparing to conquer and crush the colonies. Adams grounded his defense in natural law, human reason, and the great revolutionary tradition of the English. My friends... Human nature itself is evermore an advocate for liberty, that all men by nature are equal, that kings have but a delegated authority, which the people may resume, are the revolution principles of 1688, as are the principles of Aristotle, of Livy and Cicero, of Sidney, Harrington and Locke, of nature and eternal reason." Particularly active in the drumfire of Tory agitation against the rebel cause was a group of Anglican clergymen, led by the reverends Thomas Chandler, Miles Cooper, Charles Inglis, and Samuel Seabury of New York, and Jonathan Butcher of Maryland. Cooper tried to form a continent-wide association of Anglican ministers to oppose the rebellion an organization the very existence of which would have driven the Americans to fury. The Pennsylvania and Southern clergy refused to go along, and New York remained the center of the Anglican-Tory agitation, agitation fostered by the strength of the Anglican Church in New York City affairs. Chandler, Cooper, and Seabury turned out numerous pamphlets in late 1774, all printed by James Rivington. Many incensed gatherings of Americans in New York, New Jersey, and Maryland publicly burned these tracts. As so many other opponents of natural rights have done, Seabury in a pamphlet debate with the young student Alexander Hamilton of King's College confused natural rights with a primitive state of nature. Not realizing that natural rights theory is a logical and moral rather than an historical construct, Seabury persisted in identifying it with an historical state of savagery. The Americans began an effective, even though spontaneous and unorganized, boycott of the galling newspaper of James Rivington. A newly organized Friends of America in New York systematized the boycott and sent letters to rebel committees throughout the colonies, urging a general boycott of the pensioned servile wretch and all of his advertisers. Radical meetings pledged no further dealings with Rivington. 
By April 1775, 21 committees had acted to suspend purchases of the newspaper. Led by committees and meetings in various counties of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. In mid-April, a mob in New Brunswick, New Jersey, hung Rivington in effigy. Driven to the edge of bankruptcy by the boycott and threatened by an angry mob, Rivington, not long after, pledged to give no further offense. Volume 3, Chapter 67 Massachusetts Nearing the Final Conflict The Continental Association and the mass boycott were all very well. These measures served to radicalize the entire continent and to build an intricate network of spontaneous grassroots, revolutionary institutions, often virtually replacing constituted authority with quasi-anarchic leadership. But none of these measures dealt directly with the really acute focus of conflict, Boston. It was Boston and Massachusetts, after all, that were being punished, oppressed, and militarily occupied. Massachusetts necessarily had to be the focal center of struggle. The moral and material support of the other provinces was most welcome, but would they join if armed support were necessary? At the Congress, Christopher Gadsden had urged initiating armed struggle against the British troops in Boston, but it was clear to the sagacious radical strategist of Massachusetts that the rest of America would not support such an effort. As the Continental Congress made clear, only defensive efforts would be supported against outright aggression by British troops. Furthermore, most of the radicals naively thought that the Continental Association would suffice to bring Britain to reason. They did not see as clearly as the Adamses and the Massachusetts radicals that Britain would not be deflected from all-out suppression. They would soon learn. Meanwhile, the radicals could only wait for that lesson and tell each other in the words of John Adams, I expect no redress, but increased resentment and double vengeance. We must fight. Even those who expected armed conflict did not go so far as to anticipate actual American independence. Conflict was to induce Britain to back down from its coercive imperialist policy. Indeed, the Massachusetts delegation to the Congress had to reassure even the Virginians that their aim was not independence. All the delegation, that is, except for Sam Adams, whose silence on the matter was eloquent in itself. Soon after the opening of the Continental Congress, the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts assembled in a fateful meeting. General Gage had called for a meeting of the General Court in early October, but dared not lead the newly appointed mandamus counselors out from under the wings of the British troops. It was, furthermore, clear from town instructions to their representatives that the Assembly would hardly agree to the changes imposed by the Massachusetts Government Act. Most radical and frantically revolutionary were the instructions from the town of Worcester. These counseled the immediate return to the old Massachusetts Charter of the 17th century, the 
presumably forcible, opening of the port and removal of British troops, and a trial of the mandamus councillors for treason. In the light of this atmosphere of militancy, General Gage called off the meeting of the general court. But the Americans were prepared, and towns sent delegates to the extra-legal provincial congress that met at Concord on October 11, and later in the month at Watertown. The delegates faced a province without ports or judges or executives or legislature. Undaunted, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress made as its operating executive John Hancock president and created a steering committee of 15. The Committee on the State of the Province, which included Hancock, Dr. Joseph Warren, and such leading radicals as Joseph Hawley of Northampton, James Warren of Plymouth, and Elbridge Jerry of Marblehead. Later, the four Massachusetts delegates to the Continental Congress were added to the province's steering committee. As a continuing operating organization, the Provincial Congress selected a smaller 11-man committee of safety, with John Hancock chairman and Dr. Joseph Warren among its members. The committee was authorized to call out the provincial militia and to collect munitions and supplies in preparation for meeting any future aggression by the British armed forces. Concord and Worcester were selected as the principal depots for military supplies. The militia officers, furthermore, were directed to recruit the best qualified 25% of the militia, mainly veterans of the French and Indian War, into a ginger group known as Minutemen, so-called because they were expected to answer the committee's call at a moment's notice. The Minutemen were formed into emergency companies of 15 men each, and the men of each company had the power of freely electing their own officers, subject to the overall direction of the Committee of Safety. This project was based on the precedent of emergency units used as early as King Philip's War in the mid-1670s. The Committee of Safety proceeded with dispatch and efficiency to organized and armed militia to repel any aggressive acts of the British troops. The aim was to raise a potential army of 12,000 men in Massachusetts and 20,000 additional troops at the ready were requested from the other colonies in New England. Officers were to be democratically elected by the soldiery. The militia trained hard, this time in contrast to their unpreparedness when British troops earlier occupied Boston, the people of Massachusetts would be ready to counter any further invasion. All the militia of the colony were soon directed to train according to Colonel Timothy Pickering's new book, Easy Plan of Discipline for a Militia, 1775. From Salem, Pickering imaginatively simplified the stodgy and ritualistic rules of British Army drill and emphasized the American woodsman's habit of individual marksmanship, a practice particularly suited to an armed people's guerrilla war. Political philosophy and military tactics blended as one, for Pickering stressed that the American soldier was an individualist, a free man and a property owner. 
in contrast to professional European soldiers trained as obedient machines. Pickering wrote that men must see the reason and the use of any action or movement. Tis the boast of European commanders that their men are mere machines. God forbid that my countrymen should be thus degraded. A circular letter sent throughout the colony by the Committee of Safety asked the clergy to help raise a volunteer army. The committee, an anarchistic institution without coercive governmental powers to tax or to conscript militia, had to rely on volunteers and voluntary contributions. John Adams understood the revolutionary nature of what he was seeing. At Watertown he had witnessed, John Adams told himself, a great province governed not by police and penalty, but by, as it were, 260 volunteer consciences. The Second Provincial Congress of Massachusetts, meeting at Cambridge on February 1, 1775, rapidly advanced these measures of defense. It also authorized the militia to collect military stores rapidly, either by purchase or by assuming jurisdiction over the stores of the Massachusetts government. Consequently, during March and early April, large stores were collected by the Americans at Concord. The Congress, consistent with its devotion to liberty, refused to levy taxes on the people. It recommended that they voluntarily pay the provincial tax to the new revolutionary institutions instead. Addressing the citizens of Massachusetts, the Congress exhorted, Resistance to tyranny becomes the Christian and social duty of each individual. Fleets, troops, and every implement of war are sent into the province to wrest from you that freedom which it is your duty, even at the risk of your lives, to hand inviolate to posterity. Continue steadfast and defend those rights which heaven gave and no man ought to take from us. The Congregational Ministry of Massachusetts was eager to take up the task offered it by the Provincial Congress. Eminent ministers like the veteran Charles Chauncey, William Gordon, and Peter Thatcher of Boston, Peter Whitney of Northborough, and Timothy Hilliard of Barnstable led the clergy in exhorting the right of resistance to the British. Eloquent were the calls to rise up and wield the sword of the Lord against oppression and slavery in militia-mustering sermons. In Booth Bay, now Maine, the Reverend John Murray, a Presbyterian, urged the right and duty of resistance to defend natural, God-given, and constitutional rights. The Reverend Samuel Eaton of Harpswell, Maine, went so far as to declaim at a militia muster, Cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. Particularly important expressions of congregational support for the rebel cause came at a convention in radical Worcester County, in the interior of Massachusetts, in late March 1775. At this meeting, a delegate, the Reverend Ebenezer Chaplain of Sutton, pleaded for liberty and separation of church and state. And in a widely printed and distributed speech, the Reverend Elisha Fish of Upton defended the right of property 
as unalienable by man. The right of each individual to enjoy his own earnings, Fish declared, was a corollary of his God-given rights of life and liberty. Similar preachments were made by congregational ministers throughout New England, especially New Hampshire and eastern Connecticut. Termed by Lieutenant Governor Oliver, gutters of sedition, the congregational clergy of New England led the revolutionary cause and provided a stark contrast to the relatively non-political clergy of New York and Philadelphia. The lukewarm support of the Baptists and the Tory views of the Anglican clergy. As tension mounted between the British troops and the swiftly preparing people of Massachusetts during the winter of 1774-75, several incidents brought the two sides inextricably closer to overt military conflict. On December 13, the noted courier and messenger of the Boston leadership, Paul Revere, warned the New Hampshire radicals of a British plan to garrison troops at Portsmouth. The very next day, a band of troops led by the prominent young lawyer Major John Sullivan and the young merchant John Langdon swooped down on the British fort at Portsmouth and carried away cannons, small arms, and a hundred barrels of powder. Sullivan, a delegate to the Continental Congress, was now the major political figure in New Hampshire and leader of the popular radical forces there. Soon after the raid, Sullivan and Langdon were chosen by the Provincial Congress to be New Hampshire's delegates to the Second Continental Congress. The next clash also inflicted humiliation upon the proud British troops. On February 26, several hundred British soldiers were shipped clandestinely to Salem to seize military stores from the Americans. Not finding them there, the British marched to the stores at Danvers. But there they were forced by a larger number of Americans to wait while the stores were removed and then to retreat back to their ships. In Boston, another clash occurred soon afterward when Dr. Joseph Warren delivered the annual oration in commemoration of the Boston Massacre. Gathered illegally at a town meeting, moderated by Sam Adams, the townspeople heard Warren eloquently champion the liberty of Americans and Englishmen and attack the sending of British troops to occupy Boston. Then Warren declared, An independence of Great Britain is not our aim, but if pacific measures are ineffectual, and it appears that the only way to safety is through fields of blood, I know you will undauntedly press forward until tyranny is trodden underfoot. As Warren concluded, British officers who had been courteously welcomed to the meeting began to hiss. In an obvious attempt to provoke the Americans into physical attack, which might not carry the support of the other colonies, the troops arrested a man for illegally buying a firearm offered by a British soldier. The next day, the British arrogantly tarred and feathered the man, pinned on his back the label, American Liberty or Specimen of Democracy, and paraded him through the streets of Boston with an armed guard 
and Military Band. Volume 3, Chapter 68 Support from Virginia The well-disciplined citizens of Massachusetts held themselves in check and refused to be provoked into attack. And their angry leader, Sam Adams, wrote, See what indignities we suffer rather than precipitate a crisis. It took no uncommon astuteness to see that the colonies and Great Britain were on collision course. In late March, before the Virginia Convention, an enlarged House of Burgesses meeting illegally at Richmond without authorization of the governor, the golden-tongued Patrick Henry made his most famous speech. In it, he prophetically warned, The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. The major issue at the Virginia Convention and the occasion for Henry's speech was his resolution to strengthen and arm the Virginia militia for the clash that Patrick Henry was sure was fast approaching. Henry openly welcomed the imminent revolutionary clash. Let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. Henry dramatically concluded, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Henry's resolution was ably supported by the radical theoretician Richard Henry Lee and the military-minded George Washington. But the resolution to strengthen the militia met stiff conservative opposition, led by three delegates to the Continental Congress, Edmund Pendleton, Benjamin Harrison, and Richard Bland. As a result, the Henry Resolution won only by a slim vote. Indeed, the delegates refused to call up any sizable number of armed men and to seize the reins of government openly, and they appointed a conservative committee, dominated by Pendleton and Harrison, to oversee the military preparations. Nevertheless, the Virginia militia was formed in companies independent of officers appointed by the governor. Patrick Henry's militia resolution was modeled on preceding county committee resolutions in Virginia, especially one of Fairfax County, where George Washington had led the adoption of this proposal in January. Washington's resolves, in turn, had been strictly patterned upon the Maryland Convention of November, which, in addition to approving the acts of the Continental Congress, urged the formation of a large-scale militia in Maryland with officers to be elected and with funds for the citizen soldiery to be raised in a voluntary and hence libertarian manner. North Carolina, counseled to follow the lead of Maryland and Virginia, declined to do so. One of North Carolina's problems was the high proportion of Tories in the province, including the colonies of Highland Scots around Wilmington and Cape Fear, and in the back counties of Rowan, Surrey, Anson, and Guilford, where hundreds of citizens signed loyalty pledges to Great Britain. Indeed, Governor Josiah Martin urged General Gage to send him weapons and ammunition to arm the North Carolina Tories. The Tory sentiment in the backcountry 
has led historians to believe that the North Carolina regulators, in anger against the seaboard planters who had suppressed them and who were now rebels against Britain, had reacted by joining the Tory cause. A pretty theory, but at odds with the facts. The most recent and most careful historian of the regulator movement estimates that of 323 regulators whose later choice is known, 289 joined the revolution while only 34, slightly over 10%, became Tories. Armed clashes between the popular and governmental troops began to occur in mid-April in the South, shortly before news of Lexington and Concord arrived. By mid-April, news had arrived of Britain's decision to crack down on New England rather than conciliate. Accordingly, Lord Dunmore, governor of Virginia, had 20 kegs of powder in the Virginia provincial stores at Williamsburg seized by a British naval captain on the night of April 20. The Williamsburg masses threatened to rise up and recapture the powder. Virginia seethed with indignation and the committees of Gloucester, Henrico, Dumfries, and Albemarle counties called for restoration of the gunpowder. Lord Dunmore refused to give up the powder, summoned all people loyal to Britain to rally to him, and threatened to free all the slaves of Virginia and burn Williamsburg to the ground. Six hundred well-armed Virginians met at Fredericksburg on April 29 to press their demands. But, as in the case of the Williamsburg agitation the week before, more conservative leaders, George Washington and Peyton Randolph, persuaded the men to disperse and refrain from advancing upon the British troops. The redoubtable Patrick Henry, however, refused to be cowed, as had even Richard Henry Lee, and himself led a militia company from Hanover County, which managed to seize at least the monetary equivalent of the powder from the British. Lord Dunmore declared Patrick Henry an outlaw, which more than ever made him a hero of the enraged people of Virginia. The night after Dunmore's raid on the powder, South Carolina rebels, joined in a secret committee of the South Carolina Provincial Congress headed by William Henry Drayton, staged a raid on the government armory, and carried off arms and ammunition. By the time of Lexington and Concord, much of the South, and especially Virginia, was at fever pitch. Volume 3, Chapter 69 The Shot Heard Round the World The Final Conflict Begins Despite the mounting tension in the South, the main focus of potential revolutionary conflict was still Massachusetts. The British authorities, ever more attracted to a hard line, were becoming increasingly disenchanted with the timorousness and caution of General Gage, who had actually asked for heavy reinforcements when everyone knew that the scurvy Americans could be routed by a mere show of force from the superb British army. Four hundred Royal Marines and several new regiments were sent to Gage, but the King, one of the leaders of coercion sentiment, seriously considered removing Gage from command. There were a few voices of reason in the British government, but they were not listened to. 
The Whiggish Secretary of War, Lord Barrington, urged reliance on the cheap and efficient method of naval blockade, rather than on a land war in the large expanse and forest of America. And General Edward Harvey warned of any attempt to conquer America by a land army. But the Cabinet was convinced that 10,000 British regulars, assisted by American Tories, could crush any conceivable American resistance. Underlying this conviction and consequent British eagerness to wield armed force was a chauvinist and quasi-racist contempt for the Americans. Thus, General James Grant sneered at the skulking peasants who dared to resist the crown. Major John Pitcairn, stationed at Boston, was sure that, if he drew his sword but half out of the scabbard, the whole banditti of Massachusetts Bay would flee before him. Particularly important was the speech in Parliament of the powerful Bedfordite, the Earl of Sandwich, first lord of the Admiralty, who sneeringly asked, Suppose the colonies do abound in men. What does that signify? They are raw, undisciplined, cowardly men. I wish instead of 50,000 of these brave fellows, they would produce in the field at least 200,000, the more the better. The easier would be the conquest. The very sound of a cannon would carry them off, as fast as their feet could carry them. There was another reason, it should be noted, for Sandwich's reluctance to use the fleet, rather than the army against the enemy. While the army was to dispatch the Americans, Sandwich wished to use the fleet against France, with which he hoped and expected to be soon at war. Accordingly, the Crown sent secret orders to Gage, reaching him on April 14. The Earl of Dartmouth rebuked Gage for being too moderate. The decision had been made, since the people of New England were clearly committed to open rebellion and independence of Britain, Maximum and decisive force must be slammed down hard upon the Americans, immediately. While reinforcements were underway, it was important for the British troops to launch a preventive strike by moving hard before an American revolution could be organized. Therefore, Gage decided to arrest the leaders of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, especially Hancock and Sam Adams. As in so many other preventive first strikes in history, Great Britain itself precipitated the one thing it wished most to avoid, a successful revolution. Interestingly enough, the Massachusetts radicals were at the time rejecting hot-headed plans for first strike by rebel forces who would thus be throwing away the hard-forged unity of the American colonist. Adams and Hancock were out of town and out of reach near Concord. So Gage decided to kill two birds with one stone by sending a military expedition to Concord to seize the large stores of rebel military supplies and to arrest the radical leaders. Gage determined to send out the force secretly to catch the Americans by surprise. That way, if armed conflict broke out, the onus for initiating the fray could be laid on the Americans. Gage also used a traitor high up in radical ranks. Dr. Benjamin Church, 
of Boston, whom the British supplied with funds to maintain an expensive mistress, informed on the location of the supplies and the rebel leaders. Church's perfidy remained undetected for many more months. Gage learned from Church, furthermore, that the Provincial Congress, under the prodding of the frightened Joseph Hawley, had resolved on March 30 not to fight any armed British expedition unless it should also bring artillery. By not sending out artillery, Gage figured that the Americans would not resist the expedition. Gage, however, immediately encountered what would prove a major difficulty in fighting a counterinsurgency war by a minority ruling army against insurgent forces backed by the vast majority of the people. He found that, surrounded by a sullen and hostile people, he could not keep any of his troop or fleet movements hidden. The rebels would quickly discover these movements and spread the news. On April 15, the day after receiving his orders, Gage relieved his best troops of duty, gathered his boats, and on the night of April 18, shipped 700 under Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith to the mainland, from which they began to march northwest to Lexington and Concord. But the Americans quickly discovered what was happening. Someone, perhaps Dr. Joseph Warren, sent Paul Revere to Lexington to warn Adams and Hancock. Hancock, emotional, wanted to join the Minutemen, springing to arms. But the sober intelligence of Sam Adams reminded Hancock of his revolutionary duty as a top leader of the American forces, and they both fled to safety. Revere was soon captured, but Dr. Samuel Prescott was able to speed to Concord and bring the news that the British were coming. As news of the British march reached the Americans, the Lexington Minutemen gathered under the command of Captain John Parker. Rather absurdly, Parker drew up his handful of seventy men in open formation across the British path. When Major Pitcairn, in charge of six companies of the British advance guard, came up to confront the militia, Pitcairn brusquely ordered the Americans to lay down their arms and disperse. Parker, seeing his error, was more than willing to disperse, but not to disarm. In the midst of this tense confrontation, shots rang out. No one knows who fired first. The important thing is that the British, despite Pitcairn's orders to stop, fired far longer and more heavily than necessary mercilessly shooting at the fleeing Americans so long as they remained within range. Eight Americans were killed in the massacre, including the brave but foolish Parker, who refused to flee, and eight wounded, whereas only one British soldier was slightly wounded. The exuberant and trigger-happy British troops cheered their victory, but the victory at Lexington would prove Pyrrhic indeed. The blood shed at Lexington made the restraining resolution of Joseph Hawley obsolete. The Revolutionary War had begun. Sam Adams, upon hearing the shooting from some distance away, at once realized that the fact of the open clash was more significant than who would win the skirmish. Aware that the showdown had at last arrived, Adams exclaimed, Oh, what a glorious morning is this! 
the British troops marched happily on to Concord. This time the Americans did not try any foolhardy, open confrontation with the British forces. Instead, an infinitely wiser strategy was employed. In the first place, part of the military stores were carried off by the Americans. Second, no resistance was offered to the British entry into Concord, thus lulling the troops into a further sense of security. While the British were destroying the remaining stores, three to four hundred militiamen gathered at the bridge into Concord and advanced upon the British rear guard. The British shot first, but were forced to retreat across the bridge, having suffered three killed and nine wounded. The despised Americans were beginning to make up for the massacre at Lexington. Heedless of the ominous signs of the gathering storm, Colonel Smith, commanding the expedition, kept his men around Concord for hours before beginning to march back to Boston. That march was to become one of the most famous in the annals of America. Along the way, beginning a mile out of Concord at Miriam's Corner, the embattled and neighboring farmers and militiamen employed the tactics of guerrilla warfare to devastating effect. Knowing their home terrain intimately, these undisciplined and individualistic Americans subjected the proud British troops to a continuous withering and overpowering fire from behind trees, walls, and houses. The march back soon became a nightmare of destruction for the buoyant British. Their intended victory march, a headlong flight through a gauntlet. Colonel Smith was wounded and Pitcairn unhorsed. The British were saved from decimation only by a relief brigade of 1,200 men under Earl Percy that reached them at Lexington. Still, Americans continued to join the fray and fire at the troops, despite heavy losses imposed by British flanking parties. Despite the British reinforcements, the Americans might have slaughtered and conquered the British force if a. they had not suffered from shortages of ammunition, b. the British had not swerved into Charlestown and embarked for Boston under the protecting guns of the British fleet, and c. excessive caution had not held the Americans back from a final blow at the troops on the road to Charlestown. Even so, the deadly march back to Boston was a glorious victory, physically and psychologically, for the Americans. Of some fifteen to eighteen hundred redcoats, ninety-nine were killed and missing, and one hundred seventy-four wounded. The exultant Americans, who numbered about four thousand irregular individuals that day, suffered ninety-three casualties. Insofar as these individuals were led that day, it was by Dr. Joseph Warren and William Heath, appointed a general by the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. Events could not have gone better for the American cause. Initial aggression and massacre by the arrogant redcoats, then turned to utter rout by the aroused and angry people of Massachusetts. It was truly a tale for song and story. As Willard Wallace writes, even now the significance of Lexington and Concord awakens a response in Americans that goes far beyond the details of the day or the identity of the foe. An unmilitary people, at first overrun by trained might, had eventually risen in their wrath 
and won a hard but splendid triumph. Above all, as Sam Adams was quick to realize, the stirring events of April 19, 1775, touched off a general armed conflict, the American Revolution. In the immortal lines of Emerson, penned for the 50th anniversary of that day, By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here, once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. Volume 3, Part 8. Other Forces for Revolution. Volume 3, Chapter 70. The Expansion of Libertarian Thought. The accumulating conflict with Great Britain had led to armed revolution at Lexington and Concord. In addition, other forces had joined since the middle of the century to add strength to the revolutionary movement. One vital force was the further development and extension of libertarian thought in America. It was the general concepts of liberty and revolution that found expression in the specific revolutionary arguments against Great Britain. One of the most important sources of the dissemination of libertarian thought in pre-revolutionary America, England, and elsewhere was Thomas Hollis V of Lincoln's Inn, England. Hollis's career is a stirring testament to the influence that can be wielded by the activities of one lone but dedicated man. An ardent libertarian, Hollis in 1754 conceived his plan of disseminating books on liberty throughout the world. To this he then dedicated his life and his ample fortune. Hollis lovingly collected and disseminated old libertarian works and republished those out of print. In addition to distributing liberal classics like Locke, Neville, Sidney, Milton, Nedham, Harrington, and Trenchard and Gordon, Hollis discovered and publicized such important but forgotten 16th century writers as Francois Hotman, George Buchanan, and John Poinet, who anticipated Sidney and Locke, and Marian exile Christopher Goodman, whose work influenced the later doctrines of disobedience to the state. Libertarian medals, coins, prints, pictures, and manuscripts were also collected and sent abroad. In the late 1750s and early 1760s, Thomas Hollis distributed his libertarian gifts far and wide to Switzerland, Germany, Russia, Poland, Italy, and France. But with the inception of the Stamp Act and other colonial struggles, Hollis turned the bulk of his attention after 1764 to the American colonies. Hundreds of libertarian works, regarded as subversive by the British government, were sent to the library at Harvard College, with libertarian mottos and characters stamped upon them. Hollis also carried on an extensive correspondence with two great liberal congregational divines of Massachusetts, Jonathan Mayhew and Andrew Elliott. And not only did Hollis ardently sow the seeds of English radicalism in America, he also led in distributing the American views to the people of England. Hollis, indeed, was the source of most of the pro-American writings printed in England and elsewhere in Europe during the 1760s 
including the essays of Mayhew and Eliot. There was nothing namby-pamby about Hollis's libertarianism. It was profoundly radical and stressed Hollis's passionate devotion to king-killing, resistance to tyrants, and the revolutionary principles of 17th century England. There was perhaps more truth than exaggeration in Tory Samuel Johnson's blaming the activities of the indefatigable Hollis for the outbreak of the American Revolution. Thomas Hollis was deep into the Wilkite movement, and a particularly active member of Hollis's circle was the great radical writer and historian Mrs. Catherine Macaulay, sister of one of the Wilkite leaders, Alderman John Sawbridge. When Edmund Burke published his famous Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents, 1770, which defined the principles of the Whig Party, Mrs. Macaulay promptly attacked it from the Republican and Democratic left. This debate clarified the split between the regular or moderate Whigs and the libertarian radical Whigs. In America, the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew had been the leader of libertarian thought since his great sermon of 1750, which first gave public expression in colonial America to the sacred right and duty of resistance to tyranny. As a result of his extensive correspondence with Hollis from 1759 to 1766, the latter distributed Mayhew's works throughout England. Mayhew, in turn, spread the message of the liberal and radical works sent him by Hollis, works such as Harrington, Sidney, Milton, and Hoadley. When the Stamp Act crisis arrived, Mayhew was perhaps the first to urge a network of committees of correspondence throughout the colonies and helped lead the opposition to the Stamp Act. In a sermon hailing repeal of the Stamp Act, Mayhew was among the first to envision America as a haven of liberty for the oppressed of other lands. And if any miserable people on the continent or isles of Europe should be driven in their extremity to seek a safe retreat from slavery, oh, let them find one in America, where our oppressed fathers once found it. John Locke continued to be the major fountainhead of libertarian theory in America, and his works and influence spread even more widely after mid-century. By the 1760s and early 1770s, for example, the libraries of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale contained the numerous works of Locke. Locke's more revolutionary side, however, began to be stressed late in the colonial agitation, especially after the American printing of his Civil Government in 1773. Many writers have stressed the influence upon Americans of the American printing of William Blackstone's Commentaries in 1771, but this work was used largely for its tactical strength as a source for quoting the eminent English Tory jurist against Great Britain. Actually, as Clinton Rossiter admits, the Americans read the eclectic commentaries in a shrewdly selective manner, citing this oracle repeatedly and effectively in support of all manner of Whiggish doctrines. Two of the most popular borrowings were Blackstone's memorable salutes to natural law and natural history. 
The Lockean emphasis on natural rights was further strengthened by the influence of the distinguished philosopher of the German Enlightenment, Christian Wolff, in the Institutiones, 1750. Wolff emphasized, more consistently than Locke, that man's natural rights are inalienable and cannot, therefore, be alienated to the state by any social contract. Wolff's rigorously systematic work was highly influential, and not only in Germany. In France, the important journals featured Wolff's writings, and Voltaire was an enthusiastic student of Wolff's work. The Institutiones was translated into French in 1772, and Thomas Jefferson is known to have had a copy in his library, a copy in which passages on the asserted right of revolutionary war are specifically marked. Wolfe's views were also carried to America by the Swiss writer on the law of nature, Emmerich de Vattel, whose book, published in French in 1758, influenced Jefferson. Otis, and the Adamses. As the revolution drew near, Algernon Sidney's influence continued to be strong. His martyrdom at the hands of Great Britain now had a personal meaning for the American radical leaders. Thomas Hollis had spread Sidney's writings, including his famous revolutionary motto, throughout the colonies, the maxim soon to be enshrined as the official motto of the revolutionary state of Massachusetts. The English translation of the Latin motto by John Quincy Adams runs as follows. This hand to tyrants ever sworn the foe, for freedom only deals the deadly blow, then sheathes in calm repose the vengeful blade, for gentle place in freedom's hollowed shade. And as the anxious American rebels prepared for the outbreak of conflict, the Boston radical Josiah Quincy stirringly wrote, America hath in store her Brutii and Cassii, her Hamptons and Sydneys, patriots and heroes, who will form a band of brothers, men who have memories and feelings, courage and swords. Beginning in the 1760s, the French Enlightenment began to have notable influence in America. Especially was this true of the great liberal Voltaire. Voltaire issued several important works during the 1760s, and an English translation appeared of his collected works. Americans steeped in Lockean thought recognized the French, especially Voltaire, as heirs to that tradition. Jonathan Mayhew, having read Voltaire's Philosophical Dictionary and Philosophical History shortly after they appeared, wrote to Thomas Hollis praising these works, although stating that he could not agree with the Frenchman's anti-religious views. Howard Mumford Jones has shown, contrary to many historians, that Voltaire's influence on American thought was far greater than that of his conservative contemporary, Baron de Montesquieu, whose Spirit of the Laws, 1748, stressed state-building and checks and balances in that state, rather than natural rights or individual liberty. Jones shows that while Voltaire was the most popular French author in America in the second half of the 18th century, Montesquieu was only the sixth most influential. 
Moreover, Montesquieu's influence was exerted only in the later state-building period of America, during the last quarter of the century, rather than in the third quarter when the revolutionary American ideology was being forged. The annual number of newspaper advertisements during the last half of the century averaged, in New York, thirty for Voltaire and eight for Montesquieu, and in Philadelphia, forty-five for Voltaire and seventeen for the latter. It is true that American revolutionary tracts cited Voltaire minimally, but this proves little, since any such references to the great French radical would have been as tactically unwise as the window-dressing references to respectables like Blackstone or Montesquieu were shrewd. Voltaire's works, furthermore, permeated a wide segment of the American public. The general public absorbed his political and social thought by reading his literary works, while the influential elite read his political and social philosophies directly. The second most popular French writer in America was that confused and inconsistent radical Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Again and again he was referred to in America as the ingenious Rousseau or the celebrated Rousseau. Like those of Voltaire, Rousseau's ideas were absorbed on two levels, the masses reading the novels Emile, 1762, and La Nouvelle Héloïse, 1761, and the more serious-minded studying The Social Contract, 1762, all of which were translated into English shortly after publication. Indeed, an English translation of Rousseau's collected works appeared in 1774. John Adams had read The Social Contract as early as 1765, and he eventually accumulated four copies in his library. James Otis, in his pamphlets of the early 1760s, approvingly cited the radical Rousseau as well as John Locke. In his writings, Voltaire praised Locke's motto, liberty and property, upheld revolution in behalf of liberty, and attacked despotism and war. In the article On War in his Philosophical Dictionary, Voltaire acidly compared warring states to armed gangs and observed that the marvelous part of this infernal enterprise is that each chief of the murderers causes his flags to be blessed and invokes God solemnly before going out to exterminate his neighbor. Revolution for liberty against the state, on the other hand, was a different question. In rebuttal to the age-old conservative attack upon revolution for using violence, Voltaire, in the philosophical letters, trenchantly pointed out that all political history has rested upon violence. Violence was permanently foisted upon the people by the state, declared Voltaire, and the difference between England and the other countries of Europe was that violent revolution had succeeded in England, at least in Voltaire's romanticized model, but had failed elsewhere. To establish liberty in England had been costly, no doubt, the idol of despotic power has been drowned in seas of blood. But the English do not think they have purchased good laws too dearly. Other nations have had no less troublous times, 
but the blood they have shed for the cause of their liberty had only cemented their servitude. In striking contrast to Voltaire, Montesquieu was opposed to revolution and was a defender of the concept of preventive war, which Voltaire bitterly scoffed at as clearly unjust. In his Spirit of the Laws, Montesquieu joined in the important debate between two important French historians. In 1727, the Comte de Boulain-Villiers had concluded from his historical researches that the existing French government was rooted in conquest and that the current political structure was therefore the frozen embodiment of that past conquest. The current ruling class was the heir of the tribal conquerors. The ruled masses were the descendants of the subjugated. To the reactionary Boulanviers, this insight was only a support for complete domination by the ruling class, built on the presumed right of conquest. But to the philosopher and historian Abbé Jean-Baptiste Dubos, 1734, the origin in conquest of the ruling class made all the more necessary the restoration of freedom to the people by ending the power of the rulers. Montesquieu, evading the obligation to weigh existing institutions on the basis of natural moral law, presumed instead to be a political scientist who takes existing institutions as his given, and therefore, of course, implicitly took as his undefended axiom the wisdom of the essentially feudal status quo. Indeed, Montesquieu, fundamentally a reactionary, wanted to return to stronger feudal checks against the crown. As a political scientist defending the basis of the status quo, Montesquieu, accepting the facts of original and permanent conquest, undertook to defend the existing ruling class structure against possible revolution from below. It is no coincidence that Montesquieu's popularity in the New World was suited rather to the state building than to the revolutionary age in America. For all his confusions, contradictions, and romantic irrationalism that opened the doors to future forms of tyranny, Rousseau staunchly supported the people against the despotic ruling classes of his day. He, therefore, must be regarded overall as a vital part of the broad, radical liberal movement of the era. In his Discourse on the Moral Effects of the Arts and Sciences, 1750, English Translation, 1752, Rousseau condemned the accretion of centuries of coercive government, with its hordes of officials and auxiliaries of power in the legal profession, as contrasted to the more natural or voluntary government of the past. A trenchant attack on the ruling class was contained in Rousseau's Discourse on Inequality, 1754. Building on Locke's insight that private property began in the mixture of people's labor with land and natural resources, Rousseau described how the state arose in the imposition of violence on such properties and their owners. This violence resulted in a ruling class imposing slavery and domination over the body of the ruled. 
From the state flowed the institutionalization of violence in perpetual conflicts between the original property owners and the ruling class. As Rousseau slashingly put it, such was the origin of society and law, which bound new fetters on the poor and gave new powers to the rich, which irretrievably destroyed natural liberty, eternally fixed the law of property and inequality, and converted clever usurpation into unalterable right, and, for the advantage of a few ambitious individuals, subjected all mankind to perpetual labor, slavery, and wretchedness. From the state also flowed perpetual wars, struggles between the ruling classes of each state, employing and exhausting the lives and labors of the ruled. The most distinguished men hence learned to consider cutting each other's throats a duty. At length men massacred their fellow creatures by thousands, without so much as knowing why and committed more murders in a single day's fighting than were committed in the state of nature during whole ages over the whole earth. In Emile, Rousseau properly criticized Montesquieu for evading discussion of the philosophical and moral validity of the existing state, turning instead to elaborate treatment of currently established systems. Yet, when Rousseau later turned to such a philosophic inquiry in his own social contract, he developed two contradictory positions, for individual liberty and for popular collectivism. The collectivist, or at least the anti-individualist strain in Rousseau, may be partly attributed to the conservatizing influence of Montesquieu. On the existing ruling class, however, Rousseau stood firm for a libertarian view. Criticizing Hobbes's curious conclusion that the right of the rulers to govern stems from the fact that only the rulers can benefit from political power, Rousseau scornfully remarked, On this showing, the human species is divided into so many kinds of cattle, each with its ruler, who keeps guard over them for the purpose of devouring them. On existing states, Rousseau's famous verdict was unambiguous. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. Above all, Rousseau was concerned, in his proposed commonwealth in the social contract, that democratic forms be as pure and direct as possible, so that the specter of oligarchy could never more rear its ugly head. The more direct and continuous the control of the body of the people over state officialdom, the less likely would be the state to surmount the checks of popular vigilance and reestablish the despotism of oligarchy. Thus, for Rousseau, the necessary checks on state power were to be found not, as in Montesquieu, in legalistic forms within the state, but in popular forces coming from outside the state apparatus. Volume 3, Chapter 71, The Vermont Revolution, The Green Mountain Boys While the American colonies were moving inexorably toward a final break with Great Britain, and the winds of revolutionary doctrine blew in from overseas, a local but intense revolutionary conflict was developing in the North. As in the case of so many internal conflicts in the American colonies, 
the struggles centered around the disposition of land. Western New Hampshire, now Vermont, though still sparsely populated, was being settled throughout the 1760s. Under land grants parceled out by New Hampshire's governor, Benning Wentworth, and these lands quickly devolved by purchase upon the actual settlers. To attract settlers, the prices charged for the land were not very onerous. But New York, goaded by its land speculators, aggressively continued to assert its own arbitrary claims to all the land of the region. In 1771, this western region, which also included part of current New York east of the Hudson, contained some 7,000 settlers. In 1764, however, the Board of Trade dealt a rude blow to the settlers of western New Hampshire. It decreed that New York's land claims to the area were valid. New York's governor, Codwallader Colden, hastened to proclaim his rights and, true to the New York tradition of venal land oligarchy, to sell those rights to the land to a handful of land speculators from New York. By the end of 1765, Colden had sold to a few speculators rights to 36,000 acres of the best land in the area. Centered around Arlington and Manchester, in what is now southwestern Vermont, leading these speculators were James Duane and John T. Kemp. New Hampshire tried desperately to halt or nullify these grants, but the Crown's pressure left enough loopholes for New York to continue granting western New Hampshire land on a large scale. By the late 1760s, Colden had sold over 535,000 acres in grants, and had sold well over 2.1 million acres of military land grants to veterans, virtually all of which were transferred to large land speculators. By 1776, the total had reached 2.1 million acres of regular and 2.4 million acres of military. Land granted by New York, the great New York oligarchs were featured on this new gravy train of land monopoly. Among the grantees were James Duane, Philip Skeen, William Livingston, Robert R. Livingston, Pierre de Peister, Augustus Van Cortland, William Smith, and John Morin Scott. Claims mean little unless enforced, and the trouble began as soon as New York tried to oust. The New Hampshire settlers, in behalf of its newly asserted owners, in 1769, New York's aged Cadwallader Colden, back as governor after a three-year gap, brought proceedings against James Breckinridge of Bennington to try to eject him from his farm. When they arrived at the farm, the New York authorities were driven off by armed friends of Breckinridge. The next step was for New York to order the arrest of Breckinridge and his rioting friends, who were led by the Reverend Jebediah Dewey and Samuel Robinson. New York was not able to make any arrest, however, and Colden, with mounting horror, complained that these settlers of the Green Mountain area proclaimed their allegiance to New Hampshire, as if they would hasten to salute a New York power that was trying its best to seize their lands and turn them over to a few privileged favorites. The following year, 
New York proceeded again in earnest, launching ejectment suits against Breckenridge, Isaiah, Carpenter, and other Green Mountain settlers. At this point, one of the great figures of American revolutionary history emerged to be chosen to lead the defense of the beleaguered settlers, the redoubtable Ethan Allen. The trial of Breckenridge, Carpenter, and others took place in the New York courts. The impartiality of the court may be gauged by the fact that its chief justice was Robert R. Livingston himself, a leading New York grantee of New Hampshire land. And the prosecutors were Attorney General Kemp and James Duane, the leaders of the speculative ring in the granted land. Not surprisingly, the New York court ruled for New York in June 1770. At first, Duane and Kemp tried to bribe Ethan Allen into submission, but the latter scornfully rejected their offer. Allen and the settlers resolved to hold their positions by force if necessary. Banding together, the settlers formed a committee of safety to oppose the court's decision, as well as an armed band to resist New York's aggression against their properties. The band was called the Green Mountain Boys, and Ethan Allen was chosen its leader. Soon each town west of the mountains had selected its own committee of safety. Delegates from the local committees convened regularly at Bennington. Moving from attempted bribery to physical violence, the New York government, now headed by its ever more grasping governor, Lord Dunmore, sent sheriffs several times to arrest Breckenridge, but each time they were violently repelled by armed farmers of the neighborhood. New York responded by escalating its coercion, ordering the arrest of the rioters, including the leaders, Silas Robinson and Simon Hathaway. The farmers refused to be intimidated, and violent armed defense continued. The Vermont region is bisected by the Green Mountains. Although the heart of the settler resistance was located west of the mountains, the eastern region erupted also. There, while the Breckenridge turmoil continued in the west, a band of armed settlers, headed by Joseph and Benjamin Waite and by Nathan and Samuel Stone, rebelled against New York authority, denied its jurisdiction, captured the sheriff who had tried to arrest them, and forced the New York courts to adjourn. But the revolutionary movement there did not command the mass support that it did west of the Green Mountains. For the eastern side was more remote, and New York's yoke was felt more lightly there. The town of Guilford even went so far as ardently to advocate allegiance to New York. Riders were therefore routed by 400 pro-New York inhabitants, and the settler revolution was stilled in eastern Vermont by the end of 1770. But in the West, the revolutionary struggle intensified. From defending the property of Breckenridge and the other settlers, the rebels went on the offensive to oust by force all New York authority in the area. When New York appointed a pliant ally as judge, the judge's home was burned down, and he was driven off. Robert Cochran led an armed band and forced out of the territory two leading New York officials. Surveyors from New York were threatened and beaten, and their surveying tools confiscated. Settler defense continued as well. 
when the New York sheriff put a tenant of his in place of Isaiah Carpenter on the Louder's farm, Carpenter's neighbors forced the intruder to leave. The New York government next tried the soft sell, wooing the angry settlers by promising to confirm their grants from New Hampshire and reduce official fees. But the settlers could no longer trust their enemy, and so New York, now led by Governor William Tryon, fresh from his triumph in crushing the North Carolina regulation, soon returned to the policy of coercion. In July 1771, Sheriff Henry Ten Eyck gathered a huge posse, numbering in the hundreds at Bennington in the southwest corner of Vermont, to bar Breckenridge from his farm. Now at last these insolent rebels were to be taught the lesson of obedience. Setting out confidently on their easy mission, the New York posse was ambushed, surrounded, and forced back by a heroic band of ardent revolutionaries, members of the Green Mountain Boys, led by Captains Robert Cochran and Seth Warner, a cousin of Ethan Allen. This stirring victory of a private band of irregulars over organized New York power raised the hearts and spirits of the settlers of western New Hampshire. The Green Mountain Boys now launched a systematic campaign to drive off the settlers who had been brought in by New York to enjoy the property created by the New Hampshire settlers. Charles Hutchinson, a transplanted New Yorker on Cochrane's property, saw his cabin burned and was ordered off by Ethan Allen. Go your way now and complain to that damned scoundrel your governor. God damn your governor, laws, king, council, and assembly. Governor Tryon of New York, in consequence, offered a reward for the capture of Allen, Cochrane, and another leader, remember Baker, to which Allen and the Green Mountain Boys retorted sardonically by offering counter-rewards for the capture of their arch-enemies, Duane and Kemp. In high spirits, Allen wrote mockingly to Philip Skeen that, by virtue of a late law in the province, they are not allowed to hang any man before they have kitched him. Boldly, Allen rode into Albany unharmed and was welcomed by a sympathetic populace. Allen did not even let himself be phased by the desertion of the Green Mountain cause by the New Hampshire authorities. By the end of 1771, Governor John Wentworth of New Hampshire had abandoned support of the rebels, hoping indeed to acquire some of the New York-claimed land for himself. The best the settlers could now hope for from New Hampshire was neutrality, which they gained when Wentworth refused to issue a proclamation against the Green Mountain Boys. The Green Mountain Boys now stood alone. How could these very loosely organized and individualistic irregulars hope to stand up to the overwhelming might of the New York government backed by British regular troops? The answer lies in the authentic genius of the undaunted Ethan Allen. Allen perceived the potential of a new form of warfare on the scene of world history, Allen had watched with interest and sympathy the Prendergast Tenant Rebellion of 1766 and the rapid debacle of the rebel cause. From this carnage, Allen and Allen alone learned the proper military and revolutionary lessons. 
Alan saw that the grave mistake of Prendergast and the tenants was to rush out, an unorganized and untrained mass, to do formal battle with the well-trained and far more heavily armed British troops. The ensuing slaughter was inevitable. But why must all battle be waged in formal ranks, on open fields? Just because all European military lore said so, Allen did not see why these hidebound rules should not be transcended. In particular, he saw that a revolutionary war, a people's war, was best waged in a far different and a far more revolutionary manner. In brief, what were the advantages and disadvantages of the Green Mountain Boys in their armed struggle with the organized power of New York? Their disadvantages were all too evident. The superior arms and the formally trained, specialized troops of the enemy but the military advantages of such a zealous people's revolutionary movement had too often been overlooked. Two advantages were that the rebels dwelt among an admittedly friendly and sympathetic population and operated on a thoroughly friendly terrain. As settlers themselves, the rebel forces were of that population and could blend quickly and easily with it. This itself greatly offset the specialization of the enemy. These part-time rebels, so camouflaged, just could not easily be spotted, isolated, or captured. Therefore, able to move among the people and on familiar terrain as fish in water, the rebel band had the great advantage of mobility and speed. It also had the advantage of surprise— for the support of the surrounding populace gave it an enormous intelligence advantage over the enemy. The rebels came to know where the enemy was, but the enemy knew virtually nothing about the rebels. The rebels, therefore, could and must hit and run, hit and run, strike and fade away, harassing and weakening and demoralizing the enemy while keeping it always off balance. These advantages and others the far-sighted Allen had come to see. In short, he perceived that the proper path to victory for a people's revolution against a well-armed state force is guerrilla warfare, not a foolhardy rush to open confrontation and instant defeat. To organize guerrilla warfare, the rebels needed knowledgeable and brilliant leadership and high morale both in the fighting force and in the supporting population. The Vermont settlers possessed these requisites, in the high-quality leadership of Allen and his lieutenants, and in the zeal of the settlers fighting for their homes and land against aggressors. By 1772, a successful and continuing guerrilla war was being waged in the Green Mountains. The astuteness and far-sightedness of Ethan Allen's grasp of the principles and tactics of guerrilla war may be seen by his highly restrained use of coercion, since it is crucial to the success of a revolution to keep the active support of the masses, coercion must be held to the necessary minimum, both for daily mass support and so as not to provoke enemy reprisals against the people. Therefore, only as necessary 
and then, but minimally, were threats and terror employed by the Green Mountain Boys in achieving their aims of driving out the New York officials and interlopers, and of rescuing settlers and their own members from the New York enemy. So remarkable was their minimizing of coercion that in all their battles and skirmishes, the Green Mountain Boys never killed a single man. Allen sensed that revolutionary practice cannot successfully proceed without revolutionary theory, and he proceeded to supply the latter as well. Lusty, militant, candid, and rough-hewn, Allen may have been, but he was far from an unlettered oaf. Though lacking a college education, Allen studied at the feet of the notable Boston radical Dr. Thomas Young. From Young, Allen imbibed deism, Newton, and French rationalism. Allen used his ardently held Lockean natural rights theory to justify the settler revolution. In his Brief Narrative, 1774, written at the behest of a convention of West Side towns, Allen rested the settlers' rights to their land on the Lockean natural right of possession and cultivation, which is of itself abundantly sufficient to maintain the right in the possessor, and to gain him a title sealed and confirmed with the sweat and toil of the farmer. In short, as Darlene Shapiro puts it, Allen's argument, then, is that he who occupies and works the land has a natural right to it, a right sufficient to confer legality. In true Lockean fashion, Allen proceeded to demonstrate the limits of government. Laws and society, compacts, were made to protect and secure the subjects in their peaceable possessions and properties, and not to subvert them. No person or community of persons can be supposed to be under any particular compact of law, except it presupposeth that the law will protect such person or community of persons in his or their properties. Therefore, no government or king may force a man to give up his rightful property. The supreme power cannot take from any man any part of his property without his own consent. When a government transcends its proper limits and invades private property, then power reverts to the people who resume their original liberty. In this way, reasoned Allen, the settlers of western New Hampshire had returned to a state of nature. By the default of the governments of New York, New Hampshire, and Great Britain, the Green Mountain Boys had become the means by which the settlers assumed the task of defending their property. Governor Tryon, the stern extirpator of the regulators, had never encountered such opponents as the Green Mountain Boys. In the spring of 1772, he asked for negotiations, although he refused to talk with the top leaders. The rebels sent as negotiators Captain Stephen Fay, the veteran tavern keeper of Bennington, where the rebels often gathered, and his son, Dr. Jonas Fay. In the rebel messages to Tryon, it was trenchantly pointed out who the real rioters and wielders of violence were, 
though they, the sheriff and posse, style us rioters for opposing them and seek to catch and punish us as such, yet in reality themselves are the rioters, the tumultuous, disorderly faction, or in fine, the land jobbers. A lull now appeared in the New York conflict. In the West, the governor obeyed royal orders to leave the New Hampshire settlers alone. In the East, the revolutionary spirit died down. Guilford formally proclaimed itself part of New York, and two pro-Yorkers were elected to the New York Assembly. Tryon and the Fays readily concluded a truce on the basis of letting the settlers alone. But the Vermont lull was destined to be short-lived. Continued pressure by Yorkers on western New Hampshire lands led to determined armed resistance by the rebels. Full-scale conflict resumed more intensely than ever, and a futile arrest order was sent out for Remember Baker and Ira Allen. Governor Tryon vainly asked for British troops to crush the Green Mountain Boys, but the British wanted no repetition of their role in suppressing the New York Tenant Rebellion of 1766. During 1773, guerrilla terrorism by the boys intensified. The major irritant was the Scottish Colonel John Reed, a New York land claimant who had been ejected from his claimed land by the settlers a year before. In early 1773, Reed led a party of Scottish immigrants back to settle on the invaded land. He built a wall and even began to construct a village on the land. But in mid-August, Ethan Allen, Baker, and Seth Warner, leading a hundred Green Mountain boys, swept down to demolish this nascent settlement and to drive the intruders off the land. When asked by a settler for his legal warrant for this raid, Baker lifted his hand to a declaim, Here is my warrant, and Allen then raised his rifle high and dramatically shouted, This is my law. As the guerrilla war continued to rage, Ethan Allen and his band in the autumn of 1773 kidnapped one of New York's top officials in the area, Judge Benjamin Spencer. Allen, Cochran, Warner, and Baker then conducted a public trial of Spencer, finding him guilty of allegiance to New York at the expense of the settlers. Allen and Baker informed Spencer that they valued not the government of New York, nor even the kingdom They had force and power sufficient to protect themselves against either. As punishment, Spencer's roof was pulled off. After this salutary warning, Spencer pledged himself to be a loyal citizen of New Hampshire thenceforth. Thus was a leading royal official in the western area, mildly but firmly removed from the fray. The request of the unhappy Tryon for British troops was again scornfully turned down. General Frederick Haldimand in Boston, a Prussian-trained officer totally unfamiliar with Allen's new-style guerrilla warfare, indignantly wondered how Tryon could possibly claim to need His Majesty's troops to vanquish a few miserable bandits. Finally, Governor Tryon moved to a stance of maximum toughness, violating the canons of Anglo-Saxon law in the process. In early March 1774, he put through the New York legislature the Bloody Law, 
which proclaimed that Allen, Warner, Baker, Cochran, Breckenridge, and three other Green Mountain boys were to be regarded as convicted felons and were to suffer death without trial unless they surrendered themselves within seventy days. Rewards for the capture of these leaders were also greatly increased. In the face of this awesome sentence of outlawry, Ethan Allen never faltered. Instead, he leaped to counterattack in a magnificently revolutionary manner. In a slashing remonstrance, Allen blasted the New York officials of insatiable, avaricious, overbearing, inhuman, barbarous blood-guiltiness of disposition and intention. Allen dared the New Yorkers to come and get the Green Mountain boys. Come on, we are ready for a game of scalping with them, for our martial spirits glow with bitter indignation and consummate fury to blast their infernal projections. Allen concluded with sweeping counter-death threats, promising death to anyone who dared to arrest a single Green Mountain boy and a West Side Convention of Settlers in mid-April branded any person in the area holding a commission from New York an enemy to their country. New York was stunned to find maximum threats answered in kind. No one surrendered, and the Green Mountain Boys redoubled beatings and insults to New York officials and transplants, and they proceeded to seize, try, and sentence the New Yorkers. Acting Governor Colden, replacing Tryon, who had been called to England to explain this curious phenomenon in the New Hampshire Grant area, soon was forced to call again for British troops, which were again sternly denied. Meanwhile, the East Siders, those east of the Green Mountains, were being galvanized by the passage of the Coercive Acts and the British crackdown on Massachusetts. The East Side met at a Cumberland County Convention in Westminster late in October to consider its course. The East Siders replied rather ambivalently, if unsurprisingly, hailing American liberty and devotion to the king. Going beyond this stance, Leonard Spalding of Dummerston cursed King George for establishing the Roman Catholic Church in Canada so vehemently that he was arrested for high treason. Soon armed men gathered and marched to Westminster, freeing Spalding without meeting any resistance. The town clerk of Dummerston hailed this liberating act by the brave sons of freedom and concluded his account of the affair by denouncing the cutthroatly Jacobitish high church tyrannical minions of George III, the Pope of Canada and tyrant of Britain. No conservative hanging back or ambiguity here. The Westsiders, always leading in the revolution, were not to be caught napping. After the removal of Benjamin Spencer, the Baptist minister, Judge Benjamin Huff was the only major New York official remaining in the area. Finally, at the end of January 1775, Huff was seized by the Green Mountain Boys and taken to Sunderland to be tried by the leaders of the rebels. Huff was charged with allegiance to New York and acting as a New York magistrate. Admitting the charges, Huff was sentenced by the judges to 200 lashes with a rope scourge and exiled from the New Hampshire Grant area. Before sending Huff out on foot, Allen and Warner capped their triumph by issuing the judge a passport for safe conduct to New York.
Thus, Ethan Allen had led the Green Mountain Boys in five years of outstandingly successful guerrilla war against mighty New York to a smashing conclusion. In some, New York officials and planted settlers had been ejected from the area, and New Hampshire settlers had been defended, with no one killed on either side during the entire period. Indeed, only one Green Mountain boy was wounded, and a few New Yorkers were whipped, pushed around, and had their homes burned. The full catalog of casualties of this remarkable conflict under a remarkable and brilliant leader. Matters were also coming to a head on the east side of the Green Mountains. A convention of Cumberland County had endorsed the actions of the First Continental Congress. Non-importation, however, was rejected by the New York Assembly, thus widening further the rift with the east side. A third county convention in early February petitioned Governor Colden against the tyranny of the county court, which was appointed from above rather than chosen by the people of the county. Moreover, the court was too expensive and burdensome. It inconveniently dragged local farmers in to sit on juries and was too prompt in enforcing collection of debts. Despite warnings of approaching tension, the Cumberland County Court opened on March 13. A group of about a hundred men met at Rockingham, north of the county seat at Westminster, and, armed only with clubs, marched down to the county courthouse and engaged in a sit-in. That evening, marching up from the south, came Sheriff Billy Patterson at the head of fifty men, many of them equipped with firearms. That night, the sheriff's posse shot its way into the courthouse and killed two of the sit-ins in what soon was dubbed the Westminster Massacre. The first one to die was young William French, who was fittingly saluted as the martyr of the fray. The Westminster Massacre aroused and galvanized the people of the East Side New Hampshire Grants. The following day, militia companies of the people formed and kept tramping into Westminster. The Patterson posse hastened to flee. The county court, reading the handwriting on the wall, hastily adjourned. The radical elements in the assembled mob proposed to burn the courthouse and shoot the sheriff, the judges, and all their retinue, but they were held back by the more restrained militia commanders. Instead, the militiamen released the sit-in prisoners and arrested the sheriff, judges, county clerk, and members of the posse that could be rounded up. As militiamen continued to pour into Westminster to fend off any New Yorker or British counterattack, a climactic moment came when there arrived from across the mountains a detachment of Green Mountain Boys, led by Captain Robert Cochran. Their arrival was a living symbol of the emerging unity between the two halves of the New Hampshire Grant Territory. As usually happens in such cases, the postponement of revolutionary vengeance led to a cooling off of temper and resolution. The Yorkite prisoners were either released on bond or sent for trial to Massachusetts, where they were all soon released. Not one of the Yorkers implicated in the massacre even came to trial. However, the generally hated Justice Noah Sabin, 
on returning to his farm, was treated by his fellow citizens with an intense wrath that stopped just short of invading another man's sacred right of private property. Sabin was assured that should he take one step beyond the borders of his own farm, he would be shot that instant. Unity between the east side and the west side was further forged on April 11, when a convention of the town committees of safety of the two regions assembled at Westminster and proclaimed that all citizens should wholly renounce and resist the oppressive jurisdiction of the government of New York. Two East Siders and Ethan Allen were selected to draw up a remonstrance on their joint behalf. As the news arrived of the shattering events at Lexington in Concord, the sturdy and successful Vermont Revolution naturally blended into the revolution against Great Britain. For one thing, the enemy New York government, particularly its executive, was a royal government, as was that of New Hampshire. For another, the call of liberty against the oppression of the state was very familiar to the men of the Green Mountains. They had fought for the libertarian cause for years. What more natural than to extend the fighting against the larger despotism of imperial Britain? Volume 3, Chapter 72, The Revolutionary Movement, Ideology and Motivation With the beginning of the American Revolutionary War, at the outbreak of Lexington and Concord, two truths about the Revolution already stand out clearly. One is that the Revolution was genuinely and enthusiastically supported by the great majority of the American population. It was a true people's war against British rule. In addition to all the evidence given above, the American rebels could certainly not have concluded the first successful war of national liberation in history, a war against the world's greatest naval and military power, unless they had commanded the support of the American people. As David Ramsey, the first great historian of the American Revolution, put it in 1789, the war was the people's war. The exertions of the army would have been insufficient to effect the revolution unless the great body of the people had been prepared for it and also kept in a constant disposition to oppose Great Britain. Professor Alden has shown that the myth of present-day historians that only one-third of the American public backed the revolution, with an equal number opposed, stems from a misreading of a letter by John Adams. A second truth that emerges is the egregious fallacy of the view endemic among historians of all ideological persuasions that there is a large and necessary dichotomy between political or moral principle and economic self-interest. Historians friendly to the revolution have insisted that the Americans fought for political freedom, for independence, for constitutional rights, or for democracy. Critical historians maintain that the fight was merely for economic reasons, for defense of property and trade against British interference. But why must the two be sundered? Why may not a defense of American liberty and property 
be conjoined to a defense of political and economic rights. The merchants rebelling against the stamp tax or sugar or tea taxes or the restrictions of the navigation laws were battling for their rights of property and trade free from interference. In doing so, they were battling for their own property and for the rights of liberty at the same time. The American masses, similarly, were battling for all property rights, for their own as well as those of the merchants, and acting also in their capacity as consumers fighting against British taxes and restrictions. In short, there need be no dichotomy between liberty and property, between defense of the rights of property in one's person and in one's material possessions. Defense of rights is logically unitary in all spheres of action, and what is more, the American revolutionaries certainly acted on these very assumptions, as revealed by their essential adherence to libertarian thought, to political and economic rights, and always to liberty and property. The men of the 18th century saw no dichotomy between personal and economic freedom, between rights to liberty and to property. These artificial distinctions were left for later ages to construct. From our conclusions that the American revolutionaries commanded the loyalty of a large majority of the colonists and that they saw no dichotomy between liberty and economic rights and therefore between ideology and economic interest, we may proceed to some broader speculations on the role of ideology as compared with that of economic interest in the various actions of political history. In particular, we contend that the primary motivations will tend to differ among two classes of political actions. Actions of the state in expanding its power over the populace and actions of the populace in moving or rebelling against state power. We contend that the actions of the former will tend to be primarily motivated by economic interest, while the latter will tend to be motivated primarily by more abstract ideological or moral concerns. Let us see why this should be so. The essence of the state throughout history is a minority of the population constituting a power elite or a ruling class, governing and living off the majority or the ruled. Since a majority cannot live parasitically off a minority without the economy and the social system breaking down very quickly, and since the majority can never act permanently by itself, but must always be led by an oligarchy, every state will subsist by plundering the majority in behalf of a ruling minority. A further reason for the inevitability of minority rule is the pervasive fact of the division of labor. The majority of the public must spend most of its time going about the business of making a living. Hence the actual rule of the state must be left to full-time professionals who are necessarily a minority of the society. Throughout history, then, the state has consisted of a minority plundering 
and tyrannizing over a majority. This brings us to the great question, the great mystery of political philosophy, the mystery of civil obedience. From Etienne de la Boitie to David Hume to Ludwig von Mises, political philosophers have shown that no state No minority can continue long in power unless supported, even if passively, by the majority. Why then does the majority continue to accept or support the state when it is clearly acquiescing in its own subjection? Why does the majority continue to obey the minority? Here we arrive at the age-old role of the intellectuals, the opinion-molding groups in society. The ruling class, be it warlords, nobles, bureaucrats, feudal landlords, monopoly merchants, or a coalition of several of these groups, must employ intellectuals to convince the majority of the public that its rule is beneficent, inevitable, necessary, and even divine. The leading role of the intellectual throughout history is that of the court intellectual, who, in return for a share of, a junior partnership in, the power and pelf offered by the rest of the ruling class, spins the apologias for state rule, with which to convince a misguided public. This is the age-old alliance of church and state, of throne and altar, with the church in modern times being largely replaced by secular intellectuals and scientific technocrats. When state rulers act, then, to use and aggrandize state power, their primary motivation is economic, to increase their plunder at the expense of the subject and the taxpayer. The ideology that they profess and that is formulated and spread through society by the court intellectuals is an elaborate rationalization for their economic interest. The ideology is the camouflage for their looting, the fictitious clothes spun by the intellectuals to hide the naked plundering of the emperor. The economic motive behind the ideological garb of the state is the heart of the issue. But what of the actions of the rebels against state power? those infrequent but vital situations in history when the subjects rise up to diminish whittle away or abolish state power. What, in short, of such great events as the American Revolution or the classical liberal movements of the 17th and 18th centuries? Of course, an economic motive exists here, too, in this case one of defending the private property of the subjects from the depredations of the state. But our contention here is that even when conjoined, as in the American Revolution, the major motive of the opposition or of the revolutionaries will be ideological rather than economic. The basic reason for this assertion is that the ruling class, being small and largely specialized, is motivated to think about its economic interest 24 hours a day. Manufacturers seeking a tariff, merchants seeking to cripple their competition, bankers looking for taxes to repay their government bonds, rulers seeking a strong state from which to acquire revenue, bureaucrats wishing to expand their empire. 
All of these are professionals in statism. They are constantly at work trying to preserve and expand their privileges. Hence the primacy of the economic motive in their actions. But the majority has allowed itself to be misled largely because its immediate interests are generally diffuse and hard to observe, and because the majority comprises not professional anti-statist, but people going about their business of daily living. What can the average person know of the arcane processes of subsidy or taxation or bond issue? Generally, he is too wrapped up in his daily life, too habituated to his lot after centuries of state-guided propaganda to give any thought to his unfortunate fate. Hence, an opposition or revolutionary movement or indeed any mass movement from below cannot be primarily guided by ordinary economic motives. For such a mass movement to form, the masses must be fired up must be aroused to a rare and uncommon pitch of fervor against the existing system. But for that to happen, the masses must be fired up by ideology. Only ideology, guided either by a new religious conversion or by a passion for justice, can arouse the interest of the masses, in the current jargon, raise their consciousness and lead them out of the morass of daily habit into an uncommon and militant activity in opposition to the state. This is not to say that an economic motive, for example, a defense of their property, does not play an important role, but to form a mass movement in opposition means that the people must shake off their habits, their daily mundane concerns of several lifetimes, and become politically aroused, and determined as never before in their lives. Only a commonly held and passionately believed in ideology can perform that role. Hence, our conclusion that a mass movement like the American Revolution must be centrally motivated by a commonly shared ideology. How, then, do the masses of subjects acquire this guiding and determining ideology? By the very nature of the masses, it is impossible for them to arrive at such an opposition or revolutionary ideology on their own. Habituated as they are to their narrow and daily rounds, uninterested in ideology as they normally are, it is impossible for the masses to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps to hammer out an ideological movement in opposition to the existing state. Here we arrive at the vital role of the intellectuals. Only intellectuals, full-time or largely full-time professionals in ideas, have the time, the ability, and the inclination to formulate an opposition ideology and then to spread the word to the people. In contrast to the statist court intellectual, whose role is a junior partner in rationalizing the economic interest of the ruling class, the radical or opposition intellectual's role is the centrally guiding one of formulating the opposition or revolutionary ideology and then of spreading the ideology to the masses, thereby welding them into a revolutionary movement. An important corollary 
in weighing the motivations of the intellectuals themselves or even of the masses, it is generally true that setting oneself up in opposition to an existing state is a lonely, thorny, and often dangerous road. It is usually directly in the economic interest of the radical intellectuals to allow themselves to sell out, to be co-opted by the ruling state apparatus. The intellectuals who do choose the radical opposition path, who pledge, in the famous words of the American revolutionaries, their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, can scarcely be dominated by economic motives. On the contrary, only a fiercely held ideology, centering on a passion for justice, can keep the intellectuals to the rigorous path of truth. Hence again, the likelihood of a dominant role for ideology in an opposition movement. Thus, statists tend to be governed by economic motivation, with ideology serving as a smokescreen for such motives, while libertarians or anti-statists are ruled principally and centrally by ideology, with economic defense playing a subordinate role. By this dichotomy, we may at last resolve the age-old historiographical dispute over whether ideology or economic interest play the dominant role in historical motivation. We can now see why the Charles Beard, Carl Becker, economic determinist model of human motivation, a dominant school of American history in the 1920s and 1930s, so fruitful and penetrating when applied to statist actions of the American government, fails signally when applied to the great anti-statist events of the American Revolution. The Beard-Becker approach sought to apply an economic determinist framework to the American Revolution, and specifically a framework of inherent conflict between various major economic classes. The vital flaws in the Beard-Becker model were twofold. First, they did not understand the necessarily primary role of ideas in guiding any revolutionary or opposition movement. Second, they did not understand that there are no inherent economic conflicts in the free market. Without government intrusion, there is no reason for merchants, farmers, landlords, and others to be at loggerheads. Conflict is created only between those classes that rule the state and those that are exploited by the state. Not understanding this crucial point, the Beard-Becker historians framed their analysis in terms of the allegedly conflicting class interest of, in particular, merchants and farmers. Since the merchants clearly led the way in revolutionary agitation, the Beard-Becker approach was bound to conclude that the merchants, in agitating for revolution, were aggressively pushing their class interest at the expense of the deluded farmers. But now the economic determinists were confronted by a basic problem. If indeed the revolution was against the class interest of the mass of the farmers, why did the latter support the revolutionary movement? To this key question, the determinist had two answers. One was the common mistaken view criticized above that the revolution was supported only by a minority of the population.
Their second answer was that the farmers were deluded into such support by the propaganda beamed at them by the upper classes. In effect, these historians transferred the analysis of the role of ideology as a rationalization of class interest from its proper use in explaining state action to a fallacious use in trying to understand anti-state mass movements. In this approach, they relied on the jejun theory of propaganda, pervasive in the 1920s and 1930s under the influence of Harold Laswell, namely that no one sincerely holds any ideas or ideology, and therefore that no ideological statements whatever can be taken at face value, but must be regarded only as insincere rhetoric for the purposes of propaganda. Again, the Beard-Becker school was trapped by its failure to give any primary role to ideas in history. After World War II, as part of the general American celebration among the American intellectuals of that era, the newly dominant consensus school of American history demonstrated that the revolution was indeed supported by the majority of the population. Unfortunately, however, under the aegis of such major consensus theoretician as the neoconservatives Daniel Burstyn and Clinton Rossiter, the consensus school moved to the truly absurd conclusion that the American Revolution, in contrast to all other revolutions in history, was not really a revolution at all, but a purely measured and conservative reflex against the restrictive measures of the crown. Under the spell of the American celebration and of the hostility to all modern revolutions generated by the post-World War II era, the consensus historians were constrained to deny any and all conflicts in American history, whether economic or ideological, and to absolve the American Republic from the original sin of having been born via revolution. Thus, the consensus historians were fully as hostile to ideology as a prime moving force in history as their enemies, the economic determinist. The difference is that where the determinist saw class conflict, the consensus school maintained that the genius of Americans has always been to remain unfettered by abstract ideology of any kind, and that instead they have met every issue as ad hoc problem-solving pragmatists. Thus, the consensus school, in its eagerness to deny the revolutionary nature of the American Revolution, failed to see that all revolutions against state power are necessarily radical, and hence revolutionary acts, and further, that they must be genuine mass movements guided by an informed and radical ideology. Fortunately, however, the most recent and now dominant school of historiography on the American Revolution, that of Professor Bernard Balin, brings radical ideology and radical libertarian ideology at that into the forefront of the causes of the revolution. Against the hostility of both of the older schools of historians, Balin has managed, in scarcely a decade, to emerge as the leading interpreter of the revolution. 
Balin's great contribution was to discover for the first time the truly dominant role of ideology among the revolutionaries. He stressed not only that the revolution was a genuine revolutionary and multi-class mass movement among the colonists, but also that it was guided and impelled, above all, by the ideology of radical libertarianism, or as Balin happily calls it, the transforming libertarian radicalism of the revolution. In one sense, Balin harked back to a generation of historians at the turn of the 20th century, the so-called constitutionalists, who had also stressed the dominant role of ideas in the revolutionary movement. But Balin correctly saw that the mistake of the constitutionalist was in ascribing the central and guiding role first to sober and measured legalistic arguments about the British Constitution and second to John Locke's philosophy of natural rights and the right of revolution. Balin saw that the problem of this interpretation was to miss the major motive power of the revolutionaries. Constitutional legalisms, as later critics pointed out, were dry-as-dust arguments that hardly stimulated the requisite revolutionary passions, and furthermore they neglected the important problem of the economic depredations by Great Britain. And Locke's philosophy, though ultimately highly important, was too abstract to generate the passions or to stimulate widespread reading by the bulk of the colonist. Something Balin rightly felt was missing, the intermediate-level ideology that could stimulate revolutionary passions. Balin found the missing ingredient in the radical libertarian Lockean English writers of the 18th century, especially John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, of Cato's letters. These writers applied and transformed Lockean natural rights theory into a radical and passionate and explicitly political, libertarian and anti-British framework. Trenchard and Gordon and the other influential libertarian writers clearly and passionately set forth the libertarian theory of natural rights went on to point out that government in general, and the British government specifically, was the great violator of such rights, and warned also that power, government, stood ever ready to conspire to violate the liberties of the individual. To stop this crippling and destructive invasion of liberty by power, the people must be ever wary, ever vigilant, ever alert to the conspiracies of the rulers to expand their power and aggress against their subjects. It was this spirit that the American colonists eagerly imbibed, and that accounted for their conspiracy view of the English government, a view which historians like Bernhard Nolenberg have shown was basically correct since after 1760 such conspiracies were all too real. Thus, what some historians have derided as the paranoia of the colonist turned out to be not paranoia at all, but an insightful apprehension of reality, an insight that was, of course, fueled by the colonist libertarian understanding of the very nature and essence of state power itself. 
Thus, in the deepest sense, the American Revolution was a conscious majority revolution in behalf of libertarianism and against power, a libertarian ideology that stressed the conjoined rights of liberty and property. The American Revolution was not only the first great modern revolution, it was a libertarian revolution as well.